hits the fours on the river and wait for it. This is where Phil is going to start getting frustrated because he is just, like, losing to... <laughs> Good check, Phil. Good check. <laughs> check your way to victory. Jesus Christ. You're running out of chips, Phil. You're going to have to take a stand pretty soon. How many fucking cards is he going to fucking... You're running out of chips. But I do actually kind of like how unrelenting this guy is because it might get to Phil. You call that justice? Justice. All those cards you hit on the river, that's justice? Justice. Or someone who's playing badly but getting Call it justice. Good. Oh, wow, look at this. A check raise from five to 15,000 and a show from person with a 9-4. It's starting to get personal. You have played before, right? You, you know there's no limit hold'em? You know what we're playing? <laughs> nice so check. Obnoxious. Nice bet out. It was so I'm good. I'm still, at the end, I'm going to shake your hand and say good match. When I bust you, I appreciate. I'm that. still gonna say I, that to you. I but so I mean, what the? That. I mean, you're so obnoxious. This is crazy. <laughs> Coming from you, compliment. Uh, at least, at least, if I'm playing a pro, they can say, "Yeah, I was lucky this hand and that hand." You, you say, "Oh well, I started with. Let's go back 13 hands. We needed this, and I did that." And da -da 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 -da. I don't sound like a farmer. I do not sound like a you fucking sound farmer. Sound like that to me. I don't sound like a farmer to you. Yeah, sound, I sound like sound, the man that's going to beat like you that. right now. That's what I sound like. Well, if you keep beating me with ace-jack suited against 4-5, drawing dead every <laughs> I'm game. the man that's going to end this tourney on you. That's who I am. I think you're going to give it all to me, if you want the truth. I know. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with TELUS. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on April 25th, 2022. The time right now, 9.40 p.m., and I'm on a borrowed computer. This is not the computer I usually broadcast from because the computer I usually broadcast from broke. So it is in the repair shop. It actually physically broke. It didn't crash. It didn't uh, have issues uh, with the electronics inside. It actually physically broke. And no, I did not break it. I didn't drop it. I didn't throw it against the wall after a bad beat in online poker. It actually just broke and... I won't go into all the detail, but it is in the process of being repaired, and uh, that took me a little time to get situated on a new computer, which is the reason that we didn't have the show as scheduled on Friday, but we are here now, and that's the important thing, and we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about because a lot has happened. A lot has happened since I was last on the air. Remember, when I was last on the air, the biggest story was a story that I was covering and hardly anyone else was. And that was about the America's Card Room withdrawal theft scandal. And we gave that extensive coverage. In fact, we have an update. And really, this has been a poker fraud alert thing. In fact, it would still be going on, I'm pretty sure, if it were not for all the coverage that I gave it here on Poker Fraud Alert. So we really made a difference. But that was the big story. And... Another big story was All-American Dave, but those have been dwarfed. There have been two big stories that are kind of similar that have come out since then that has the poker world all abuzz. Two huge stories. And people kept asking me, when are you coming back on so you can talk about these things? And I really wanted to, but I didn't have a computer to do so. And I also had a lot of things to do involving... Uh, getting stuff off the old computer, or shall I say the computer I was using. It's not really old. I'm going to get it back when it's fixed. But the computer I was using, getting stuff off and moving it 
to the uh, borrowed computer so I can have access to all my stuff. It's a big pain in the ass to do all that. So I was concentrating on that and uh, less on getting radio going, but I really did want to get radio going. And uh, therefore, here it is tonight on uh, Monday, April 25th. We have a free roll tonight. We do have a free roll, and it is $50, and it is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. It requires a separate account and a separate validation process to get approved. But once you are approved, then you can play the free roll. You need to go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll to understand the rules for winning the free money, the free cash money we give away just about every week that we do the show. So this week, 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. Gordman donated 25 of that, and the other 25 came from Lauren Kling's hairy ass. Not Lauren Kling, but her hairy ass donated the $25. (laughs) You may wonder what I mean by that. Someone who listens to the show, who goes by Lauren Kling's hairy ass in honor of what uh, the now-departed Matt Marafiati once said about her. I don't know if it was true. I've never seen Lauren Kling's ass, but that was what he claimed. And uh, he's not around to question about this anymore since he unfortunately uh, took his own life last year. But uh, that account still exists. So uh, Lauren Kling's hairy ass gave uh, $25, so I thank him for that. So we have uh, $50 for the free roll, as usual. Sometimes we have more, sometimes we have a lot more, like we had a huge free roll for our uh, 10th anniversary show on March 2nd. But we are back to our normal $50, and I thank the two of you for donating. You have until 9.55 Pacific Time, which is 11 minutes from now, to get in with late registration with a full stack, because it started at 9.30 Pacific, but there's always 25 minutes of late registration. If you sign up for a new account on the free roll on the uh, No Fraud Online Poker Room, you do need to wait for it to get validated. If you do not get validated, you can PM Belly Space Buster on the forum, Belly Space Buster, and he will uh, validate you. And uh, if you don't get a response from him for some reason, you can always contact me and I will get it going. How can you contact me? Well, you can do it by email, dandruff at pokerfraudler.com, exactly as it sounds, dandruff at pokerfraudler.com, or you can text me, 775-372-8355. You can text that number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It doesn't matter if we're on the air, off the air, whatever. Always that is available to reach me, 775-372-8355. And that spells 775-FRAUD55, and that is also the main call-in number to the show. So if you'd like to call in and talk to me while we're broadcasting live, you can always do so. But please wait until we're like in between topics or just about done with the topic because I don't like to interrupt topics with phone calls usually. So if I don't take your call, that's usually why. We have a chat room. You can go into the chat room if you're listening live. It needs a validated form account in good standing to get into the chat room. It does work on any device now. If you want to listen to the show in the archives and you're not listening live, there's many ways to do it, and I have a bit of news about that as well. We have iTunes, we have Google Podcasts, we have the TuneIn app, we have the Bullhorn app, we have the Spotify app, which is what I recommend. That's the best one. It gets the show the fastest, and it has some pretty cool features, including clickable timestamps. So you can actually click on a timestamp 
for different topics of the show, it takes you right there. It's really cool. Spotify is the one I really like to use to listen to episodes of the show if I want to find something. You can also listen to or download the MP3 file of the show, and that is in the uh, Radio Archives forum of Poker Fraud Alert. But there's two other platforms you can use to listen that have been around for a while that have been having some problems. iHeartMedia is a very big app. It can be used to listen to tons of podcasts, tons of radio stations, terrestrial radio stations around the country that are owned by iHeartMedia. It's a huge company, as you probably know. And for some reason, their app does not work well with Poker Fraud Alert. And uh, the way it receives the Poker Fraud Alert podcast is through something called an RSS feed. Now, I'm not going to go into a long technical discussion on how that works, but basically the RSS feed is a file that iHeartMedia and all the other apps check every so often to see if there is an update to what we are presenting. And if there is, it uh, makes that available. So it's basically a file that instructs it what is available on PokerFraudAlert.com to podcast. That's what an RSS feed is as far as podcasts go. It's used for other things, but as far as podcasts go, that's how RSS feeds work. Well, some apps like Spotify do a great job reading the file, the RSS feed. And even if there's small idiosyncrasies to it or it's not exactly what they're expecting or if there's some formats that are a few years old, Spotify and most other apps can handle that and still process it properly. But for whatever reason, iHeartMedia is extremely finicky. And if anything is in there that it doesn't like, it breaks. So iHeartMedia stopped carrying our episodes after, appropriately, September 11th, 2021, the exact uh, 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. That was our final episode that was on iHeartMedia, and then it just stopped picking up episodes. So finally, I uh, have been working with them to get this working again. And I spent a lot of time the other night doing work on the generation of the RSS feed to where iHeartMedia would like it. And I finally got it going. I finally made it work. Again, this is more on their end because it's just too picky. It's too finicky. But I know it's a major app. I wanted to make that work. And also, I needed to bring our RSS feed into 2022 because a lot of the stuff, uh, a lot of the formats that were being used to generate it were uh, many years old. I'm using a 10-year-old forum software, vBulletin software, that uh, is generating that feed through the forum, which is good because I didn't have to write a program to generate it, but it's bad because it's... uh, it has some mistakes in it, and also some things are just kind of antiquated. So I've been updating it every so often, but it needed a major update from me here. So I did that, and uh, now we have a much better RSS feed, and iHeartMedia should be picking it up. And Stitcher, unfortunately, still is not picking it up. So <laughs> I must be a different issue with them. I think they're just kind of messed up over there. I just kind of have a soft spot in my heart for Stitcher because they were one of the first apps to carry any podcast I was on, and I kind of just want to still be there. But if it's not going to work, I'll have to take it down. Anyway, we are also on Amazon Alexa, and we are also on uh, Audible. Those are two other ways you can listen. For Amazon Alexa, you just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert radio podcast, and it will play. By the way, if you go on Amazon.com and just enter Poker Fraud Alert radio with spaces between Poker Fraud and Alert, you just enter that, you'll see we're actually on Amazon. (laughs) You'll see we're listed on Amazon. So we actually have an entry on Amazon.com itself now. So those are the ways you can listen. 
Of course, you can always listen live, and then there's the call to listen line, which can be reached by calling 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 is the call to listen line, and that is very simple. You just call up and you listen to the show. And we've had this for six and a half years now, and about two million minutes have been listened to on the call to listen line. It does not require a smartphone or a data plan or the internet or a computer. No, 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 no. You just call up with any phone that can dial, and you can listen. And as long as you can call a U.S. number for free, then it is free. Unless you have T-Mobile, then it costs one cent a minute because it's considered a high-volume number, which is both flattering and frustrating at the same time, because I don't get that money. We also have a uh, player on the radio tab of Poker Fraud Alert to listen live or to the streaming reruns that should work with any device. So that is something we have uh, updated as of last year. Anyway... I am uh, going to give you the agenda, and then we will get started with our topics, because we've got some big things to talk about this week. So, our first topic is the update to the ACR withdrawal scandal. And you may say, come on, that's not the biggest thing going on in poker right now. And I say, yes, but this was a Poker Fraud Alert exclusive. This was all done by us, mainly me. But this has been really something Poker Fraud Alert has been driving, and we made a difference here. And I like when we make a difference. I, I find it more interesting when we make a difference or break a story than just report on existing big stories. So I like doing that, too. I like reporting on big stories as well, as you guys know. But I especially like when we make a major impact, and we definitely did there with the ACR withdrawal scandal. So I will give you an update on that. Then our two big topics. First big topic... Alex Foxen made an explosive cheating allegation against high-stakes poker pros Ali Imserovic and Jake Schindler. He claimed that they've been cheating at high stakes for a long time and that he's sick of it and he needs to call them out. Second big story, kind of along the same lines, but totally different. Martin Zamani, you may not know, he's not a big name in poker, though he has been around for some years, a former stake horse of Bryn Kenny, who you probably know, he is the, the one who's cashed the most in tournaments of anyone in poker. Zamani made allegations of collusion and a cult-like atmosphere in Bryn's staking operation. He made a lot of explosive allegations, both on Twitter and the same day on Doug Polk's show. Doug Polk dropped everything and got Zamani on there, which I'll explain why Polk did that. It wasn't just because it was interesting, which it was, but there was more to it than that that some of you don't know. So we're going to talk all about that, too. That's a very complex story. In fact, it's much more complex than the Ali Imsrovic story. So we're going to get into both of those stories. And we'll talk about whether you should feel safe online. That's a big topic right now is should you feel safe to play online, given that everything that's been said in these two series of allegations. Then we have an update on All-American Dave again. I think after this, there's not going to be an update for a while or maybe ever on All-American Dave. But uh, I do want to close out that, that story. I've, I've found out some new things here. Then we have a tragic story about a poker short stacker named Lauren Yelly. I didn't know him personally. I had heard of him 
quite some time ago. And he actually had a good reputation, even though some people didn't like the short stacking strategy that he had with playing poker, which I'll explain later. But he was uh, semi-known in the poker world in the late 2000s and early 2010s. He was murdered in a wrong place, wrong time situation where he uh, happened to be at a gas station when a domestic violence murder took place, and then he was murdered as well. Very sad, and I'll tell you that story. He really had nothing to do with any of it except for just being there. So it really, this type of thing can happen to anyone at any time, and uh, even though I didn't know the guy, I will tell you what happened there, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, this won't happen to anyone else in poker because this really had nothing to do with him being a poker player. Just was random. Random, senseless act of violence against uh, Mr. Yelley, who's now no longer with us. So even though I didn't know him, I was very sad to read that story. Then there's a different murder story, but a bit... uh, It's it's kind of uh, not quite a murder, in my opinion. This involves a poker player accused of murder, not being a victim of murder. This is Wade Wolfel from Minnesota. And he's accused of murder, but he didn't actually set out to kill anybody. It was from a drug overdose where somebody died on illegal drugs. It was an accidental drug overdose. And uh, Wolfel is accused of being the one who supplied the drugs to this person. And uh, under Minnesota law, he can be charged with murder for that reason, which I I don't really agree with, even though I tend to be pretty uh, supportive of being tough on crime. I I don't think that qualifies as a murder. It definitely is a crime. He should go to jail for that if if he's guilty of that. But I don't think for murder. Anyway, we'll talk about that. Then we've got a bit of a humorous story, because we have two murder stories back-to-back, so we have to break that up with something a little more humorous. The National Indian Gaming Association. National Indian Gaming Association. Think about that acronym, what it might be, and uh, why they might have decided to finally change it. <laughs> We have another kind of humorous story involving Phil Helmuth, involving trash talking, where in a heads-up match involving Helmuth, someone was uh, receiving so much trash talking and so much abuse that they called the floor man over, they wanted it stopped, they were very rattled by it, they couldn't stand it. So was Helmuth victimizing yet another person? No. This time, Helmuth was the victim of the trash talk and was freaking out. (laughs) So I'm going to play you clips from that. Uh, Poker Go posted it on YouTube, and I will play you clips. And I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing Helmuth get what he always gives. Then we have an update on that weird Resorts World story involving CEO Scott Sabella and accused scammer Brandon Sattler because Sattler gave a deposition and accused Sabella of a lot of things that were not very good. And that contradicted what Sabella had uh, previously claimed. And now Sabella is being investigated by gaming. So that'll be an interesting story. That'll be our uh, final poker and gambling story. And then I have a coronavirus uh, topic but before we get going, I will take a call here. Caller, you're on the air. 
Very high quality call. Thank you for that. Very informative. Saw 24 is back on Poker Fraud Alert. I want to welcome him back. He was a forum poster who kind of disappeared for a while. And then I saw him on 2 Plus 2, and I asked why he left. And he he told me he didn't like some of the posts on the forum. Not about him, but just kind of posts in general. He just kind of quit. So I said, all right, you know, it's up to you. I, I'm not going to pressure anyone to participate on the forum. And then he, he returned. So he's back, and I'm glad to see he's posting again, and he's listening. Uh, he's in the chat room. So welcome back, Saw 24. And let's get going, though. I want to give you an update on the ACR situation. America's Card Room. I mean, this feels like a million years ago at this point. Think about it. If you've been following all the news with all the stuff with Ali Imsrovic and uh, Bryn Kenny, think how long ago the ACR withdrawal scandal feels. It doesn't help that I haven't been on in uh, like 10 days. But I was the one who directed this entire thing. I'm the one who got everyone's attention to it. I'm the one who got ACR to act. I'm the one who made sure that this was taken seriously. And in fact, people were not getting their money back for a while. And then they started getting it, partially thanks to my guidance. And I don't like to brag about things that I didn't actually do. But I will tell you, and you can take a look at it here, you're not going to find many outlets in poker that covered this. And the few that did were basically quoting stuff I did. So it was all me. Because I saw that uh, someone was making these allegations, and it looked at least semi-credible. And then upon looking into it further, it looked very credible. And it looked like there was a big problem with accounts on America's Card Room were just being breached. That someone was getting into accounts and just withdrawing their money to crypto addresses, and then ACR wasn't doing anything about it. And this was occurring for over two months. And there was no discussion of it on social media. The victims were all low-profile players, so it's not like they had a big following and could get a lot of attention. So, like, if this happened to someone who had 10,000 followers in poker, yeah, they they would mention it, and then uh, people would start to get up in arms. But these were all people who were unknowns in poker, which may may have not been an accident. This may have been on purpose, where they went after people they knew didn't have much of a voice on social media. And... You see someone who you don't know claiming, oh, my money was stolen on such and such site. You go, ah, you know, I don't really know this person. Who knows what the story is? Maybe they just want to get a double withdrawal. Maybe uh, they were just careless with their password. I mean, it's a lot of doubt will come to you when you read things like that. And that's how I feel when I read it from unknown people. I never know what to think because a lot of times when people go to social media or forums and make these claims, they're either confused or full of crap or the issue was on their end and they don't know it. So I don't like to immediately jump and blame the site. But upon looking into this, and I'm not going to go into the whole story again because we've done it on two consecutive episodes prior to this one. If you want to hear the whole story, you can go back and listen to those. But suffice to say that upon investigation and upon publicizing this and getting contacted by more victims, this was real. This was really happening. And finally, on April 7th, We got an acknowledgement from ACR that this was happening. So I announced it on Poker Fraud Alert on March 23rd. That's when I started the investigation. And on April 7th is when ACR finally came forward. And guess who they were responding to on social media? Me. Their only statement about this was in response to my tweet. It says, replying to Todd Wittellis on April 7th, we recently had a handful of accounts 
that were susceptible to a security vulnerability due to a credential stuffing attack, which basically means that someone was using passwords they had stolen from a previous hack of another site and trying them on ACR to get in. That's what a credential stuffing attack is. These sorts of attacks are all too common in online environments. We take them very seriously and work to defend and secure whenever vulnerabilities are identified. All account balances that were affected were given full refunds. So, okay, this was not something that people were lying about or imagining. They admit that there were some accounts that were broken into and withdrawals were made and their money was stolen. Now, if you believed ACR, this sounds like it's not their fault. How can ACR be blamed if other sites were hacked, not theirs, but other sites were hacked, and then people's passwords were stolen that way, and then those hackers tried those same passwords on ACR and got into those accounts because the same password was used with the same email address. You would think that's the fault of the player for using the same password everywhere and not the fault of ACR. And yeah, that's somewhat true. And guess what? Upon my investigation into this, it does appear that is how the thieves were getting into the accounts. So then what's my problem with ACR? Well, see, that was only part of the story. That was not the whole story because there were several things that happened that ACR would not explain. And I did not just swallow their explanation and accept it and move on. I said, wait a minute, we've got some problems here. Now, first of all, ACR was very protective with the information of the thieves. For some reason, you were not entitled as a victim to the IP address of the person requesting the withdrawal or the Bitcoin address where the withdrawal went, which is even worse. You can't even say, hey, where did my money go? Yet we're not telling you, they say to you. What? You can't know where your own money went? You can't know where your own withdrawal went? Because look, it's one of two things. Either it's your withdrawal, in which of course you should know where your money was sent that was supposed to go to you, or it was somebody else withdrawing under your account, in which case you should have a right to know where your money was sent. Can you imagine being told, no, we're not giving you that information? A withdrawal is made from your account, but we're not telling you where? That makes no sense. There's no logical reason to refuse that information. So I said right away, because I was telling all the victims to ask for this, and they were all being denied. They were all being either ignored or denied. And I said, look, there's some reason ACR doesn't want this information known, and I have a feeling it's because they don't want you to see who did it. They don't want you to find out that it was coming from maybe near their headquarters. They don't want you to find out that the thief was someone who worked for them. I don't know. I don't know who the thief was. I'm just guessing here, but there's something they didn't want you to see. Otherwise, why would they hide that? If you say, hey, that withdrawal, that wasn't me. Can you give me the address where it went to? No. Why no? Why? It doesn't make any sense. So that was one thing. Another problem. If you try to log on to America's card room from what's called an unfamiliar device, then it sends you an email link to click to verify it's really you. And until you do that, you can't get onto ACR. Now, how does it determine an unfamiliar device? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it really means a new device that it hasn't seen before, like a new computer, or if it's like a combination of things. Like maybe if it sees your own IP address that you always use on ACR, but it's a different computer, it lets you log in because it assumes it has to be you on the same IP. Or maybe it is just a, a new device, a new physical device has to do that. I don't know the way they determine it, but if something that's unfamiliar, meaning like a combo of an IP address they haven't seen before from you and a device they haven't seen before from you, 
then it will send you that link. And someone sent me a copy of the email that they got with that link to click. So I had someone on Twitter go, oh, I've, I've, I've never gotten that, that link before. They just, uh, this, this wasn't an inside job. It's just their security wasn't very good and they weren't sending that link. And I go, yes, they were. Like, I, I have a copy of that email that's, that's going to people to click it. Well, somehow the thieves were able to bypass that. Somehow the thieves were able to get in without ever clicking that link. In fact, the first guy who reported this, that is exactly what happened to him, where he got an email with that link, never opened it, never clicked on it, yet the thief somehow got in anyway and withdrew his money. So we talked about all this on previous shows, but the, the, these were some of my problems. And my third problem with their, their explanation was that one of the victims, now most of the victims were for thousands of dollars, but there were some that were for pretty small amounts of money. There was one who lost $125 in this, one who lost 275 So the guy who lost 275 which by no means is big money, he, his was most interesting to me because he had just deposited 275 and then 61 minutes later, the thieves withdrew his 275. And that's curious in two ways. Number one, ACR has a policy that you can't withdraw after such and such time uh, until like such and such amount of time passes since you deposited. So apparently it's not even supposed to be possible to deposit and then withdraw within an hour. But even putting that aside, how would these thieves have known that this guy put on $275 within an hour if they couldn't see his account in some way? He didn't sit down and play yet. It's not like he sat down and they saw him at a table. How could these thieves have known to try it within an hour to do this withdrawal? And the only explanation would be if somebody could see it, if somebody could see a deposit went through. So here's my theory. It's only a theory, but here's my theory about what happened. I believe that some insider at ACR realized that if they had a list of emails and passwords that they could try, that they could combine this with their insider access to see who has money there and to see who deposits there or whatever, and also use their access to bypass the security link from a new device, and they could steal money that way via unauthorized withdrawals. They could break into accounts and withdraw money. But the one thing they could not get on their own as an insider was the passwords. I bet that was secured pretty well at ACR to where the typical low to mid-level employee can't just access people's passwords. There's probably encrypted there very well, and they probably can't do it. They probably can't access it. They can probably see account information. They can see who has money. They can see who made a deposit, stuff like that. But they probably cannot see the passwords. So how do they get the passwords? Well, they can buy these passwords on the black market not ACR passwords, but they can buy these big lists of email and corresponding passwords that have been obtained from previous hacks of other sites. Not necessarily poker or gambling sites, but just other sites. So any site that's been hacked that has a lot of accounts, then you have a big list of emails and passwords. And then whoever buys that who works for ACR could then take that gigantic list, which is probably gigabytes long, and then what they can do is strip it down to only email addresses that match email addresses that are on ACR, because they probably have a list of all the email addresses at ACR. So they probably could cross-reference both automatically, not doing it by hand, but to automatically have a program look at all the ACR email addresses and only take those out of that gigantic file and discard everything else. 
Then they have a list of passwords, and they can try them one by one, maybe manually, maybe not. That's how I think they did it. I think they bought a list of emails and passwords from other sites and then tried them on ACR if they matched emails that are used on ACR. But I think they took it one step further because they had insider access. They were able to see who had money. So if someone had no money, they probably didn't bother to go in. I also think they had a way to either intercept that email that's sending the link or maybe stop that link from being generated in the first place. Somehow they had a way with the password to get in without clicking on a new device link in order to log in through the email. So somehow they could bypass that probably because they were insiders again. And there's, there's various technical explanations for why that could be done or how that could be done, which I won't get into again. I think I explained it last time. And they also had knowledge of the withdrawal procedures on ACR. In fact, one of the biggest, in fact, I think the biggest theft was for over 13K and the thief knew to do 10K first and the remainder of three, whatever, 3,600 second, about half an hour later. So whoever did this was very knowledgeable about the security procedures in ACR. They seemed to be knowledgeable enough to not hit any massive accounts. They didn't try to hit accounts that were uh, 100K, 200K accounts on there because uh, there probably would have been extra security uh, procedures triggered where you think a, a normal hacker, let's just, say, let's just say just some random hacker who didn't have much to do with the poker community, uh, you would think they'd go for the big name accounts there and try to withdraw like 200K. But they didn't because whoever did it probably knew that they couldn't. They knew that it would be scrutinized heavily if they tried to withdraw 200K and they wouldn't be able to be successful. So the only way they could do these quick withdrawals and get away with it were ones that were um, 10K or less. And then they also made sure to hit accounts of people who were not known and could not uh, raise a big issue about this in social media and get seen. These are all just my theories, but it all fits together. But if you're doubting my conclusions, then tell me, how were they getting past that link to people's emails? And you may say, well, maybe they're getting into the emails too. No, I talked to the victims and I asked them some questions after this whole thing about the claim on ACR's part about it being a matter of passwords being stolen from previous hacks of other sites. And I asked these people, do you use your email password anywhere else? And everybody told me no. And then I asked them, your ACR password, did you use that anywhere else? And they're like, well, yeah, but it wasn't other poker sites. But yeah, I did use it on a few sites. So just about every single one of them told me that yes, their ACR password is one they use on other sites. So, okay. I believe that a list of usernames and passwords that, that were, uh, or email addresses and passwords that were obtained from a previous hack uh, were, it was bought by these hackers, or maybe the hackers who actually did this were uh, working for ACR. Who knows? But I'm guessing it was bought. And then they went to work with it with the, uh, the combination of their insider access and now this list of passwords to try. And again, if you don't believe me, how do they bypass the link? How do they know that one guy with the $275 just deposited an hour ago? How do they know these things if it's just uh, randomly trying passwords? It doesn't make any sense. And why is ACR so protective about that Bitcoin address? Why can't you find out where your money went? Why won't they give you that address or the IP address? Why can't you have these things? Why are they so protective of these thieves who are victimizing them and you? It's because they don't want you to see who did it. The earliest incident of this was on January 26, 2022. 
to my knowledge, that is. Maybe it happened before, but that was the earliest one I heard about. The last one was April 6th. I heard about this recently. Someone who got hit on April 6th contacted me, and ACR just acknowledged like two days ago that, yes, this was part of that uh, whole group of thefts, and they refunded his money. Everybody has gotten their money back who's contacted me except for one guy, and that guy's only out $125. For whatever reason, they're telling him that uh, his account was secure, which looks like bullshit, and it happened on March 24th, so it was like right in the middle of all this. So I'm pretty sure the guy was victimized the same way, and I think he just ran into some idiots at security there when he emailed them. So I, I told him that I'll help him follow up on this, even though it's 125 bucks, It just kind of pisses me off they're not giving it to him. But anyway... The earliest one was January 26th. last one was April 6th that I know of. And when I say that I know of, I've asked everybody to come forward if they got hit this way. And I had them tell me when this occurred. And all of them were between January 26th and April 6th. Guess what happened on April 7th? We told you last time because our last show was on April 14th. Last time, I mentioned that on April 7th, not only did ACR acknowledge that these breaches were occurring, but they took their app offline. They had a mobile app. Most people play on desktop, but uh, there is a mobile app you can use, and that was shut down that same day, April 7th, and they said they don't know when it's coming back. And it was down for about two weeks. It came back up a few days ago. They would not explain what they were doing or what the problem was with it, but it looked like it was not a coincidence that the same day they acknowledged that this was occurring and that they took the app down the same day that it probably was related, and maybe the app was being used in some way to commit these breaches. Maybe if they went on through the app, it wasn't generating that link. Who knows? But there was some reason they took down that app, and it was down for two weeks while they were fixing it. I have not heard of any breaches since April 6th, so it's probably over. They probably have put an end to this. I've also gotten reports that people are getting more aggressive emails from their payment processor requiring them to verify further details, which makes it a lot harder for the thieves to get away with stealing from people. Not every single person is getting it, but maybe if, for example, the request is coming from an IP that is not familiar to the system, they'll ask them to do that. Whatever it is, it does appear they probably have closed the loophole. And it looks like other than that one guy who lost $125, everyone's been refunded, including the people who lost thousands or in one case, uh, 13 plus thousand. So you may say, all right, great. They gave everyone their money back. They closed the holes. ACR, great job, guys. No, no. Number one, this would still be going on today if it were not for me. I'm convinced of that. I can't say 100% because I can't... uh, look at an alternate universe where I didn't raise issue or I was never born. But I can tell you, if I didn't raise issue or if I were never born, this very likely would still be happening because people were complaining about this since January 26th and they weren't doing a damn thing about it. Even in the cases where they gave people their money back, they hadn't done anything about it. So this was basically either being ignored or they're just kind of watching it to see what happens. Maybe they're trying to catch who's doing it. Whatever it was, there was no urgency to shut this down. It went on for over two months, January 26th to April 6th. And only when I got this thing traction by tweeting about it and asking people to retweet for awareness and doing segments on this show about it and just very aggressively pressing ACR and even bringing it to Moneymaker's attention and just really pressing that I'm not letting this go and I don't believe that this is just uh, 
people who are being careless with their passwords that I think this it's more than that. And the reason I thought that is the ACR is not going to give you back 13K if you were careless with your password. What they're going to do is they're going to say you were careless with your password, sorry. So they're not going to give you back 13K unless they know they had fault in the situation. It's just too much money. It's one thing to give back 100 bucks for goodwill. It's another thing to give someone 13K, another person 9K, another person 7K. If you're doing that, then you know you had fault. So they have not admitted that there's any fault on their end. They've not admitted it's an inside attack. They've, they're trying to say it was just a, a credential stuffing attack by outsiders, and I don't believe it. I think it was a credential stuffing attack, but I think it was by insiders. I do not think it was done by management. I do not think it was done by ownership. I don't think management was happy about this. I don't think they approved of it. I don't think they were uh, in cahoots with those doing it. I think they would have much rather this didn't happen, even if I had not raised issue about it. But they were negligent. They were not putting a stop to it. They weren't taking this seriously. I basically did a free security job for them. And that's why it's been stopped, because... I raised awareness, I collected victims and got their accounts and advocated for them and gave them advice and publicized this in every way I could. And what do you know, about two weeks later, ACR admits it happened, though gives a modified story from what likely occurred, and they take action and they close the loophole and they refund people's money. Hmm. I wonder why that happened. You think it would have changed? Do you think that... uh, We'd be sitting here today in the, at this status right now if it were not for Poker Fraud Alert's involvement. I seriously doubt it. I think it would still be happening, and I think you just have these randoms that you've never heard of in poker before say, oh, ACR, someone stole my money, and people collectively yawn and move on because you don't know these people, you don't know if you can trust them, you don't know if you can believe them, and you know it doesn't really affect you, so who cares? Like That's the way most people view it. And that's why I think these people were targeted, people who had money on there but weren't very well known. So I'm glad this has been stopped, finally. Glad that people have gotten their money back, except for one. But this was mishandled. This should not be up to me to do. Once they get reports like this, they need to thoroughly investigate. And they definitely should never cover up the Bitcoin address that the money went to. You should at any time have the right to say, hey, that withdrawal that was just made from my account, can you tell me where it was sent? It should always be, yes, here's where it was sent. Why? Because it's your money and your account. I had some idiot on Twitter saying, oh, you know what? This could be a a violation of of someone's privacy. They could get sued. What? No, they couldn't. It's your account. The thief does not have any expectation of privacy when they're going onto your account and withdrawing your money. You have a right to know the IP address and the Bitcoin address where your money was sent and the IP which requested that. So in conclusion, I think it's over. I think this isn't going to happen again. I think they've plugged the hole. I think they have better security procedures in place. I think they fixed whatever the issue was with the app. However, buyer beware with ACR. Proceed with caution. They're offshore. They make their own rules. There's not much you can do to them if they just say, F you, we're not giving you the money. And as you see, they weren't particularly interested in handling the situation until it was pressed on social media by yours truly. So keep that in mind. They don't want you stolen from, but they don't seem to care that much when it happens until it makes them look bad. And go take a look at the timeline, and you will see I'm right. And that's disturbing. Now, as a postscript, before we 
finish this topic and move on. Nanonoco. You probably know that name from the 2000s and 2010s. Randy Liu is his name. He was best known for playing like 24 tables at once on Poker Stars in the late 2000s, early 2010s, all day and all night, and winning. And he was known as just this crazy multi-tabler who was also very successful. And he got kind of uh, known in poker just for that. Uh, Dusty Schmidt, a.k.a. Leatherass, who has passed away, unfortunately, due to uh, various hereditary health issues, died at a young age recently. We covered that on the show. Uh, he was known for this, too. But Nanonoko was even better known for, for doing this. In fact, he still makes reference to it, even though he doesn't really do this anymore. His Twitter profile, which is Nanonoko, N-A-N-O-N-O-K-O, Nanonoko, it says, I play 24 online poker tables at once, ACR security consultant, poker commentator, Doodles Plut Clonex. I, I think those are NFTs or something. Anyway, ACR security consultant, what does that mean? Well, I think we've discussed this before. He was hired at some point not too long ago, but not super recently either, to be a security consultant for ACR. And at the time, I kind of wondered... Like, he was never someone who was vocal about poker cheating or about security of poker sites. It was kind of a weird hire. I mean, yeah, he played a ton of online poker. He played a ton of hands. I think he was the first one to make Supernova Elite back in the day. But does that really qualify him to be a security consultant for ACR? Like, what were his credentials? I don't know. Does he even have the technical credentials to do this? I don't know. I don't know that much about his background. But it's not just having the technical credentials, it's actually being willing to do the work and being willing to investigate and being willing to listen to people's stories and actually want to keep the site secure rather than make excuses for the site. So long before this situation, people have criticized Nanonoko for being dismissive every time they bring something to him. So they'll say, hey, Nanonoko, we see a bunch of people from Belarus all playing together and it seems to be bots. And if it's not bots, they're probably colluding. Uh, can you take a look into this? Can you have these people investigated? And he'll say back something like, oh, you know what? You're just being uh, xenophobic that, that all these people from Belarus, you think they have to be cheaters because they're from that area of the, of the world. <laughs> no, it's like Belarusian bots have been caught on the system many times. So it's not xenophobic to say, okay, a bunch of Belarusian players are again congregating at certain tables, uh, you should look into them more than if they were uh, from the U.S. There's nothing wrong with saying that if the small country of Belarus seems to repeatedly have offenders from there. So he didn't show that much interest in it. I know that uh, this guy Ruben, wug, 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 we've talked about him before on this show, a, a former uh, ACR Stormer, which is like the streamers that uh, were associated with ACR, he has been very critical of Nananoko. In fact, just tonight he posted uh, more complaints about Nananoko not caring about uh, alleged bots on the system. But going back to my issue with him, I tried to get him involved in this. I tried to bring his attention to this. He didn't care. He just, he was very dismissive. He never got involved. You ask any of the victims if Nananoko helped them. Ask any of the victims if he advocated for them. 
Ask them if he took them seriously. Ask them if he took steps to get this uh, refunded to them or to get this hole plugged. Because from what I can see, he did nothing. And when it was brought to him, he did not uh, give any kind of meaningful response. So what is he doing? What is he even doing as security consultant? It looks like what he does is just says, uh, hey, send this to me, I'll take a look, or hey, send this to ACR support. But we don't ever see much action from him. Like, he'll respond, but you don't get any kind of meaningful response. Like, you want to see a meaningful response, look what I did. Look, look what I did. And I, I have no insider access to ACR. I can't look at anything, obviously. I, I can just uh, report what I see and what people tell me and what people send me. But look at all the advocacy I did for these players and all the advice I gave and all the action that I pressed ACR to take, which they eventually took. So I did his job for him. I'm the one who got this all done. I'm not just trying to brag here. I mean, this is the truth. The one who solved this whole thing was me. Now, maybe Nananoko doesn't want to do this. Maybe he feels uncomfortable digging into this and finding that maybe he was an insider and then feeling awkward that he has to call out his own employer. Okay, I know some people would not want that job and then don't take it. Don't take the money. If you're going to be the public-facing security consultant for ACR, then you need to work security, not just advise people to submit forms to ACR about uh, collusion complaints or bot complaints or uh, give dismissive answers. But you need to actively look into it, actively ask people to come forward to you if they've been victimized the same way. Basically, do everything I did, but more because you have more access than I do. I don't work for ACR, and somehow I'm the one who made this happen. And that was because I cared about it and you didn't, which is weird because nobody's paying me to do this. And I didn't know any of these people personally. These were not buddies of mine. Not a single friend of mine or even friendly acquaintance of mine was victimized here. Go look it up. You can't find a single person that was known to be friendly with me or even someone who talked to me prior to this that was victimized. I just saw it happening and it looked effed up. I didn't like it. I didn't like what I was seeing. I wanted it stopped. I don't like seeing the little guys in poker getting stolen from. I don't care if you got 13K in your account. Uh, that doesn't mean you're rich. That may be, uh, you know, the people who are most vulnerable to being victimized in poker are the ones who don't have the big social media voice. If you screw over uh, Doug Polk or Daniel Negreanu, well, they've got a giant audience to go tell about it and get action taken. But if you're somebody whose name is not known, then yeah, you don't have anyone to complain to. So I want to be that guy you complain to. And I'm not a huge name by any means, but I have more of a voice than the, than the people who are total unknowns in poker, partially thanks to this show. So it annoys me when we have this public-facing security consultant who was hired to, uh, you know, probably because he's just a known name. Like, I guess they hired him because they say, hey, well, Nananoko, he played a lot of online poker and people kind of see him as like this smart Asian guy. Okay, well... You know, we're going to hire him because uh, he seems like someone who would be good to the general public. It doesn't matter what he seems like. It matters if he takes action. And I said to this Ruben guy, this wug, 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 who was complaining that, again, Nananoko is not taking things seriously this time about bots. And I don't know if wug, 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 wug is correct with what he's alleging because I haven't really looked into it. But I replied to him. I said, can you imagine if they hired the two of us to clean things up at ACR how quickly everything would change. And I believe that. 
I believe they hired Ruben. They hired me. I don't know Ruben, but yeah, I've seen him around on Twitter. He's seen me around, but like if, I, I know he cares about this botting issue there, and he's put a lot of effort into trying to expose it. Like if they hired the two of us to clean this up and gave us the proper access, can you imagine how we just completely stomp on all these bots and cheaters and colluders and just quickly put an end to all this? I don't know why they don't do this. I don't mean with me personally. I mean, hire people who will care and do the work. That's all I'm saying. Doesn't got to be me. Doesn't have to be Ruben. But hire someone who will care and do the work. Otherwise, it's just lip service. It's just for show. Just because Nananoko can play 24 tables at once doesn't mean he's good at security. This ACR withdrawal scandal, why do you think it was not covered in most of poker media? Why do you think that is? It is because ACR advertises a lot. And they also have affiliate links that are given to these poker news sites. And if they cover ACR negatively, then ACR may pull the advertising or may kick them out of the affiliate program. I'm not saying that ACR threatened any of them. To my knowledge, they did not. But these sites know where their bread is buttered, and they don't want to bite the hand that is feeding them. So I don't believe the ACR put them under any pressure, but these sites knew better than to piss off uh, a site that is giving them money every month. So this is why you should read Poker Fraud Alert and why you should listen to this show, because I don't have any affiliate deals. And I do not receive money from any poker sites other than when I play poker and win. So I will just come out there and say what I believe to be the truth. I'm not under the influence of any site to keep my mouth shut. I'm not afraid to post the truth about what's going on at any site. And you've seen that for my entire time in poker. That's why I called that Absolute Poker way back in the day. I was the first one to call out the Absolute Poker super user scandal back in 2007. And it's the same thing today. So it's always best to listen to fully independent poker media and read fully independent poker media. When I say fully independent, meaning they have no financial connections to any entity in poker. And you'll see we don't have any ads, any affiliate links, and there's a reason for that. I could have some of this stuff. I chose not to. I considered it at times. You know, who who doesn't like free money? I could have made money on this stuff. I could still make money on this stuff. I, I, I just kind of considered it. I looked into it. And I go, you know what? No, forget it. I'm just not going to do it. I've taken a few ads before, but never anything that uh, would interfere with the integrity, never been an, an affiliate, and usually it's been for things that uh, were, were unlikely to ever have any kind of issue. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the phone number to reach the show by text or by phone. From the chat room, Longhair5150 asked, question, are Poker Fraud Alert hats still going to be made? I'm down to donate so some hats can be made. That is a fine question. Kind of forgot about hats. We had hats made, I believe, in 2013. And uh, it was actually made via a friend of Trey Daruski, though not for free. I had to pay for them. But uh, Trey Daruski arranged to have them made. I think he even donated some money to have them made as well. Uh, so he, he didn't donate all the money. I paid a good deal myself as well, but I appreciate uh, everything Trey Daruski's done for this site. He's been uh, generous both with his time and money and uh, also been a good friend personally, which I've appreciated. And maybe he'll come on here when he wakes up uh, at his usual 3 or 4 a.m. 
Um, I keep thinking of having new hats made, and I just haven't done it. I mean, we, I could. It would be easiest, provided the design is still there, eight years later or nine years later, to just go have them reprint more hats the way we had them before. But I really don't have any more. I kept a few for myself, which was good because uh, the first hat I was wearing kind of just. I wore it a lot, and it kind of wasn't in the best condition, and then uh, I lost it anyway. It fell out of my car one day, and it was gone. So I went to my closet, and I saw I had, uh, like, two hats left. For, so I took the one of the two hats out of uh, the plastic and started wearing that. And I think I have one more in the closet, but it's not like I'm sitting on a big supply of hats here. I, basically, those are the ones I kept for myself. And I do want to make more, and maybe I will. I, I don't think we'll have them done for the World Series, but I guess maybe we could, though. We have more than a month. You know, I want to talk to Trader Ruski about this and see if maybe we can make some hats again. I'll also have to gauge what interest there is in, in the hats now. We will move on. There has been a lot of buzz in poker lately about two big cheating scandals involving some very big-name players and players who play at very high stakes, named you keep hearing, just winning big tournament after big tournament. And when I say big tournament, I don't mean like a 10,000-person tournament. I mean ones with gigantic buy-ins that you could probably never imagine actually putting up yourself, like $100,000 buy-in tournaments, 250k buy-in, million-dollar buy-in tournaments. I couldn't picture playing those. The type of money I would have to have to where I would feel comfortable playing that, would be way, way, way more money than I presently have. I can't just ever, I can't picture myself ever playing one of those. Like Harry Katz, who I believe is a billionaire, I understand why he plays. If I were a billionaire, I, I'd play those too. But I'm not a billionaire. I'll never be a billionaire. So I've always wondered a little bit, some of these people who play these insane high-stakes tournaments like how much money they really have, where it's all coming from, how they handle the swings. Like I've kind of wondered this. And when you look at the current leaderboard for money, for all-time money won in poker, you have to consider that a lot of this comes from buy-ins. And it has rocketed up in recent years. Before, like the leader, the all-time leader was like uh, $12 million cashed. Now $12 million doesn't get anywhere near the top. Bryn Kenny is the current leader at uh, $57.2 million, and just behind him is Justin Bonham at $51.194 million. I mean, just a few years ago, we're, we're like at the teens here, so this is really shot up. And really, this is not profit. This is just how much money you are cashing. It does not keep it, keep track in any way how much you are buying in for. So you could be a losing player and be at or near the top of this list. That's one big flaw here. So you can look at this and go, oh my God, Bryn Kenny won $57 million playing tournaments? No. Bryn Kenny cashed $57 million playing tournaments. So Bryn Kenny is, is the big high-stakes tournament guy. Now, Ali Imsurovic, he is another high-stakes player, but... He doesn't have quite what uh, Bryn Kenny does. He has uh, 18.29 million in lifetime caches, which is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, uh, 
I'm just short of a million, in case you're wondering about me. I But I don't play that many tournaments. I play at the World Series. I don't play yeah, every event by any means. I probably play like you know, nine, ten events in a typical year. Uh, none of them high-stakes events. Usually they range from... Uh, you know, around fifteen hundred or three thousand, and then I play a, a few ten Ks, and that's it. These guys are just constantly playing these super nosebleed tournaments, and obviously they rack up a lot of caches. So Ali Imservic, he also plays high stakes cash, and you may wonder, well, where do they play the high stakes cash? And online, it turns out a lot of the high stakes cash takes place on private sites. Which is crazy to me because of the type of money that is at stake, and yet people will trust to play these uh, high stakes cash games on these private sites. They'll also play sometimes on uh, more established poker sites like uh, GG Poker, for example, or Poker Stars, but you can't play these in uh, the US unless you VPN in. Uh, poker Stars is very strict about that, but GG apparently is not. But uh, we will talk about that uh, a little bit later on, about the VPNing into GG, because it has to do more with the Brent Kenny scandal. But really the first scandal regarding the high-stakes poker community that was brought out in recent times happened on April 17th, and it was brought out by Alex Foxen, who is not a stranger to controversy himself. More recently, Foxen has been controversial not because of anything poker-related, but because of his political opinions. Uh, Alex Foxen and his now-wife, Kristen Bicknell, who's also a prolific poker pro, are both very anti-vax, and they were both very public about that. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of pushback against them, and with most poker pros being uh, left-of-center politically, a lot of people were very rude and nasty to them about their takes on this. And I didn't think it was appropriate. I didn't agree with everything that Foxen and Bicknell said. And as you guys know, I I did get the vaccine. But I understood the reasoning for those who chose not to. And it was also important to note that both Foxen and Bicknell are under 40 and are healthy. So they were taking less of a risk by not getting the vaccine than someone like me who's 50. So you have to keep that in mind, too. Not everybody is in the same boat. But they were very anti-vax, and they had a lot of strong opinions about that. So a lot of people got to hate them over this. And they were both very popular players prior to that. And then after this uh, vax stuff, a lot of people got to really dislike them. And some people even blocked them because they just hated seeing these opinions so much. Foxen was best known for that recently, but not so recently He and Bicknell got in a situation where they ended up three-handed against uh, a player named Kale Burns at a uh, fairly high-stakes tournament, a live tournament. They offered Burns, when they got three-handed, to do a deal. I don't know what terms of the deal. I don't know if it was favorable to them or if it was even or what, but Burns turned it down, and then he felt that they were soft-playing each other and uh, there was one hand that was brought up, which was uh, where Foxen had pocket aces and uh, Bicknell had pocket jacks, and this is three-handed. 
and the jack came on the flop, and somehow all the money didn't get all in, despite the, fa- despite the fact that it was very late in the tournament, uh, nobody's very deep blind-wise, and you would totally expect in a spot like that, given the stacks that were there, that uh, the aces would have to stack off and lose. But somehow the aces did not stack off and lose, and it was thought that this was an intentional slow play where one did not want to bust the other, so they uh, put a lot fewer chips in than they would have if they were uh, not dating for a long time, as they were at that point. So a lot of people criticized them over this. We talked about that hand on this site. I agreed it probably was soft play. There's no way to prove it, but uh, I agree it probably was soft play. I will say that they did offer to give the guy a deal, but he shouldn't be compelled to take a deal. I would have in that spot, but he shouldn't feel compelled. And yeah, they, they probably did soft play. And sometimes people will just soft play just... I wouldn't say accidentally, but they'll, they're not going to go in with a plan, hey, we're going to soft play each other. They just have a hard time like going at someone they really care about very hard. And I think that's what happened there. And I'm not defending it. If, that, if that's what they were doing, which it kind of looks like from the hand history, it is what they were doing, then it's wrong. And it is cheating. But uh, still, it's uh, not as high on the list of uh, egregious cheating offenses as uh, many other things. So... How do I feel after that? I feel it was inappropriate, but I I feel like it's something that a lot of people would have done if they were in that same spot with their poker-playing girlfriend. It's the difference between what you should do and what people will do in a certain situation. That's what I'll say. So I I don't hold that too much against them, but I will say that Foxen can't sit there on a total pedestal and say, oh, I would never do anything wrong, because you do have that situation there. But it wasn't horrible, and aside from that, there's no other allegations that he or Kristen Bicknell have done anything wrong. So I will say that as well. So he was the one who brought this out. And I don't feel that Foxen's past, either the thing with the soft play or the, especially not his opinions on vaccination that has nothing to do with this. I don't feel any of that should disqualify him from calling out ones that he believe are cheating. And in fact, I, I give him credit for this. I it, it takes balls to come out publicly and say such and such respected poker pro who's winning a lot of money is a cheater. If you do that, number one, you're opening yourself up to a defamation lawsuit. And number two, you're putting your own rep on the line by making an allegation where if, which if it turns out not to be true, you look like a complete asshole. And maybe you're worried that the person will retaliate against you. There's ways that could be done. So you're also making an enemy that you don't presently have. It's one thing if it's someone you already hate, but if it's someone that you don't have a personal issue with and doesn't hate you, you're making a new enemy, which some people don't want to do. So I admire anyone who truly believes that cheating is taking place and comes out and says such and such person is a cheater, provided they really believe they have enough evidence to justify it. You shouldn't just fire off allegations because you have a little bit of suspicion someone's cheating because then you could be making a false allegation and that can be very damaging to an innocent person. So you got to make sure you really have it in order that you believe very strongly that person's cheating and you think you could back it up. So here's what Alex Foxen tweeted on April 17th at around 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. And this really kicked off a shitstorm. If it had not been for this series of tweets, then the next scandal about Bryn Kenny would not have happened either. At least when I say happened, I mean wouldn't have uh, become known. So here we go. One kind of inspired the other. Alex Foxen tweeted, Poker blacklists can't come soon enough. 
Ali is banned from GG for multi-accounting at RTA, which stands for real-time assistance. And I'll explain shortly what that means. I have witnessed numerous chip dumps to horses, meaning people that play under him on stakes he gives, and many suspicious changes in play from people known to be his horses when deep in online multi-table tournaments. Ali is known as a cheater to almost all in the high roller community. However, without much ironclad proof, most stay silent. So then he talks about this hand that was on a live stream, and he shows pictures of it. He tweets, Ali opens the cutoff with ace nine offsuit, ace hearts, nine of clubs. Then he quite visibly looks down at Paul Fua's whole cards, which is ace diamond and a five that's not a diamond. The actual footage makes it even more clear than the screenshot. Paul folds and Adamo, who's the third guy, defends the big blind. Ali continuation bets and gets check raised on the 642 all diamond board. Ali sticks in a three bet and wins the hand. So what he's trying to say here is that Ali was clearly looking at Paul Fua's whole cards because Paul Fua is known not to protect his hand very well and saw that Paul Fua had the ace of diamonds. So he folded that and that would have given Ali the knowledge that Adamo in the big blind did not have the ace of diamonds on a 642 all diamond board, which meant not only could he not have the nuts unless he had uh, three five of diamonds, which is very unlikely, but he also would be drawing not to the nuts because he would assume that a lot of action would mean his opponent could very well be holding the ace of diamonds. And if he hit a diamond, it would be no good. So he wouldn't put in a lot of action with just the king of diamonds, even with the king of diamonds in a pair. So Ali, knowing this, and also that a five is out, which also takes out one of the draw cards, played his no pair, no draw, ace nine hand very aggressively and three bit with nowhere to go against this flop check raise on this 642 all diamond board, which normally a check raise there would be very strong and you'd let go of any hand that has nowhere to go, like ace nine offsuit that doesn't have a draw. So the fact that Ali knew to put in a three bet and he could confidently know that Adamo did not have the Ace of Diamonds was evidence to Foxen that Ali really had looked down and seen Fua's whole cards. Then he said, the cherry on top is the next day, for the first time I've ever seen, Ali shows up in sunglasses. The whispers of this egregious whole carding must have made its way back to him. And then he showed a picture of Ali in sunglasses. Eh, that's pretty interesting. If... Ali really never had worn sunglasses before, if no one had seen him in sunglasses before, and the only time that he wore sunglasses was the day after that people were suspecting that he may have seen the whole cards. Because remember, this was on stream, so it wasn't just people at the table. Everybody was watching this who was interested in this event on Poker Go, and there was some talk about that apparently, and then it probably got back to Ali, according to Foxen, and then Ali not wanting to give up looking at people's whole cards, put on sunglasses so it's harder to see if he's doing so. So that's what Foxen was saying there. Alex goes on to say, the high-stakes community is, for the most part, extremely honorable and a group of people I consider myself lucky to associate with. This nonsense should not be tolerated and needs to be called out more often. And then he posted a list, uh, he posted a link to a poker blacklist that Party Poker had considered starting up where 
players who are known to be cheaters would be blacklisted in some way and not allowed to play in events or registered for online poker sites. I don't think such a thing is feasible. I think there's too many potential issues with this. I understand where they're going with it. It's just very hard to implement. At the time, people were kind of saying, all right, well, we kind of need more proof than this to totally condemn Imsrovic. However, others started coming forward and saying that Ali Imsrovic is kind of a bad guy. So Justin Bonomo, this is what he wrote. And of course, Justin Bonomo had his own scandal back in 06, where he was blatantly multi-accounting tournaments on PokerStars. And he's admitted to that. However, Bonomo was very young at that time. We're talking about 16 years ago. So Bonomo, I will say this for him, even though the guy has been a douche at times. He's been a douche to me personally at times. So I will say the last few years I've played with him, he's uh, he's been polite to me at the table. Uh, on Twitter, the guy is sometimes kind of pompous and condescending. Like I, I understand why a lot of people don't like Bonomo. But I will say that since his multi-accounting scandal when he was young 16 years ago, he has not been accused of any form of cheating. So I'll say that for him. He's pretty well trusted at this point as far as a poker player with integrity, even though he initially didn't have integrity when he was younger. So I will say that Bonomo is qualified to comment on this here. He said, if someone has made a mistake in the past, that does not make them a hypocrite for doing the right thing now. Yeah, he was actually talking about boxing, but um, he's uh, also referring to himself, of course. Pick any other time to call Foxen out, but let him do his thing today. It's an important message. We don't want to impede it. Here's some things I can add. Here's a link to the blog post that GG Poker made when the bans happened for these violations. So this was posted on September 30th, 2020, about a year and a half ago. And... They said that through our upgraded detection methods, we have discovered that a small group of real-time assistance users, and by the way, real-time assistance, I keep saying that, uh, if in case you're wondering what that is, that is a program you have running in the background that gives you information on what you should do. It's almost like a bot is running, except you're doing all the clicking for it. Instead of operating the poker play, you're the one actually clicking the buttons and you're the one deciding what actions to take. But the assistance program says, hey, this is what I suggest you do. This is what I think you, the optimal play is here. So it's almost like a bot. It's pretty much equivalent to botting. So they claim they caught that back in September of 2020, that through upgraded detection methods, we've discovered a small group of RTA users on GG. We have taken immediate action on those accounts and we continue to develop our processes. The measures we've taken are commensurate to the frequency and severity of RTA use. So it's interesting. They didn't uh, do the same to everybody. They're saying the most egregious offenders got the worst consequences and the ones that were just doing it occasionally uh, were only warned. So they said 13 accounts have been banned and $1.175 million have been confiscated and will be returned to players. 27 accounts have been banned with no confiscation and 40 accounts have been issued warnings. Now that's really a bit weird. Like... If you're catching someone using this enough to ban them, why are you not confiscating what they've won? I, I think it should either be ban and confiscate or do nothing. Now, maybe if you see someone do it once for a few minutes, that's when you issue a warning. But short of that, anyone who's regularly or semi-regularly using this, yeah, ban them and confiscate the money. And I don't think they're going to get much sympathy in the community. 
they can go to 2 plus 2 or Twitter or wherever and whine all they want. As soon as it comes out that they were using RTA, everyone's going to go tell them to go take a hike. Say, get lost, cheater. That's what the, in, in the politest way, that's the way it's going to be said. Probably worse than that. So basically, the community has no tolerance for cheaters who bitch about getting their money confiscated. So I don't know why they would not have confiscated the money from 27 accounts they banned. But apparently, according to Bonomo and Foxin, that one of the people banned from GG Poker for this usage of RTA was Ali Imsarovic about a year and a half ago. So Bonomo linked that. The blog does not name anyone, but they're insisting it was Ali. It probably was. Bonomo then said, I recently spoke with a trusted source about this. They told me, one, that the infractions that is related to real-time assistance range from looking at preflop charts to occasional RTA to constant and automatic RTA to full-on collusion with horses or multi-accounting who are using RTA software. Now, let me break down what he means by that because it's kind of uh, a lot of acronyms in there and some of you may not be that aware of what he means. So preflop charts, it's not like you have a little card in front of you that you just look down at to figure out what to do preflop. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not what he's talking about here. A preflop chart is really a misnomer. What a chart really is, is a gigantic database of if you're in such and such situation and then such and such happens to you and your stack is such and such, then do this. So if you were to print out this chart, it would probably be like a thousand football fields to print this out and, and lay it down on the ground. I'm not even kidding. Like it, It's so big you could never print it. So they call it a chart because uh, technically it is one, but something that's so big that you couldn't print it without taking an extraordinary amount of room. There would be uh, you know, a thousand square miles or something of, of, of space if you printed it. That is not a chart. So they call it a chart so it sounds better because... Really, initially, there were poker charts, very simple ones for beginners that say, okay, well, if you have jack jack through ace-ace in your hand and someone raises in three bets, then four bet. Uh, if you have uh, sevens through tens, uh, then call a raise, but don't call a three bet. Like it, It'll be very simple charts for total beginners to the game that explain when to raise, when to re-raise, when to call. That's the type of actual charts you can print and have on your desk. But this is not a chart. This is something very, 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 very extensive that operates like a bot. Again, just you're the one who's uh, doing the clicking. So that's what he means by preflop charts. Then he says to occasional RTA, meaning like someone's using a real-time assistance program guiding them what to do, but only occasionally, to constant and automatic RTA, which is actually botting. I mean, automatic RTA basically is a bot is playing for you. But also using RTA and doing the mouse movements yourself, that's not automatic, but it's still uh, constant usage of it. It's it's equivalent to botting. And then the worst, he says, is the full-on collusion with people playing under you, who you're staking, where you're sharing whole cards, and you're also colluding to, to win more hands than you should, and playing together, both sharing information and uh, also trying to force players out of hands when you're in together. So uh, he said these people were also using real-time assistance on top of that. So he said those are the worst ones that got the confiscation. And then the ones who were just using the charts or occasionally using RTA, uh, they got the warnings. So I think this wasn't harsh enough, to be honest. So he says, I was told A, referring to Ali, 
was the number two biggest offender of all of this, while someone whose first name is starts with the letters J.A., which was later revealed to be Jake Schindler, another high-stakes poker pro, was by far the biggest. Number three, I lost in these games where I believe it was going on. How much does Bonomo claim to have lost in these games? One million dollars. Yeah. He said he lost a million dollars in those games. He says, feels bad, man. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> it feels pretty bad to lose a million bucks. That's all going on. Number four, I'm told the evidence goes far beyond hand histories and is completely irrefutable. I've not personally seen it, but I trust the source. You may wonder, what does he mean by that? Evidence going far beyond hand history. Hmm. That can mean a lot of things. And some were speculating that GG Poker is very intrusive and is looking at people's screens. And maybe they can even see you watching all kinds of freaky porn in the background as you play. Is that true? We're going to discuss that a little bit later because that also came up in the next scandal involving Bryn Kenny. And that discussion came up. It was brought up by uh, Doug Polk later on on Twitter. So I'm going to give you my opinion on that. But there's other ways they can have evidence that is irrefutable that doesn't just involve hand histories. It can involve uh, Skype logs. It can involve processes that are found running on the computer. It can involve witnesses. It can involve a combination of all these things where there's just too much altogether that there's no way the guy could be innocent. So anyway, that's what uh, Bonomo claims he was told. There's, there's so much evidence against both Ali and Jake that it's not even a matter of suspicion at this point that he's claiming that he was told by a trusted source that there was tons of evidence against these guys, and that's why they were banned. He goes on to write, apparently some people saw the Jake Schindler thing and are wondering if this was Jason Kuhn. I didn't think this would need clarifying, but no, Jason was not involved in all. The reason he's talking about that is that, remember, he talked about J.A., and that, of course, could be Jason Kuhn, who's another high-stakes player whose name starts with J.A., but he's insisting that uh, it just happens to be the first two letters of the name, and that, no, Jason's not involved at all, so don't blame Jason Kuhn. And he said, if someone still plays on GG Poker under their real name, as Jason Kuhn does, you know it wasn't them, because... The people who did this were banned, and Jason Kuhn is not banned. And I believe him. I believe Jason Kuhn doesn't have anything to do with this. Kale Burns. Remember, uh, he was the one who was uh, stuck playing three-handed with Foxen and Bicknell. He spoke out about this on April 20th. My comments about never being best friends with Alex Foxen have zero to do with his political or COVID opinions. I couldn't give a fuck. Arguing about that stuff on Twitter seems like an awful use of everyone's time. The focal point was, despite not being close, I fully agree with his stance on a potential blacklist and stamping out cheaters. Since everyone keeps asking yes, it's, be- believe, uh, it's because I believe that he and uh, Chris and Bicknell soft-played me three-handed. I'm aware I'm probably a naive moron for not taking a deal, and it's an awkward situation for them that not many people will ever be able to relate to. My logic at the time was I'd be protected by the live stream, because it was a live-streamed event. If they do anything funny, this will, ever for- this will forever tarnish their reps. I think that has happened now. To be honest, I haven't spoken about this really publicly the whole time. I asked them to go to arbitration originally. They denied claiming the whole high-stakes community is biased against us because we're new and crushing. I don't hold any malice towards either of them. I don't really think about it. I've kissed the money goodbye like a losing betting slip. That being said, I believe they deserve a chance to clear their name, and I probably deserve a fair look into it as well. There's four hours of footage from the Venetian where I personally believe the 
Pocket Ace's hand is the tip of the iceberg. I hereby offer Chrissy and Alex a chance to go to arbitration by a mutually decided group of the fairest, most trusted people in the community. If they've decided to, they've done nothing wrong, I will own that and think that everyone else should stop mentioning it. If they have decided to have soft played or played in a way where they were playing as a team, I think an equity fine is fair. I don't care about the money. It's the principle. If you want to preach accountability, you have to practice it. I could donate 100% of whatever fine is levied against them to Dan Smith's charity, the Double Up Drive. They can also side bet large amounts on the side so they aren't getting reverse free rolled. To end this, I was sick of being asked the same questions. I don't really care to talk about this again. Whether they accept it or not, I doubt they will. I try to focus on the things in my life I can control and not overspilt milk. So he's focusing more on the thing with Foxen years ago where he still feels like he got screwed. He's trying to suggest that maybe they go to arbitration about this and then he'll even donate whatever is awarded to him to charity. He doesn't really want to talk about the allegations about Ali Imservic, but he is saying that Foxen does have a right to bring it up and also that he's just sick of talking about it. So he's saying he really hopes that they'll finally address this now that they're more in the spotlight again, but that they also should have the right to bring this up. And he does feel there should be a cheating blacklist and he thinks they should be on it too. <laughs> a little side note there I threw in there. But uh, back to this uh, scandal with Ali. Chance Corn Youth. This was uh, an idea about the blacklist. He said, we as the poker community have accepted the poker site's decisions not to de- expose the cheaters for too long. The perpetrators are directly stealing money from the rest of us. Enough is enough. It's time for a thread. When a poker site decides conclusively that someone's cheating, they ban them, keep their identity a secret, and disperse the money as they see fit. The current system that's in place is inadequate and unacceptable. We need a poker blacklist. So he's annoyed here that Ali Imservic and Jake Schindler supposedly got banned from GG a year and a half ago and kept good standing in the poker community because no one was allowed to know that they were among those who were banned. And he's saying, we need to blacklist where as soon as this happens that these people are put on some kind of list and they can't continue playing. He went on to say, multi-accounting and using real-time assistance makes losing over a large sample size extremely unlikely. So having their funds confiscated is basically a free roll. Not being outed and still being allowed to play on other sites has problems as well. See, what he's saying here is, if all they do is ban you, but you keep withdrawing in the meantime until they catch you, Overall, you're probably going to end up ahead even if they confiscate your money at the end, which is probably right. He goes on to say, what if you're playing against them heads up on a different site and unbeknownst to you, they're using RTA? What about playing with them live and being friendly or even actual friends without knowing they've cheated you online? People who gain an unfair advantage on a poker site are only prohibited from playing on that site and nothing else happens. There needs to be some kind of committee that determines if their actions are eligible for a poker blacklist. And then he talks to Rob Young, who's involved with Party Poker, that had originally proposed this blacklist a while back. He said, Rob Young made a good point. What about those who you find later weren't actually cheating? I have heard from reliable sources that GG Poker has the ability to record our screen during sessions. So the evidence they have of these transgressions is beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I'll get to that in a second, because a lot of talk about the recording of the screen. I've seen multiple sources that say there are hundreds of these accounts and players on GG that were banned, but only the two that I personally know for sure are Jake Schindler and Ali Imservic. 
Making matters worse, these are supposed to be two of the heroes in the poker world, which is true. Both of these guys had good reps prior to this being brought out by Foxen. Prior to April 17th, you ask people, what do you think of Jake Schindler and Ali Amsterdam? And most people would say, yeah, they seem like decent guys who are really good at poker and win at high stakes. That's what just about everybody would say, except for those who had heard these whispers about them cheating but never came public. So now he's saying, look, we, we should have known this a long time ago. Both are idolized by countless people in our space, from young pros trying to make it to recreational players who just wish they could be as good as these guys. Speaking of young pros trying to make it, what if a reason no one knew has exploded on the scene lately is because so many players like Ali and Jake are cheating them in the bigger stakes tournaments online using RTA and multiple accounts? Okay, let me stop there. That, I don't believe that. The reason we're not seeing a lot of young people in poker these days, the reason poker is getting old, is because the poker boom is now years behind us. It was really Black Friday that put it in. First, it was the net teller thing, making it harder to uh, deposit and cash out. But really, the kick in the ass was Black Friday in 2011. So now we've had 11 years since Black Friday. And everybody's gotten 11 years older, and we have not gotten that many young players into online poker. Because the model was, in the early 2000s, that young players would deposit onto sites like PokerStars, and most of them would go bust, but a very small percentage of them would naturally have a, an aptitude for winning at poker and would get very good and would rise up and then would become a major player in the poker scene because there were so many of them that a, even a small percentage of them rising up to become top poker pros still yielded a lot of new players, a lot of new young hotshot pros. But we don't have that anymore. It's not easy to put money online. And poker does not have as much popularity as it did in the 2000s when it was a fad. So college kids are not desiring to play online poker as much. Also, the rise of social media since then, which kind of was around the same time as uh, Black Friday, has given college kids more to do than sit around playing online poker. They've got other interests between the the video games that a lot of uh, young people play now and the social media, their, their time is taken up with that. And they have less interest in online poker. So th- those are all the factors why young people are not playing and why poker is getting older and why you just don't see that many young players rising through the ranks anymore. Remember, it takes money to make money. So these young players don't have a bankroll. And if they're not getting online in the first place to run it up, even if they have talent, they're never going to have the bankroll at that age to do it. And they're not going to be able to become as good playing on playing live only when they do have a bankroll because you can't get as many hands in. So that's the real reason we're not seeing young pros rising up the way we used to. In general, don't like when people say, oh, the reason we're not seeing this demographic is because of this. And then they cite some scandal or some way people are being treated. No, it's like the same argument of we don't see many women in poker because women get treated badly at the table. No, that's not why. That might be the reason some women have stopped playing, but the truth is far, far more men are interested in poker than women. I think it's just a a natural interest that women don't have as much as men do. There's some outlier women who are really into poker, but men are far more likely to be into it. It's kind of like the same question of why don't we see as many uh, female sports fans as male sports fans? Are there female sports fans? Oh, definitely. But how many people do you see 
that are big sports fans that are female compared to male. I mean, way more male, right? I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And I think it's just uh, inherent differences in the sexes, which nobody likes to talk about these days because it's considered uh, transphobic or whatever, but uh, it's the truth. You know, there are, there are actual differences in the male brain and female brain, and I think some of those differences account for why males are more attracted to playing poker. So I don't think it has to do with people seeing these cheating scandals. Now, what this does have to do with, though, is it scares people away from playing online. It makes people who played online not want to do it, or people considering playing online not do it. So this does hurt online poker. I'm not talking about young kids who might get into online poker. I'm talking about existing people in the poker world that play live. They go, you know, it'd be cool to play online. Oh, no, 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 no. It's full of cheating and real-time assistance. Nope, nope, never mind. Won't do it. Because you've already got to trust online poker in the first place that the random number generator is fine, which I, I think it is in just about all cases. I don't think there's ever been one of these cracked in the last 20 years. So I, I don't think the random number generator is a problem, despite what all the conspiracy theorists say. But you have to trust that the site is not rigging it in any way, that there's no super using going on. There's a lot of things you have to trust when you play online poker. And when you go on a downswing, then you always have to start wondering, is this really a fair game? So if on top of that, you have colluders and botters and people using those RTA programs that are up against you and crushing you, and it's not even the site itself cheating, but it's uh, players on the site who are cheating that the site is not kicking off or detecting, that's a whole additional problem that you have to worry about. And that's what's scaring people. Anyway, he goes on to say, to those of you that say, show me the hardcore evidence of these accusations being true, I shouldn't have to just use your brain. I'm not sure what he means by that. I think he's saying I shouldn't have to show you. You should just use your brain. If these accusations about being banned for this weren't true, Jake and Ali would just refute the claims and show proof. Now, that's a good point. The silence from Jake Schindler and Ali Imsrovic has been deafening. Because if you have not been colluding, if you have not been using RTA, if you've not been cheating, and a high-profile player like Alex Foxen comes out and says you've been doing this, and then everyone hears about it, of course, because it becomes a big story, because someone well-known like Foxen comes out and says it, and everyone pays attention to the story, wouldn't you think that he would want to defend himself? Can you think of anybody that would just say, you know, it's better to say nothing. I I didn't do it. I've been totally honest. I've never used RTA. I've been a salt of the earth, good-hearted poker player, and this jerk Foxen's making this up. But you know what? I'm just going to stay silent and let everybody think this of me. No. It's human nature to want to shout from the mountaintops when you are innocent. So if you did not do these things, then you will say, Alex Foxen, I didn't do this. You can't prove I did it. You can't show any evidence I did because I didn't. And in fact, I want the hand histories analyzed. I want GG Poker to make a statement that I'm not banned. Or uh, even if I was banned, I want them to show the proof that I did anything wrong. Go ahead, GG. Post all my hand histories. I want it seen. That's what he would have said if he didn't do it. But he's saying nothing, and that's very suspicious. And same with Jake Schindler. So that's that's a good point. And I've noticed that a lot, too. That when there's an allegation made and then the person who is being accused goes quiet, when you'd expect they defend themselves if they were innocent, then you really have to wonder 
why they are staying quiet. If you take a look at uh, Jake Schindler's Twitter, by the way, nothing since April 15th. He wasn't a huge tweeter, but he did tweet sometimes. Like He tweeted on uh, March 29th, for example. Nothing, even though he and Ali have been accused of some pretty bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Why would they say nothing? That's not proof, but it's uh, it's something to think about, isn't it? Something big to think about. Chance went on to write, Should players who marked cards at the World Series be allowed to play online? Should players who cheated online be allowed to play the World Series and compete for the most coveted prize? I firmly believe the answer is no, and that's why we need a poker blacklist and a company committee. It is heroic to be the first person public about this, Alex Fox, and props to you. I also applaud Matt Berkey, Justin Bonomo, Kelly Burns, and many others for quickly being outspoken and backing up Alex's accusations. Kelly Burns wasn't quite backing him up. He was more bashing Fox in and saying we need to revisit the situation with the soft play. But yeah, Alex can bring this out. That's fine. He does have a right to do that. For those of you who have been following since Alex posted it, don't focus on the whole carding, which I firmly believe is is accurate that Ali saw Paul's cards, referring to the ace-five hand, and wore sunglasses the next day when he saw it obviously looked on stream. This is just a straw that broke the camel's back. RTA users and multi-accounting have been a dirty little secret of the high-stakes community for too long, and light is finally being shed on a public forum. I challenge Phil Galfond, who has been the white knight in our community, to help bring about positive change partly because it might be the only Galfan challenge I can beat him in, but mostly because he is one of the biggest names in poker, owns arguably the highest integrity poker site. Wait, wait, hold on. Phil Galfond owns the highest integrity poker site? (laughs) (laughs) He owned the deadest poker site. He owned the poker site that ignored the will of the players more than any other poker site I've seen. He owned the poker site that was managed the worst of any site I've seen, aside from the ones that were outright scams. His site was not a scam site. It was just managed horribly and was a ghost town because they didn't know what people wanted and wouldn't listen to the people and eventually shut down. So I wouldn't say he owns arguably the highest integrity poker site. It's not even up anymore. It failed. I mean, it went up not too long after GG went up and it flopped while GG did really well. So that that's not a good thing to hold up in... Galfon's favor. I mean, yeah, Galfon seems like a nice guy, and he has integrity. He's never been part of a scandal. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I agree with that stuff, but I wouldn't cite uh, his run-at-once poker site as evidence that we should listen to him. That's that's why we shouldn't listen to him. That's something we should just ignore. You should say, well, despite the fact that he ran a fail site and didn't listen to anybody, and had the opportunity to run something that would have high integrity, but was too arrogant and wouldn't listen to what the people wanted, and the whole thing flopped horribly and lost a ton of money instead of you know let's just ignore that because it was just a misstep by him but it wasn't anything that was unethical and let's look at all the good galfon's done for the community and trust him i can be on board with that owns the highest integrity poker site and has been rightfully been looked up to by many including myself since i started playing poker 15 years ago when phil talks the poker community listens Rob Young and the party poker head of Game Integrity helped fan this flame in a recent tweet about a poker blacklist. Based upon Rob's recent tweets, it really seems to me they do care about us. Will will they be the heroes we need and deserve? 
I'd like to see Gigi Poker and their ambassador Jason Kuhn, who was brought on specifically to serve a major role in game integrity, take the lead because Gigi is the only site that I believe with zero doubt in my mind has 100% irrefutable evidence. That is evidence about this cheating by uh, those two and other people we don't even know about. By the way, has uh, Jason Kuhn taken the lead? No. Has he done anything regarding this? No. He's just, he's just ignored it. So, again, nothing against Jason Kuhn. From everything I hear, he's a good guy. I don't really know him, but uh, you know, people like the guy. He's a great poker player. Um, nothing against him personally, but again, when you're brought on as a public face of a site that is supposed to be there for game integrity or security, and then you keep your mouth shut when something like this happens, uh, th- then you're not doing what you're promising the community you'll be doing. The whole reason to have a high-profile name like that there for game integrity is that you feel this person could protect you. And when that person seems to want to protect the site more, then you see that their loyalty lies with their employer and not with the community. And again, not everybody would want that job. Not everybody would want to have to make that decision. But that's why anyone who takes that position should be willing to and make the site aware that they're willing to call out wrongdoing, whether it makes the site look bad or not. And if I were appointed to such a position and paid for it, whatever, uh, I would say to the site, okay, I'll only take this job if I can be honest. So if you guys mess up, I've got to be able to say it. And if they say no, which they probably would, then I'd say don't hire me. I would not take this job and then not be accessible or not have comments when big scandals occur. So Jason Kuhn really should say something here, and he hasn't. And that's, again, something one should take note of. Not quite as bad as Nananoko, because... I don't believe GG Poker is involved in... I don't think anyone working for GG Poker is involved in any of this uh, cheating. And they did kick people off. So I don't think it's as bad that Kuhn's not commenting. But he still should. I mean, he's there for game integrity. There's a lot of discussion about lack of game integrity there. And about a blacklist and about publicizing these names. And we should get a comment from him. Why don't we? Because he's on the payroll. That's why. I have no idea why we as a community accept cheaters the way we do. I am personally guilty of still being friendly with Jake and Ali in the PokerGo studio instead of shunning them for stealing from us for years. I firmly believe the majority of high-stakes pros have been aware of this for a long time and stayed quiet because we're non-confrontational and typically leaning towards the introverted side of the spectrum. Totally true. Totally true. A lot of poker pros, a lot of these high-stakes pros are not very brash, confrontational guys. Sometimes on Twitter they are, but in person they're not. In person they're kind of afraid to speak out. And in person they they don't want to ruffle feathers. They don't want to create controversy. They don't want to get in people's faces. So they see someone there they think has cheated in these games. They're like, "Uh, you know, I don't really like this person, but I'll just just be fake friendly to them. So he's saying we got to stop doing that. He says, now that it's out in the open, I hope and believe more and more people like myself will have the courage to come forward. So he's even blaming himself for being too nice to these guys when he had these suspicions about them, and that many others did. I still fear that the major most trusted sites like GG Poker Party and PokerStars won't do what needs to be done unless we as a community come together to force change. For the most part, these sites only care about their bottom line and nothing will happen until they see their rate declining. For that reason, I won't play another hand on these sites until I feel an acceptable effort has been made. I encourage pros and Rex alike to join me in this online poker boycott. (laughs) (sighs) 
that where you were going with this chance? I mean, your heart's in the right place. I'll give you that. But online poker boycotts don't work. We saw that years ago with the Supernova Elite fiasco on PokerStars, where, yes, the Supernova Elites on PokerStars got screwed. I agree. And there was a boycott that was organized, and it was a complete failure. It was like a drop in the bucket of the rake that uh, was collected on PokerStars. So PokerStars didn't care. They laughed at it. Why would they care if a group of people generating a tiny percentage of the rake on the site and beating fish for a lot of money, beating their fish for a lot of money, why would they be sad if these players left and stopped playing? Why would this bother them? Why would this pressure them? It wouldn't, okay? So you're never going to get enough people to participate in an online poker boycott to where it will become effective. Never. So really the only way that you can make an impact is by hassling them on social media, by getting enough influential voices to keep hammering the message over and over that a change has got to happen and that there's cheating and that not enough is being done and we need to get these people out of the community. We need the poker sites to cooperate. And if you don't, then you're kind of complicit in it away and just keep pressing, pressing, pressing to where these sites will fear that if there's enough ongoing publicity in this way that it's not safe to play there, that they have to take action in order to make it seem like it is safe to play there. That's, in fact, why ACR briefly was banning bots when there was enough outrage about that some time ago, when uh, Joey Ingram pressed that matter very hard. So if you press the matter very hard for enough time, and you have enough views, you have enough eyeballs seeing it, then the sites will react. A boycott? No. Boycott's never going to work. Also, there's a second problem, and Rob Young himself brought this up. Rob Young said, good thread, but the sites are handcuffed by the GDPR, which is involving sharing customer data in Europe, and face up to 4% of their their annual revenues as a fine for breaching that. Knowing that, impossible under the current law to share names of banned players, what would you propose to reduce cheating? That's a good point. That's a very good point that uh, the EU, the European Union, has something called the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, and that has to do with the way companies handle their customers' personal info. And I wish we had something like this in the U.S. We really need a GDPR in the U.S. because you have no idea how much your personal info is being traded around by companies and abused for profit. You have no idea. It's worse than you think, I promise you that. And I've said this for many years, many, many years. So uh, props to the EU. I'm not, I'm not usually a big fan of the way Europe does things, but I'm a big fan of their consumer protection laws and their privacy laws, much better than the U.S. The U.S. should emulate Europe on that. Not much else, but on that. So thumbs up to Europe for the way they handle that. But the one problem here, there is a side effect to this, unfortunately, and that is that, unfortunately, the sites would be violating the GDPR. So Party Poker is not a gray market site. They are operating legally in the jurisdictions where they operate. That's why you can't play there in the U.S. That's why you can't play on GG in the U.S. So these sites have to comply with the laws of where they operate, and they operate in Europe. And Europe says that you cannot give out customer information and you can't just say, well, but they're cheaters and we can prove they're cheaters. We're giving it out. It's not like that. The the GDPR does seem to prohibit that. So I don't know how 
you would deal with that. I, I don't even have an answer to that, but that's that's why it's not quite so simple. That's why that's one of many reasons this poker blacklist wouldn't work. You also have to be careful that there's not abuse, because there are cliques in poker. There are people who don't like each other in poker. And what if you just personally dislike someone and you're very influential and you decide you want to shut them out of poker forever? So you you get a few buddies to make up a cheating story about them where they didn't really cheat, and they all back it, and then they get put on the blacklist and they're gone. That's one problem. You would I mean it's a very bad thing if even one person gets shut out of poker erroneously for this. Another is that uh, how far back does it go? So should we shut out Howard Lederer and Chris Ferguson from poker because of their actions with full tilt and how all, all our money was stolen? What about people who knowingly represented sites that were scam sites like Prahlad Friedman and Joe Seabach? I know Joe doesn't really play anymore, but Prahlad does. Like, should they be banned? And regardless of what you think of them, you may dislike Prahlad and, and want to see him banned and want to laugh at him about that. But, you know, these these are good questions. Like, do these people actually deserve a ban? What offenses qualify for a ban? Like, I, as much as I have an issue with Prahlad, I don't think he should actually be banned. I think he was just, uh, um, he was greedy. He was hypocritical. He's the ultimate limousine liberal. The guy's a clown. But uh, he didn't actually cheat. He just kind of uh, had very, very, very willful ignorance to a company's cheating and promoted them after that and claimed it's all okay. But I don't think he should be banned from poker for it. But you're going to have to draw a line somewhere. What if someone was caught cheating in 1996, but they've been playing honestly since then? What about Justin Bonomo? He was caught cheating in 06, and he admitted it. He was blatantly multi-accounting tournaments. Should he be banned? If you say no, well, then what about someone caught in 2012, 2016? What is the statute of limitations on this? Like, there's a lot you'd have to think of. It's, it's not so simple to just say, let's ban all cheaters. Now, if we could get God himself to come down and give us a list of who is a cheater in poker and who is not, who plays an honest game and who doesn't, and blacklist those who are the cheaters, great. But we're not going to get that. We have to determine it on our own. And... We have to be careful about false positives because that would be a disaster if people are banned from poker that should not be. Now, there is some uh, related damage from this scandal. Lynn G, that's L-Y-N-N-E, last name J-I, Lynn G. She's a youngish Asian girl in the poker community. She's at Hello It's Lynn, L-Y-N-N-E on Twitter. If you'd like to see her uh, mostly nude, you can go to her Twitter. It's up there right now. She posted it. I'm not saying people stole nudes of her. She's, she's voluntarily posting it and even discussing having it only fans. I'm not even kidding. But she really took it on the chin here because she tweeted that cheating isn't that bad in poker as long as you're not planning on staying in the community long term. <laughs> She posted something along the lines of, well, you know, it's human nature to try to get the most for yourself, to want to win the maximum. So as long as you're not planning to stick around and don't care about your rep, I understand why people cheat. And people are like, what? <laughs> so 
she was arguing that, uh, you know, in some cases, the cheating shouldn't be that bad, that just everyone's going to do it, so let's just accept that. So people did not like that, especially coming from someone who's relatively new to the community. And she then tweeted, and I only have this because I was able to grab it from the cache of an old browser I had up, otherwise this would have been gone too, because she deleted everything. But she tweeted, is it fun to sit around spreading shit you don't know to be true about people that you haven't met in a domain you don't inhabit or play any measurable role in? So she said, I have a lot of thoughts on the Ali and Jake situation. One, most of this shit isn't news. Everyone that plays high stakes is or is on the periphery of people who already knew. And two, a bunch of it isn't true. I think a lot of people have sacrificed truth for the sake of entertainment. It's fun to say shit. I get it. Three, think this shit annoys me more because I've been on the receiving end of mudslinging. It's not particularly fun. And four, bonus, it pisses me off that I've noticed a lot of people in poker will talk shit about a lot more people than they'll stand up for. What? What? She is going off about this whole thing that some of this isn't true. A bunch of it isn't true. What what isn't true? Tell us. I mean, it it sounds like it's true to me. And that uh, people already knew anyway, and that people just enjoy talking trash. And that's the reason this is all happening. So as you can imagine, there was not a lot of love for her there. And uh, a lot of people laid into her pretty hard. And then uh, Katie Stone, in reference to the other tweet that she made, that I can't read you because it's gone, as is the one I just read you. I just happened to grab it. So Lynn then wiped her entire Twitter, just wiped it all when she got all the backlash. And then she put up on her profile that she's going to go back to posting nudes. And I thought it was a joke. Nope. That's actually what she's doing now. That's what's on her Hello, It's Lynn Twitter. I guess that's the way she's going now. And she still has a YouTube channel. If you go on YouTube and type Lynn G-J-I, and Lynn is spelled L-Y-N-N-E, or I think you can even type in Hello, It's Lynn, and you can find uh, YouTube videos of her, just kind of like playing poker and talking about poker. Or you can go to her Twitter if you want to see the nudes. But that's what she's converted to (laughs) now that... People are angry at her. It's funny when people do that and then they just wipe their whole Twitter because they just don't want anything they said in the past to be used to show they're a hypocrite. That's a little side situation here. As I said, no response from Ali or Jake here. I think there's a good chance they really were banned from GG Poker for this stuff and uh, there's a good chance that Foxen's right and that they're afraid to respond because people are going to say, okay, well... Get, let's see the proof. Present your hand histories. Let's let's see it. Give permission for the stuff to be released, and they'll go. Uh, nope. <laughs> I wonder if these guys are going to show up to the World Series, and how they'll be received. Now you may say, "Oh, there's no way they'll show their face." Well, Howard Letter showed his face. Chris Ferguson showed his showed his face, and look, even Russ Hamilton, he hasn't been at the World Series. In fact, I think he may be banned, but he does uh, show up at card rooms sometimes, and. Somehow nothing happens. So I think Twitter outrage is a lot stronger than what people will actually do if someone shows up in person who is an accused cheater. Matt the Rat, hello. Yeah. Um, 
I guess uh, you said you got a new computer. It's not working right or something? No, I, my computer broke, and I, I'm on a borrowed computer, so that's why i uh, got to get these settings right for phone calls and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So you're kind of the guinea pig here. Oh, no problem. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, I forgot the show was on tonight and just called in before I'm going to bed here. Um, have you covered the Founders card? Um, no, I haven't, but uh, it's a pain in the ass, is the, is the cliff notes. It's that uh, it, they're, they're backed up right now with people applying for it. And they oh, have this. Oh, yeah, probably because of the kind of post COVID calm down, everybody's looking to travel. Well, it's, it's more because of the Wyndham status match doesn't work anymore. So now everybody's like, okay, well, we'll go to plan B, the founder's card, to get Diamond. And then they have a gigantic backlog to process, and they oh, you, you don't okay. get very much information from them when you call them. They're just like, well, I mean, we're still processing it. So uh, when I know more, I'll let people know if that's a viable option I, still. And I was just going to quickly tell you what I did. Now, before I get into that, when you like, if you got, say, Caesar's Diamond right now, is it it's good through this year and then until, um, like, the end of January next year, right? No, it's well, okay. Through the Founders card, it would be through the end of January 2023. If you earned yes. it normally, you're through the end of January 2024. Okay. Though, so, though if you're still a Founders but, member at that point, you can renew it. So that's that's something else to consider. So, but you, even if let's say you had a Founders card now, and you're good until the end of January next year, if your Founders card ran out, I think you're still a, a diamond. Until the end of no, January. you're not. But what? But if your founders card ran out in like in April, then as long as you renewed the match before April, then you could get it again. Okay. So so what what I did is because of the uh, PFA, I actually got it first in May of 2020. Just kind of as well after kind of COVID had started really going, um, and what I did is. I would have got it a bit earlier, but I did the thing where you sign up for the free trial, you let it, it you know, go, and you don't sign up for the main thing. I think it is normally five hundred, and then they, or four ninety nine. They go, okay, we'll give it to you for three ninety nine, uh, regularly, and then if you don't continue on after the free trial, they contact you and they keep following up, and the longer you wait, the better the price you get. Unfortunately, that's all changed. See, that that was the oh. way to do it back in 2020. Nowadays, they're they're slammed with so many applications. They've they done care. away with they've done away with the discounts. They they uh, they're not begging people to come oh. back. It's, it's just a a lot has changed this year because of the being inundated with applications. So yeah, uh, everything you knew before is out the window. One ninety five the first year, and then. That was May of 2020, and then it um, elapsed, and they contacted me, and I said, well, because of COVID, I didn't even use it. And then, oh, yeah, we can give you a good deal. And so I just – I kept, like, ignoring the emails until February of this year. Um, I w- it was looking – you know, things were looking better. So they said, we can give it to you for, um, I think, uh, the great price of 299 or 295 I said, no, I'll do it for 195 And they actually came back and said yes. Yeah, that was uh, just before they, they had the big yes. influx. Because what happens in yeah. February, uh, people applied for the status match with Wyndham and expected to get Diamond for free that way. And then it was only a few weeks later when people started to realize it wasn't happening. And then it still wasn't until March when it was it got around that it was a hard no that everybody's just not getting it unless they 
earn their Wyndham status by staying at Wyndham a ton of times, which was only a small percentage of the people. So, bottom oh, line is, good. very few people got to manage to Wyndham to got to match through Wyndham, and then they turned to Founders Card next. So Founders is like, oh wow, why do we have so many applications now? Well, okay, well, so much for the deals we're going to offer. So yeah, I, it sounds like I just got in under the wire. You did like. And I I got a really good price. Like I said, one ninety five. It's gonna pay for itself more in in one trip. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, like it's it's too bad that's the way it is because like I said, if if you just wait a long time and you you can almost barter with them, they're like okay. And I said, you know, because of COVID, I can't do anything. And then now it's turning around, and I got it for one ninety five, which normally the, I think the isn't the normal price five hundred or no, it's now six hundred. It it's six hundred now. Six hundred. Six hundred plus a ninety five dollar application fee, and oh, there's some God. quote discount sites now that can give you the no application fee in five hundred. That's the big discount now. So it's it's very much changed, and I I have a feeling what they might be doing is they might be taking in all these applications and kind of. Uh, maybe even sorting them by the deals that people are getting. So I'm, I'm just guessing, but maybe the people who are just applying to pay 600 plus the application fee are getting priority. I don't know. But for whatever reason, that it's just been all stopped up, and I have no idea what's happening. So you, you would basically have to stay in Las Vegas for like two weeks for it to pay itself off with the, with the no, um, what do you call that? The, um, if he paid six hundred, yes. If if it was it was five hundred, it'd be about uh, yeah ten days. But yeah, yeah. It's it's uh it's it's frustrating how that all just changed this year. So I to be honest, you know, I haven't even looked at the other benefits. They kept saying, "Oh, we have more benefits than just diamond." I'm like, "Ah, oh, that's all." I'm yeah, they're not that exciting. There's they're not not that great. You could probably find those deals yourself if you looked hard enough. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, yeah. Okay then. That was it. Th- thanks, Matt. That's uh. I'll keep everybody updated on this as as it goes on. Okay, good luck. Thank you. Moving on to the bigger of the two cheating scandals. If you thought the Ali Imservic one was a big deal, because this this was that was like a winning player of the year awards. I mean, this was a, a very very successful poker pro that people looked up to, as Chance Cornuth said in his tweets. And to hear that he and Jake Schindler, another successful high stakes pro were accused of, of this serious cheating in all these different ways and banned from GG a year and a half ago and then accused of still cheating these days. I mean, that, that's uh, really leaving a big black eye on the current high-stakes poker world and poker in general and online poker in general. But this inspired somebody else to come forward when he saw Alex Foxen coming forward and saw that Alex Foxen mostly got a positive response to having done this, even the people who didn't like him because of his COVID views or his soft-playing allegations. Uh, Even people who didn't like Foxen for that reason were praising him for the most part. So this other guy, who was much lesser known than Foxen, in fact, I didn't really know who he was until he came forward here, decided that he's going to come forward with a story of his own about cheating by a very well-known high-stakes poker pro, someone even better known than Ali Imsrevic. The guy who came forward, his name is Martin Zamani. I think he's like 26 years old, but he's been in poker for several years. He tweeted the following on April 21st, and boy, this caught fire immediately. Now remember, I told you earlier in the show that Bryn Kenny is the all-time cash leader in tournaments. Doesn't mean he's made the most money in tournaments, but as far as total caches he's made playing tournaments, he's 57.2 million in caches 
and he's the all-time leader, very slightly ahead of Bonomo. So here's what Martin Zamani tweeted. Since we are in the midst of calling out cheaters, Bryn Kenny and all of his horses, remember the horses being people he's staking, are basically forced to collude on GG Poker, especially in satellites. Do what's best for the team, he would say. He wouldn't let me play GG $5,000 PLO events on my account, but on party, I could play 10,000 events if if said horse ghost was. And it's a little bit unclear there, but don't worry. This will clear up a lot as you hear more of this story. There was a specific time me and his horse were on the same table in a 10K PLO 6 max on party, and he played both accounts, referring to Bryn. Or, or sorry, referring to Bryn's horse. Any type of arguing with Bryn would be faced with gaslighting that I'm not open-minded and he's trying to help us. That's why he sent me to a shaman. Yes, this guy claims he was sent to an actual shaman by Bryn Kenny as a condition to continue the stake. <laughs> He writes, no, I really went to a shaman. Her name is McCarroll, M-C-A-R-O-L. He puts L-O-L. Look up Cambo, K-A-M-B-O, ritual. She blisters you with a hot stick, cuts it with a knife, and rubs frog poison on it. (laughs) And if I didn't want to do that, I had to drop acid in my eyes, which would burn for hours and be hard to see. L-O-L. Oh, not to mention, when I told Bryn I'm probably going to expose this shit, he immediately deleted our entire Telegram chat, as I expected he would. Unfortunately him for him, I have a screen cor- recording of a year plus of chat, so I'd love to see him denying anything just so I can prove it. Since Then he goes on to say, Oh, and you don't want to do mushrooms with Bryn? Dropped in stakes. You don't want to see his retard psychic? Dropped in stakes. Oh, I heard you're not eating healthy and you eat grass-fed organic meat instead of vegetables from a shit Mexico store? Heard you didn't do yoga? Dropped. So he's trying to say that Bryn Kenny puts all these ridiculous conditions, that he controls your life, and if you deviate from it slightly, even what you eat, that he either drops you completely or drops down what stakes you're allowed to play. He went on to write, The last time I got the final table of something on GG Poker, I torched it, meaning that he just... uh, didn't do well and maybe didn't play well. And Bryn Kenny told me I had to text Sergey, which I'll explain who that is shortly, my downstairs neighbor slash coach for my final tables. Guy is the most insane and runs a bigger ghosting operation than anyone. All of his coaches were coached by Giraff and Mark Herm. There was also the other time his horse, Sergey Raycock, which We'll hear from him shortly, too, Sergey. Got banned from GG Poker for cheating for RTA. Hmm, who else got banned from that? Isn't that interesting? All these people banned for RTA from GG. The same horse, Bryn, made me and cocksucker Mizikowski move to Mexico to get coaching from him. Dropped him $1 million in makeup and said, you owe me the money. I don't deal with cheaters. So it's, it's hard to follow this guy. And even when he appeared on Doug Polk's program, which I'm going to play you, he's a little hard to follow. But I'll try to clarify for everybody. I I had a lot of people texting me, hey, you've got to clarify this whole Bryn Kenny situation because it's so confusing and this Martin guy is all over the place and he's he's constantly smoking pot while in the interview and he doesn't write well and, you know, how do I understand all this? There's some people involved. So I'm going to try to clarify all this for you. 
So by the end of this, maybe you'll understand. But there's some things I don't understand at this point, too. So don't expect me to clarify everything, but I'll do my best. So what he's trying to say there is that uh, the Sergey guy, after he got banned for cheating, that... Uh, that uh, that Sergey was a million dollars in makeup, meaning that on uh, Bryn's stake he was a million dollars down, and makeup means that anything he wins goes directly back to Bryn until he gets back in the positive, and then he'll get his share. But that uh, instead Bryn said, "You know what? Uh, I'm, I'm just dropping you at this point because you got dropped by GG Poker, and now you owe me the million in makeup, uh, which isn't really how makeup's supposed to work. Stakes mean that uh, if if you get dropped by the person who staked you, and you're behind, then just tough luck on them. That's part of the risk they're taking. He goes on to say, a month later, after realizing that Sergey wouldn't pay, he goes back, he goes, you're back on the team, get back to slaving away. He doesn't give you immediate chops when you're winning. If, if you win 20, a 25K of 500K plus in your stake, but a 50K is coming, you got to risk your stake profit. And if you say no, thank you, well, good luck. So what he's trying to say there is that uh, if you're positive that he makes you actually take some of the money you won that you should have been able to pocket for yourself and makes you put it back into bigger events. So he doesn't even let you uh, quit the stake or pocket some of the money. He'll make you just keep pressing. That's uh, Martin's claim about Bryn. He says, and if any of you know cocksucker Mizikowski, which is a guy named David Mizikowski, uh, this guy wants your girlfriend to get shot by the police because she's a loud-in-your-face girl. One love tatted on his legs. These two fucking pricks couldn't be bigger scum if they tried. Oh, I donate to charity and help people, just not with my own money. Clown. I was suspecting Bryn could live see people's screens, so one day I told Gooch, some friend of his, a story over Skype on my computer with GG open. Texted him, it's not a real story, uh, just play along. A few days later, Bryn asked me about it. I said, it's not true, I was testing if you're watching my screen. Bryn told me I'm toxic. So he's claiming he, he kind of trapped Bryn, that he suspected Bryn, using the GG poker uh, access he had, which we'll talk about shortly, was able to look at Martin's entire screen, and that what he was doing was uh, texting a fake story over Skype to uh, his friend the Gooch. And the Gooch, I think the Gooch used to beat up uh, Arnold on different strokes. I don't know how he's friends with Martin Zamani, but uh, um, anyway, the Gooch here, he, he texted a fake story to him via Skype. And then using his phone, texted, hey, this is a fake story. Just ignore it and pretend like you're reacting. And then Bryn asked him about it later. And he's like, ah, I caught you. Ah, you're watching my screen. And then uh, and then Bryn just said, you're toxic. Now, th- these are all claims by Martin. I'm not saying these are all true. And some of these have kind of holes in the story, which I'll explain. But uh, this is what he's tweeting. Martin said, since we're, uh, he went to say, Mark Herm, who, by the way, has been on the show before. Mark Herm has been on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. In fact, uh, we had a nice segment with him on here. People really liked Mark Herm's appearance. In fact, some people mentioned to me at the time that Mark Herm and I had good chemistry on the radio and they wished he could be a co-host here. But regardless, Mark Herm, who's not a friend of mine, he just appeared on one show, and I haven't talked to him since, Mark Herm was to ghost to everyone of any final tables of anyone he had been coaching. If, been pl- if you've been playing on GG, you've been getting cheated in more ways than you can imagine. On top of the, this piece of shit Bryn is making a poker site and asking his friends to take mortgages out to invest in it. Then there's a deleted tweet. That's interesting. I was linking a tweet that's now gone. I wonder what that one was. Just says deleted. Uh, a, a shaman he had never met before 
trying to get her to inject frog poison to me, known as com- Combo. It's actually Cambo. She also told me she was a murderer, a warlord, and a liar. Demands I do this drug. Couldn't tell if it was a bit or not. Apparently, Bryn had never met her. Tried to use me as a test pig. There's so many instances of him just straight up abusing his horses, and no one has said anything because they say Bryn has too much power. Well, fuck it all. I have nothing to lose. For the record, I've always been a horse who tries to help my backers. I won a 215 on stars for 65K off stake, meaning he wasn't playing for Bryn, while 200K in makeup and just gave it to him towards my stake as a sign of goodwill when I was totally busto. You let me know any other toxic people who've done that before. So now Martin's trying to pat himself on the back of what a great guy he is. He's trying to say that he won. Uh, he wasn't on any stake. He was playing on his own dime. Uh, won a $215 buy-in on stars for 65K. And that uh, he just handed the whole 65K to Bryn just as a show of good faith. I question that story somewhat. But whatever. That's not that important. Then he mentions an important account on GG, and we'll get into who that is shortly. HE22 was one of the bigger losers, but 5Ks and 10Ks running 24-7. Here's some Adderall, my good friend. Keep grinding, you'll get it back. Shockingly enough, they aren't around anymore. Only took $2 million, that is $2 million loss, to realize Bryn was poaching them for his horses. With friends like that, who needs enemies? So basically he's saying that Bryn was encouraging this friend of his, HE22, who we know who that is now, uh, was just kept encouraging this person to play and play and play and just keep losing, and then was getting anyone who he was backing to go play against this person. Hey, this is a fish. Jump in with this person. So he's saying, hey, with friends like that, who needs enemies? So that got a lot of attention. Bryn Kenny goes back to the mid-2000s. My first encounter with Bryn Kenny was when I was playing like 100-200 on PokerStars, that is 100-200 Limit Hold'em, and he would sit at the table but not play, and he would start bragging that Bryn Kenny is going to be a huge name one day in poker. Bryn Kenny is going to be the biggest thing going. And people would laugh. People were like, who are you? <laughs> Why are you sitting at our table announcing this? But he would really do this. He would just sit at Stars tables, sit out, and announce that Bryn Kenny is going to be the biggest thing ever. And... At the time, I thought, this this kid is a douche. He's never going to amount to anything in poker. I've never even seen him play. He just seems to sit at high-stakes tables and, and brag and talk about how, how big he's going to end up. So I never would have guessed that 16 years later, I think this was like in 06, I never guessed that all this time later that we would be talking about him as the top casher in tournaments. So I, I guess in a way... He did live up to what he was claiming, that people were going to know his name. He was going to be a big thing in poker. I mean, he is. That's why this is such a big story when these allegations are being made against him. But that was my first uh, encounter with him. Then he did start to win in poker in the later 2000s. And people started to know who he was. And he started to get some respect as a winning player. To me, he always seemed kind of like a degenerate. He kind of just seemed like a young punk. But, you know, I saw him have success. I saw him winning a bunch of tournaments. I saw him playing big buy-in events. So I just assumed that he was successful and had lived up to these outlandish claims of his back when he uh, would just sit at high-stakes tables and brag without actually playing. 
you may wonder, have I played with Bryn Kenny live? Answer, yes. Actually at a uh, World Series event. I think it was the main event or maybe uh, a day two of, of a 1500. But some World Series event, I ended up uh, with Bryn Kenny. In fact, he had position on me. And I was like, oh, crap, this is going to be a pain in the ass. He's going to keep uh, three-betting me constantly. I picture this, like, hyper-aggressive young pro. I wasn't looking forward to having this guy to my left with a fairly big stack. And I remember it was like a day two of something. Well, I come there, it was not my experience at all. He was, like, really tight. So I was actually pretty surprised how tight he was. Maybe it was just that day, but I remember he was surprisingly tight. He didn't make mistakes. He was just, like, surprisingly tight. But I, other than that, I didn't have much interaction with him and I haven't like ever had like a real conversation with a guy aside from you know whatever we said at the table, which wasn't much. Uh, I had a kind of mocking him at the poker stars table many years ago, but aside from that, really no interaction with the guy. So I don't really have prior feelings about Bryn Kenny that are very strong. Not really positive, not really negative. I just kind of knew him as this like one-time young punk who, of course, isn't that young anymore. Sixteen years later, and that he apparently has graduated to playing nosebleed tournaments and has this $57 million cash record there at the moment. So that that's what I knew of him before. And I didn't think of him too much. I'd hear his name come up when I'd see about people playing these super high buy-in events. But aside from that, I didn't really think of him much. But a lot of people know who he is. I mean, obviously, he's a big name in poker, especially you look up Hendon Mob, and he's the number one casher. So while Martin Zamani is not really a known player, uh, these are pretty strong allegations, and he's naming several names there. So how much of this is true? And what is Martin Zamani's full story, and can we trust him? And we're going to get into all that, because this is a, a pretty involved situation, and it's not as obvious and straightforward as you might like it to be. There's a lot of different elements feeding into this and a lot of different personalities involved and a lot of guesses and judgments you're going to have to make. So what we're going to do here is we're going to play Zamani's interview with Polk. We're not going to play the whole thing. It was an 80-minute interview. I'm going to play you clips from it. I watched the entire thing. I studiously made notes of the parts that I should play that I feel are the highlights. And then... I will stop when I need to stop it and discuss it, and then we'll move on to the next clip. We have a lot of clips to play. If you want to see the whole thing, you can go to Doug Polk's channel. It is called uh, Poker Cheating, Fake Psychics, and Frog Poison. So just if you look for that or search that in YouTube, you can find it. It's pretty easy to find. Doug Polk jumped on this immediately. He did this interview with Zamani just a few hours after Zamani posted these allegations and keep in mind that Doug had history with Bryn Kenny. They were talking trash back and forth. Uh, it started when Bryn Kenny was criticizing poker coaches and that included Doug Polk's uh, upswing poker and saying that they're all trash products and they're making, uh, they're taking advantage of people. They're not really teaching them that much. These people are all horrible and teaching strategies that don't work, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so he and Polk started going at it. And then Polk said, oh, I'll show you my strategies work. You know, how will we play heads up? And Bryn Kenny was like, yeah, let's do it. And then they, they 
at first it looked like we're going to play a million dollar heads up match, but then Kenny seemed to back out. Then uh, Bryn Kenny wanted to bet two million dollars about which one of the two has a better life. How <laughs> 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 do you even bet that? So. Everyone was laughing at Bryn Kenny. He didn't come off well there. Doug Polk definitely won that exchange. But Polk kind of was looking for the opportunity to make Bryn Kenny look bad again. So that's why he jumped on this so quickly. Not only was it a big story, but here was an opportunity to humiliate someone who had talked trash about him and his training program on Twitter. And not just someone, but a big name in poker who did this. So Polk definitely had some existing resentment for Kenny, and you have to understand that when you listen to this. Now, I think Polk did a decent job with the interview, and I think he was fair, and I don't think he was using his dislike of Kenny as a way to uh, inform the way he approached this. So I'll give him that. He really came off as a neutral interviewer, but just know that he jumped on this really fast, mainly because he doesn't like Kenny. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. Because if there was someone I really disliked that was a big name in poker and something like this happened, I would probably feel more motivated to jump on it. Because it feels good when you hear that someone you strongly dislike that strongly dislikes you, when you hear a story that that person is a piece of shit and fucked people over, if, if you can be the one to help bring this out to the public, and Doug Polk, of course, has a huge platform, so he definitely can do that. Uh, of course, it feels good to do that. And it also kind of vindicates Polk that Kenny was not the player he thought he was and Kenny isn't the guy he thought he, that everybody thought he was. So he obviously wanted everyone to see this. So that was, there had to be some of the motivation here. I wasn't told this by Polk or anyone who knows Polk, but that's got to be some motivation for this. It's possible he would have had Zamani on anyway, even if he had no issue with uh, Kenny, but he does. But again, that's fine. Just wanted you to know that before we start this uh, playback. Overall, I think uh, Polk did a pretty good job. So I'm going to start from the 348 mark here, where he talks about the tournaments going on GG and the overlay and how the horses were instructed not to let these happen. And you may be wondering, wait a minute, why does he care about overlays on GG? And we'll get into that too. That's also part of the story. Let me get to the 348 mark. It was basically the Bryn Kenny free roll, I like to call it, because the tournaments on GG, he was pretty much guaranteeing the money for like 5Ks and 10Ks, and he was making almost all the rake on them. So like if a tournament was overlaying, like a 100K guarantee, a 5K, it was overlaying by like uh, eight people or something. He would send me 5K and be like, register right now, or send me like 10K so I would get an extra bullet in. And I was considered like the fish of the fields, like less experienced and high stakes MTTs or whatever. So the tournaments would not overlay by him sending me 5K or 10K to play a tournament where there was no like downside for him. He was he would either have me owe him the money or the tournament would overlay less. And either way, he had full control of the money. So if I won, he just collected it, no problem. What was his incentive to try and make it so the tournament didn't have overlay? Does he have some kind of deal with GG based on these tournaments? Or Yeah, I think, I, I don't know exactly for sure, but he was getting almost all of the rake from like the 5Ks and 10Ks. That's why he promoted them so hard. Anyone who was playing them at the time can like attest to being like 
harassed like three, four times a day. Hey, getting this 5K, this 5K is really good, blah, blah, blah. He never worried about people like settling after, like many people had like 300K credit with Bryn just to like make sure the tournament didn't overlay. And I assume that's because he was guaranteeing the overlays himself or like the tournaments himself and getting a large chunk of the rake. He okay. was like flying people out and like private, like the, I don't want to say their names, but like if someone was like the top three raking player on GG at the time, they were like flying on Bryn's private jet from like Monaco to whatever the next live stop was. There was a lot of like rake back. It seemed like was being given. Does that make sense? Like he was earning a lot from it. Some people said like close to 2 million a week. Okay, that's a pretty serious allegation of money making on the part of Bryn through GG. He's making $2 million a week. Wow. But is this possibly true? And why would Bryn care about GG overlays? Why would GG have a deal with him to not have there be overlays? By the way, in case you don't know what an overlay is, an overlay is where a tournament has a guaranteed prize pool that it'll be a minimum prize pool of such and such amount of money. And if not enough buy-ins are collected to reach that amount, then the prize pool is still that amount anyway. And that's called an overlay, where the prize pool is bigger than it would have been from the number of buy-ins that came in. And then once it passes the overlay, then of course the guarantee doesn't matter because uh, they've reached that amount anyway. So an overlay is very good for the players because that's when the, the house is adding money into the prize pool because it wouldn't meet the guarantee and they had to have it that minimum prize pool. So a very simple example, let's say there's a $1,000 tournament and there's a million dollar guarantee. Well, what that means is that 1,000 people have to enter to meet the guarantee. And let's say they only get 600 people entering. Well, then the prize pool should normally be $600,000. We're ignoring rake here. So the prize pool should be $600,000, but here instead it's a million. So you had 600000 worth of buy-ins, and yet a million is being paid out. So the casino would lose 400000 So that's what's called an overlay. And, of course, it's very good for the players and very bad for casinos. And that's why casinos always have to watch out, casinos and poker rooms, they have to watch out that they don't offer a guarantee that's too high or they can get screwed. But the reason to offer a guarantee is it attracts players and it's a, it's a good marketing tool. You just have to make sure to set it properly. So getting back to this, there were these high-stakes tournaments, 5K, 10K entry tournaments on GG Poker, and Bryn was very aggressively trying to get them filled, according to Martin Zamani here. He's claiming that uh, he was just giving it basically to anyone to go play there, to stake them to go play in these tournaments, and that he'd even fly people in to where they can be in the territory where they can play on GG so they can play in these tournaments, that it was very important to him to meet the guarantee and have there be no overlay. So Doug asked, why would he care? And they get into this later, but I'll tell you right now. GG Poker for a while, and I don't know if they still have it, but they, for a while they had this very weird agent model. Now you may wonder, what is an agent model? We've talked about it before, but not all that much on this show, so I'll remind you in case you either don't know or forgot. The agent model is where there's a middleman who handles all of the funds, all the cashier operations, and the signing you up. Everything goes through the agent. So the agent gets you on the site. The agent deposits for you. You give the money to the agent, and he gives you chips. 
and the agent cashes you out. So everything goes through the agent. The site doesn't do anything except provide the games. So where agents are very common is on sites that aren't actually originally built for real money poker play and don't have any kind of payment processors. Like these apps that people played on, especially during the pandemic, like Poker Bros, you'd be invited to a, quote, club on some kind of poker app. But the poker app doesn't have a payment processor. So the only way to get chips on there is to buy in through an agent. And then the agent cashes you out when you want to cash out. And everybody else playing there has an agent. It may be the same agent as you. It could be other agents. But all the that's, that's how the entire economy on these sites works is through agents because there is no payment processor. Now, you may say, well, why would GG do this? They have a payment processor. They're a huge site. In fact, they're the biggest online poker site in the world at the moment. Now, I will tell you that this entire story that Zamani's talking about did not take place in 2022 or even 2021. It took place in 2019 and 2020. But still, GG was still pretty large back then. It wasn't bigger than PokerStars then, but it was still pretty large back then. So why were they using agents when they did have payment processors? Well, I can only theorize, but I believe that the reason they had this agent model going when no other large or medium-sized poker site has this model is because there have been long-standing rumors that American players were playing on GG Poker through VPNs and that GG was looking the other way, whereas other sites that don't allow Americans for legal reasons are very, very diligent with trying to determine when people are trying to sneak on there, and if they catch you, they ban you and take your money like PokerStars, for example. But GG Poker, if you VPN'd in and your IP technically wasn't from the US, uh, I heard they looked the other way and didn't do anything about it. But apparently, you had to go through these agents who would get you on there. And my theory as to why this was is so GG Poker, which is a legalized poker site in the jurisdictions it operates, not the US, but where it does operate, they are legal. So in order to avoid getting in any kind of trouble, they inserted this extra layer which insulated them from responsibility. That's my guess. So this way they can say, well, we had no idea the agent was sneaking on players from the U.S. Oh, we had no idea. You know, The agent was managing this whole thing. How are we supposed to know he's doing that? And it was probably a situation where it was like, hey, well, don't bring any U.S. players on here VPNing. Don't do that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And the agent's like, oh, no, of course I wouldn't. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And then they go to people who are living in the U.S. and say, hey, how did that get on GG through a VPN? They're not going to do anything about it. Oh, cool. Okay, well, deposit through me and I'll cash you out. And we got to do it this way because, you know, you, you can't be depositing uh, through them or they can get in big trouble. I, I bet it was something like that. So Bryn Kenny was, and for sure, this part's not a rumor. I know for sure that Bryn Kenny was a big agent for GG Poker and that he did handle the buy-ins and cash-outs for GG Poker for people playing under him. It is possible that beyond that, he had additional deals with GG Poker as far as getting tournaments going. For example, he may have said to GG Poker, you know what? I'd love to have 5K and 10K buy-in tournaments on here. And GG was probably, what, what? <laughs> that's, that's a huge buy-in events for online. That's very hard to get going. And he's like, how about we have one with a guarantee? And GG Poker was probably like, you know, fuck no, we're not doing that. We're not guaranteeing a million dollars or whatever it is of uh, buy-ins here. These are huge events that are very hard to get going online. 
So forget it. And then Bryn may have said to them, hey, well, how about you give me X percentage of the rake and I'll guarantee it. So we'll make it a guarantee, but the guarantee is coming from me, not from you guys. Will you do that if you give me increased rake? And it's very possible Gigi's like, yeah, okay, cool. If you'll take responsibility for the guarantee, go ahead. And then at that point, then it would be Bryn, who is obsessed with meeting the guarantee, because if he's falling short, then he, he wants to make it up in any way possible because he's going to pay the money anyway. And uh, by the way, other rooms have been accused of doing this, just shoving players in, sometimes on their own dime or partially on their own dime, to meet the guarantee. In fact, the Westgate was accused of doing this not too long ago, where they offered a last-minute discount for players who had entered in the last hour of a guarantee where they were letting them in for half price. And that was the reason for it, because if they don't have those players, then the price pool of buy-ins is smaller, and they have to cover the rest of the guarantee. So it's it's basically a free roll for them to put additional people in, uh, even if they have to give a discount or stake them. So what Zamani is accusing Bryn of here is that he was just stuffing whoever he could into these GG guaranteed tournaments and staking them, and that he felt he might as well, because if they win, then he gets a percentage of their win. If they lose, they owe him makeup anyway, so maybe he'll get it back later. And if they aren't in it, if he doesn't do this, he's going to pay the guaranteed money anyway, so why not? So that's the first thing he's alleging here. And, of course, this also seems to show he had a lot of power and influence at Gigi, Bryn Kenny. But, of course, while this is unethical, this isn't a horrendous allegation, right? Like, you've heard much worse. This isn't even cheating. So, obviously, there's much more than this, but I wanted to explain it to you. Let's go on. And we will move to the satellite allegations. Now, I will quickly explain what a satellite is, for those of you that don't know. A satellite is a tournament where you win a seat into another tournament. Let's say you want a seat in a 10K event. You may enter for $1,000, and then when there's 10% of the field left, then the event just stops and everybody gets a seat. So there's no first place in satellites. It just stops when they reach whatever percentage is necessary to pay for everybody's seat. So that's what a satellite is. They've been around for a long time. It's not a GG invention. Probably most of you are familiar with them and played in them before. Uh, So he's making allegations about the satellites of the way Bryn told his stable, people playing under him, the way they must uh, play these satellites. We are going to uh, listen to this clip here. So, like, there was an instance where David Mizikowski was three-handed in a satellite with two seats, but Reg was still open. And he was a short stack. And... Like, he would have been called for sure, you know? Like, one of them would have called to try to bust ICF. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure, yeah. And Mizikowski just folded aces because he knew Bryn would be mad that the tournament ended in overlay. But why... Isn't that the kind of thing that GG Poker could see and step in and do something? Does GG Poker... What happened with that? I don't really know what Bryn's relationship is or was with GG Poker. I believe he was, like... um, had more pull than it appeared for him to have. Like, I know Bryn for sure could see my screen when I was logged into GG Poker. I, like, confirmed this through my own method, like, trial, and, like, I confirmed it. How did you confirm that? I met. I went on Skype, 
And I messaged my friend Jason Gooch something. And I was like, I'm dead, blah, 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 I'm buried. And then I texted him saying, hey, just play along with it. Uh, don't worry about it. Me and Jason Gooch are very good friends. He would never talk to Bryn or say something to Bryn. And he would never tell anyone else. A few days later, Bryn asks me about it. About like the conversation that I had on Skype. Does that make sense? Yeah, so basically you had a conversation with one of your friends. And then a few days later, Bryn knew the conversation. Yes. But there is a there's a chance that Chris told Bryn the conversation, right? There's at least some shot. Of, was was Chris? Did Chris have a similar deal with Bryn, or did does he know Bryn, or was you there mean a connection? Gooch. There? Sorry, Gooch. His name was Chris. Gooch, Gooch. No, Gooch is one of my closest friends. Uh, he he has no relationship with Bryn. I was his agent for GG. He would li- not, never talk to Bryn. He's like my closest friend. Okay, so two things to talk about here: the satellite thing. He was saying that uh, this Mizikowski guy who was uh, a horse of Brin's, was instructed not to go all in with Ace's pre-flop and probably win the hand and put an end to the satellite because registration was still open. So I guess so many people had busted from the satellite that they were about to have whatever percentage, you know, 10% or whatever of the field left, and that was going to be that. So wanting to collect more rake, because remember, everybody who sits in these satellites pays a rake, that uh, Brin actually instructed Mizikowski to wait and to, to not uh, go all in and to, not, to try not to bust this last person in order to keep the satellite running so it doesn't immediately just end and give people the few seats that they won, and then Bryn hardly gets any rake there. So that was an allegation. But then the bigger allegation there was that Bryn could see Martin's screen. He says that he could see his screen because of his access through GG Poker, because he had such a strong relationship with GG Poker that gave him access to see this. And then he talked about that whole thing with the gooch that I talked about earlier with the tweets, where he had a Skype conversation talking about something fake with the gooch, and then Bryn knew about it. And then Bryn confronted him about it, and he's like, hey, you know, we only had that to see if you were watching the screen, and you were. Well, first of all, we don't know if that really happened. But second, I don't believe that Bryn was able to see his screen through GG Poker. First of all, I have my doubts that GG Poker itself is looking at anyone's screen. Could they? Yes. Uh, basically, uh, these programs have enough access to your computer when they're running to where they can do a lot of things. So you do have to trust them to some degree. But... Why would they look at your screen? Presumably, they would look at your screen to try to figure out any cheating going on, right? And that's what some people were implying when they were talking about Ali Imsrovic and Jake Schindler, is that the way GG Poker really, really got them, really got the goods on them, was by looking at their screen and, and seeing that they were using real-time assistance. But maybe not. In fact, I don't think GG is looking at your screen. I think GG is looking at other things. I think GG Poker is probably looking at processes these are run that are running i think that's what they're looking at and they might be looking at other things going on in the background with your system they might be able to look at uh, communications going on they might be looking at keystrokes that you're doing they might be essentially acting as a keylogger and they might be aware of certain rta tools and the keys you'll have to press to bring them up so that could be something they're doing. So 
it doesn't mean they're looking at your screen because screen grabbing there's a lot of technical issues with that to where gg poker probably wouldn't want to do it first of all it's a tremendous bandwidth hog to have to record and transmit everything on your screen in real time and to do this for every single player if it's for one player, fine, but to have every single player's screen constantly transmitting to GG Poker and them saving and analyzing those screens, it's very, very bandwidth intensive and also very, very computationally intensive to where the analysis on GG's end would be a tremendous burden on them to have to scrape every one of these screens to try to figure out what's going on. It's a very inefficient way of doing things. So I don't think that's what GG is doing. So then you'll say, well, okay, if that's not what Gigi's doing, then how did he see this conversation that Martin had with the Gooch? Let's let's just say, for argument's sake, this story really happened, that Martin suspected that Bryn was watching his screen, and that he had this fake conversation with his friend, and then Bryn mentioned the conversation. Well, even if Gigi was able to see screens, that doesn't mean that Bryn would have access to it. It doesn't make sense that they would give Bryn access to it, and it's not even trivial for Bryn to get access to it. It's not just that simple to go uh, click a button and suddenly have access to everybody's screens. It's not likely how GG Poker would work, even if they did transmit everybody's screen in real time back to their server. But putting that aside, how is it possible that this could have been done if it wasn't GG Poker that was watching his screen? Well, I can give you an answer to that. It's very possible that Bryn installed some kind of spyware on Martin's computer and was watching him, maybe because he didn't trust him. Maybe he's just paranoid about all his horses and wants to watch what they are doing. And as you'll hear from other stories that Martin tells, Bryn is allegedly very controlling and really wants to have his say in every aspect of his horse's lives. So maybe the screen watching is a form of like big brother watching you, except in this case, Bryn is the big brother. And so maybe... He gets access to these computers that these state courses are using and installs some kind of uh, spyware on there to look at their screen. That would make a hell of a lot more sense than him doing it through GG Poker. It's much more scandalous to say, oh, GG Poker's watching your screen and gives outsiders access to it. And then you start wondering, hey, you know, that freaky porn I watched the other day, I wonder if GG saw that. I wonder if one day that's going to get in the wrong hands and people will blackmail me about it. Like, people start worrying. Like, if I play on GG, anything I have up there can be used against me while I'm playing on GG Poker. I can't just relax and uh, play on GG and, and jerk off to my four favorite porn. Now I've got to worry about uh, weirdos there looking at my screen, and, and maybe this will leak out what I'm doing in the background. Like, maybe you're worried about that. But I don't think it's happening. I can't guarantee it's not happening, but I don't think it's happening. And I think that uh, if this story really did happen with a gooch, with Bryn knowing what was being typed, it was probably because Bryn had installed some kind of spyware like a keylogger or a screen scraper or something like that. I would think that's much more likely than it being done through GG. It just wouldn't make sense for several reasons. So that's important to know. And Doug Polk brought this up on Twitter later. Like, wow, GG looking at your screen, that's pretty scary. And I responded, no, no, I don't think so. And I cited the reasons I just said right now. Uh, as far as the satellite holding off, you know, that's just you know, the holding off busting. If that's really true, that just goes along with the whole thing of that Bryn probably was uh, getting such a large piece of the rake in all these things that it was he was incentivizing his horses to act in a way 
that would make him the most money, even if it seemed on standard. So let's uh, move to the 1621 mark, and we'll hear about the uh, more stories about collusion in these satellites, because he, he didn't fully go into that. And we're going to hear more about the collusion in the satellites. But let's go back to the horse collusion in satellites that you mentioned earlier. So what collusion happened? What stakes? What accounts? Like, what can you tell us about the specifics with the horse collusion? Like satellites to 25K millions or 10Ks or whatever, the idea was always do what's best for the team. Me and David would grind in Mexico at like on like the same kitchen table, like at other ends of each other. And like sometimes spots would come up with his other horses, like the Ray guy or whoever else. And he'd be like, sometimes he would just like perk up and say something. He'd be like, make sure to do what's best for the team. What do you think that meant? Do what's best for the team. Do, do what's best for Bryn's team as a whole. You know, like so basically make Bryn the most money as a unit. Yeah. It's what you thought that it meant. That's for sure what it meant. Sometimes he would like tell me he like, I would always last minute register tournaments, but like sometimes if a tournament was overlaying or something, he'd be like, Hey, hop in this tournament and start gambling with people that aren't our horses, like make people rebuy. So like I would register tournaments and just like shove any two or like call any two if someone else was like in the tournament and the tournament was overlaying. And you, uh, you have nice cap by the way. Thank you. Uh, you have proof that he said these things. Yes. I think okay. I, I believe so. Okay, cool. Because that, I mean, obviously, if this comes down to it, that could be important. Um, there was a, also a time where I wasn't allowed to play 10K PLO events on Party Poker. Or I was allowed to play 10K PLO. How do you relax, dude? I was allowed to play 10Ks on Party Poker with one of his horses having half and me having the other half on my stake. And uh, wait, wait, wait. Sorry. So you could play 10K. Half of your buy in was on a different stakes stake? Yeah, it was on the ghost. The person who was ghosting my account had half on his stake and half went to my stake. Oh, so someone played on your account where you got half and they got half. Correct. Can you say who it was that was playing? No. Okay. All right. As far as as far as the satellites go, are you able to disclose other screen names that were part of this essentially team where they were doing what's best for the team? Um, David Mizikowski, um, the Ray guy. I have to think of their other names. The Ray Joseph, guy, huh? The Ray guy. Who, I don't know who that is. I, I don't know. Just some random screen name who we used to have to like call and explain to him all the satellite spots. I would have to check with. I, this happened all a few years ago. Big Pavelski. That was my horse who I staked under my stake, which was like my friend. And Bryn goes, you can stake. Bryn gave us the option of staking anyone we wanted under our own stake. Does that make sense? He goes, but they have to start all the satellites with you. And like, they're basically a slave worker. So wait, they, you can stake people uh-huh. on your stake. Yeah. But they have to play in your games. Yes. Okay. Interesting. In Mexico, but there was like me and Bryn's main horse, and we both had a horse, and we were all playing in the same games. And it was like very obvious we like were told to be cheating, except for once. 
when hilarious. Bryn is a very huge hypocrite and like just like out of his mind to things where like Sergi got banned for cheating on GG, which was like his main horse and our coach. And Sergi, like, what's, what's his last name? Rykik. Okay. And Bryn goes, I don't deal with cheaters. You owe me the makeup, which was like, just like nonsense, really. Cause like Bryn knew he was cheating. It wasn't like um, a secret. Like, I, I don't know how to explain what, it. What, what did he get banned for cheating for? RTA. Oh, so he was, so RTA. Okay. Interesting. So, but it seems like RTA in general, isn't something that was going on widespread throughout the stable, right? N- no, but there, there is another person who has, um, more of Sergi. The, there was like some other people that Sergi coached under Bryn as well that like did it a little differently and have all the RTA from Sergi. So like I'm about to get all that information. I'll send that to you. Where like, okay. okay. So let me break all this down. It's probably very confusing. This Martin guy was actually vaping while he was doing this interview and talked about how he's super high. So that's why a lot of this may seem confusing to you. But he talked about a few things happening there. He talked about in these uh, satellites that he would sometimes have horses playing under him, that is Martin, that uh, Martin was putting in using Bryn's money. He said you could sub-stake people. You could just decide that uh, on your stake, you can then also stake others using Bryn's money, and it's as if you're playing. So you can sub-stake people, but the rule is that the people you're sub-staking have to play in your games. That's what he's claiming here, and that uh, this would occur a lot in satellites, and uh, he was also claiming that this, uh, again, the Sergi guy was openly cheating for Bryn, but as soon as he was thrown off GG for using this real-time assistance, then all of a sudden uh, Bryn says, you're out of the whole thing, and you owe me the million dollars you're down presently in makeup. And presumably this would be because Sergi couldn't continue playing on GG anymore, which is the main place they were playing, so uh, Bryn felt he was useless. That, that kind of seems like what's, what uh, Martin is getting at. Now, I want to go to the 2145 mark, and I want you to listen to this whole thing about this HE22 person, and Martin indicates who that is, You know, the one who lost $2 million who was friends with Bryn. Oh, um, I wasn't going to say who it was, but... Farhag Alfondo already retweeted Lauren, that it was Lauren Roberts. And, I mean, I can't – anyone who is around the situation or knows Lauren and Bryn knows how insanely bad he took advantage of her and, like, poached her. Like, we didn't even know it was Lauren. But, like, he was, like, telling her to play the games and, like, demanding us always play the games when this account is in the games because it's, like, a big fish – while he's also like throwing parties at her house and pretending to be buddy buddy, like insane. That's, that's fucked up, man. And he would play her account sometimes. Just found this out. Play on her account? Yeah. So like sometimes when her account was winning and it was supposed to be the fish account, you know, fish. Sorry, Lauren. You know, I love you, but like, um, when it was supposed to be her, sometimes it was Bryn, unbeknownst to all of us. How did you find out about that? I she just told me. 
Oh, Lauren told you. Yes. Holy shit. Wow. So he was multi-accounting on Lauren's account while screwing over Lauren in these games, according according to what you're saying. I, I mean, come on. Wow. That is that is something else. Now, Lauren ended up speaking out on Twitter after this video came out. And she is not someone who's used Twitter very often at all because uh, I guess she quit Twitter because she felt they were censoring too much. It seems like she's a conservative who didn't like the censorship that was done uh, from the left there. So she quit Twitter. But she came back to address all of this. I tried to get her to come on this show, but she ignored me. I, I didn't know her previously, so it's not that surprising that she doesn't want to come on here. In fact, she hasn't come on anywhere. It kind of seems like she wants to fully control the conversation. Anyway, what Martin is alleging here is that this HE22 account, which has been verified independently to have lost about $2 million on GG. So Martin's not making that part up, and Lauren has verified that as well. But what Martin's alleging is that Bryn kind of became a fake friend of Lauren's. And by the way, there is a picture of Lauren winning a tournament. I think it was on Poker Go. And Bryn standing behind, like putting his hands on her shoulders. And she put that she's uh, so happy that Bryn is her friend. And you can see the two of them were friends. This is back in 2019. So Martin was saying that Bryn regarded her as a fish. And a fish who had a lot of money because she had money from outside of poker. She was a successful uh, businesswoman and trader. And that he saw this and he befriended her. And then he would get her in these GG games. And then he would immediately message people in his stable to go play with her. Because number one, he felt she was a fish. And number two, they could collude against her as well. So not only was this like bum hunting... But he's also saying it was cheating that there was uh, that Bryn was having his people playing under him go show up and play against Lauren and just clobber her, and that she lost uh, two million dollars doing this. And people have shown the graph of HE twenty two, which was Lauren, and that account just really got beat down hard. So that account was almost never winning. So that's one of the allegations involving Lauren. The second allegation, which Martin claims Lauren told him, and I believe that because Lauren then verified it on Twitter that this is her allegation. She claims that Bryn also would get on the, her account sometimes and play, presumably so people would think they're playing against a fish. In reality, they're playing against Bryn, and then they'd be expecting a different play style and he would beat them. Now, this must have not been too successful because HE22 never did well on the site, even in the short term. But that is being alleged by Lauren, and then uh, Martin is repeating it here. Uh, now, I'm going to take a break from playing this, and I'm going to read you Lauren's comments on the matter, because Lauren has been tweeting. So, we will take a little deviation from this and talk about uh, what Lauren is saying. So Lauren tweeted on April 23rd at about 10 a.m. Pacific time, I've been in finance and poker a long time. I'm not stupid. By the way, Lauren is not young. Lauren, I don't know how old she is, but she looks older than me. She looks like at least mid-50s, maybe even older. So this is not a young woman. This looks like a middle-aged or older woman who probably had success in life outside of poker. And maybe Bryn got his hooks into her. 
She went on to say, I'm not stupid. That's how I knew he played my account besides coaching me while I played. Because one day he told me I won a tournament and magically our number went down. But I also witnessed ghosting collusion with other accounts too. Now, what she means by our number is, remember, Bryn was the agent. So she would have to deposit and cash out through him. So apparently he kept extending her credit, knowing that she was good for it. And that she claims that one day that he just went to her and said, hey, um, you just won a tournament and uh, therefore you owe me less money. You've been losing big time on GG, but now you owe me less because your account just won. <laughs> and she's like, what? What do you mean I just won? I didn't play. What, what do you mean? No, no, no. You just won. Trust me. What? Yeah, you won a tournament, but I didn't play. No, no, no. no. You won a tournament. Trust me. And you owe me less now. So good, right? Good news, right? Like you, you owed me this before. Now you owe me less because you just won a tournament you didn't know about. Isn't that great? So she claims that's, that's the evidence that he was using her account sometimes and actually was uh, presenting this to her like good news that he played on her account and won and therefore is giving her credit for it. Then she said, remember, there was no way to get money in and out of GG. It all went through Bryn, paid in cash, crypto, or chips, meaning like live poker chips. When he and GG fell out, because they, they did have a falling out. He's not an agent there anymore. He decided to develop his own poker site and did a capital raise for it, which is another potential shitstorm, which we'll talk about shortly. And that was just you know her verifying that he was an agent who was handling all cashier duties, and I talked about that already. Then someone asked a good question of her. Remember, she said she witnessed ghosting collusion with other accounts, so someone's like, wait a minute, why are you okay with this? Why are you okay with him using your account? Why are you okay with him ghosting and colluding? Like, why are you cool with that? So someone named uh, Hold'em and Crypto wrote back to Lauren. Lauren, you say you've been in finance and advised wit- and advised witnessing things, but did Bryn Kenny let you in on it at any time? Did you have working knowledge of the collusion and financial crimes? Did you know you were a part of this? And she said, yeah, it was totally cool with me that he got his players to go after me while at the same time living in my house. I lost a lot of money, but hey, I don't work hard to make it and have no problem lighting it on fire for the greater good of starving poker players everywhere. So, of course, that's very sarcastic what she's saying. She's basically saying, no, of course I didn't know. What do you, you think I was cool with him uh, bringing his horses to bum hunt me and maybe collude against me while living in my house while I lost $2 million that I worked so hard to make? But hey, hey, you know, good. I'm I'm making money for poker pros everywhere. I feel good about it. Yeah, great. Yeah, I totally knew about it. But you know, that's not answering the question. Is the problem? He's saying, did you know this was all going on? And that that you know, like how how do you feel about that? It's basically what he's asking. And she's like, oh no, uh, um, yeah. So, uh, what do you mean I knew about it? You think I knew about everyone uh, colluding against me and bum hunting me? Well, that, that's two different things. The question, the real question is. When you saw all this going on, like, why was this not bothering you? But she didn't really answer that. Someone asked me what I think her role is in this whole thing and why she's even addressing this and why she is, uh, like, not as harsh on him as she could be. Like, she is saying that he, he was colluding and cheating, but she's like, not like she's not coming after him as hard as people would think given what's being alleged and i think what's going on here is you have this woman that was successful that is older 
that Caesar felt himself as sophisticated and someone who's done very well for herself in life. And then she meets this young punk who basically conned her and that she lost a lot of money while thinking that he was her friend and she missed all the obvious warning signs and she was played for a fool by someone who she probably now thinks is not as sharp as she is and yet that person got away with all this and pulled the wool over her eyes. So this is more kind of coming out and saying that, uh, you know, yeah, this was happening, but I wasn't aware of it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I trusted him, but, you know, they, they don't, don't think I'm a total fool. That's what she's trying to say. She said, when I say I wasn't playing anymore, He'd come up with a new scheme. He'd send me a free roll prior to the last losing streak I had in 2019. He told me he'd give me uh, half of Sergey's stake to finance the play because he needed me to play. And the red flags kept adding up as he began to win and didn't need me, and I quietly extricated myself. There's a huge implication. Gigi knowingly built an illegal business off the backs of Bryn's players VPNing in. When their valuation soared, they decided to get legit. That's referring to why they dropped him. Then some people gave her a hard time because they kind of saw her as someone who was okay seeing everything Bryn was doing until she got screwed by it or until she lost too much money. And then she said, ah, well, Doug convinced me to say something, referring to Doug Polk. I know exactly who I am. I've made mistakes and would never blame anyone but myself. I can genuinely say I give absolutely zero shits what you fucks think of me, especially if you don't know me. Enjoy wallowing in your insecurity and envy. (laughs) Some people were saying, no, 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 it's not like this. You know, you know, please tell us more. Like, ignore the trolls, basically. So then she came back the next day and said, thank you for all the support. If your heart is open, you accept that you're going to get taken. With age, you get wiser. Getting taken doesn't mean you, you close your heart. From bad, good always comes of it if you choose to see it. Poker's taught me so much. I wouldn't have wanted to miss the experience I've had, the unbelievable people I've met all over the world, the fun I've had playing this silly game for some bad actors. Those guys are everywhere. So you see what this is. This is like rationalizing. Yeah, I got scammed. Yeah, I got totally ripped off. Yeah, I lost two million bucks. But I met a lot of great people. I really had fun playing. And just because there were some bad people who ripped me off, I, I don't regret anything. I'm, I'm still happy I was part of the whole thing. And there's a lot of rationalizing people do. And in fact, it's not too different than people who lose a lot of money in casinos do their rationalizing. Oh, I was entertaining myself. It was fun. I made friends. Uh, it was exciting. So yeah, I, I lost a ton to the casino, but uh, you know, it was kind of money well spent. I don't regret it. Like people will do that so they don't feel like chumps. So she's trying to say here that yeah, she's learned from this, but the truth is, it was all a good experience anyway, even if uh, it wasn't perfect. And then she said, and yeah, I'm a hypocrite. Twitter has become a worldwide public forum. If there's demand, the market will create a free forum. Thank you, Elon Musk. I'm not sure what that's referring to other than Elon Musk's desire at the time to buy Twitter, which ended up uh, coming true today. But that hadn't progressed yet to the point it is presently when she wrote that. Uh, Then she wrote, well, I guess the thousands of non-pros coming to the World Series each year are coming for the fun of sitting 10-handed at the Rio for 12 hours a day, expecting they're going to lose. Let's be clear, winning and cashing a tournament or a bunch of tourneys is not being profitable. When I first met Bryn, he was over $10 million in the hole. Profitable is hard in poker. So again, this is like rationalizing that 
oh, thousands of people come to the World Series every year, knowing that, yeah, they're just trying to have a chance, but you know, most of them lose. They're not expecting they're going to lose, but the truth is they are, and, and they go for there for the shot of winning. That's basically what she's saying. She's kind of relaying this to herself. You know, why did you go play on GG for all this high money and then lose? She's like, oh, I didn't go in expecting him to get ripped off for two million. I just went in and played, and you know, how did I, how was I know it was going to happen? And then she's casting some doubt on Bryn's results, saying that he was ten million in the hole despite having a lot of caches. And that it's hard to be profitable in poker. And again, kind of saying that it's not that shameful that she lost $2 million because a lot of people lose. Then she said, My play of online tournaments directly helped my game. No other way I could get the thousands of hands and experiences live, and I could sit in my fuzzy socks and play. Again, well, yeah, I got ripped off, but it really helped my poker game. Yeah, it cost me $2 million, but boy, I'm a better poker player now. <laughs> So whatever, you know, I, I don't want to mock this too much because she really was a victim here. I mean, maybe she saw some of the things that Bryn was doing. She's even claiming she did. But the truth is she's out $2 million and it doesn't appear she was colluding or cheating. It does look like she knew Bryn used her account, but just kept quiet about it probably because it reduced her losses. So she wasn't perfect here, but it does look like she was mainly a fish who was taken advantage of and maybe colluded against. And if Bryn really presented herself himself as her friend, which it appears to be, because I, I see that picture of him standing behind her with his arms on her shoulders after she won some tournament in 2019, a live tournament, then if he really did the things that are being alleged, it, it's pretty bad. That's a really, really crappy way to treat anyone, let alone your friends. So that, that was the HE22 account that uh, Bryn got rich off of. And uh, I don't think she ever p- paid him fully back for the money that she was given in credit. And she showed some screenshots. I'm not going to read them all, but a bunch of text messages where he's demanding that she pay. And uh, she was refusing. But then she's posting them to show that he kept changing the figure. And she's saying that he didn't even know what the figure was. He was just kind of throwing out random numbers what she owes. Uh, she's also posting them to show that he's the one collecting the money, that it wasn't her losing directly on GG. I, I think it's pretty clear that Bryn is the one, or was the one, shall I say, who was handling all cashier duties of anyone's playing under him. And she claims that the reason that they dropped him was because they grew, especially probably during the pandemic, they really grew. And then they didn't need this liability anymore, so they just... Uh, threw him and other agents under the bus and got rid of them. And they severed the connection with him and they severed the connection with a number of people. There were other people on Twitter who were claiming that their agencies were just grabbed by GG. Ben Keyline tweeted, my agent account was closed and my players were absorbed. It was real neat. I didn't bring in enough whales, he's saying. Now, this isn't about Bryn, but this was an allegation regarding this uh, agent account that Ben said he had that Gigi just took. I wonder if that was around the same time in 2020. There was another person who claimed it, and uh, that tweet's been deleted. 
I'm not sure why again, but forgot even who it was. I got to screenshot these things because uh, just linking tweets and then when they disappear, I can't read them anymore. But uh, at least two people came forward who were agents who said that Gigi just took their agency from them. Uh, apparently, Bryn had the power to take uh, people's agency that were playing under him, who were like also agents. But we'll get into that shortly. Let's go back to this interview with Martin, and I'm going to move to the 2519 mark, where he talks about Carrie Katz being involved somewhat. The screen name Sharkbait mean anything to you? That's Carrie Katz. Okay, interesting. So I assume Carrie Katz isn't a part of this in any capacity. Well, Carrie Katz has funded Bryn's whole lifestyle forever, doing everything. I don't really have anything bad to say about Carrie Katz. What do you mean um, funded his lifestyle? I mean, I think the same way that – I don't know for sure. I'll just explain this. When I went in part to Party Poker Bahamas, to the Party Poker tournaments, when I registered, I registered under Carrie Katz's account, as did multiple other high-stakes regs who played on GG. So we would register under Carrie's account, and when we cashed, it went back into Carrie's account. Did Carrie know this was going on? I, I assume, yes, yes. Now, you must be really confused right now. Like, wait, how are they all playing under Carrie's account? What does he mean by Carrie's account? Like, I, I'm sitting here going, what? They're, they're all like Carrie Cats? Are there like uh, 20 Carrie Catses at the table somehow all playing? <laughs> but this is just Martin being high and not explaining things well. It'll be clarified in a second. To prove it in some, you know, uh, how would he not? Wow, that's that's surprising that Carrie would kind of get caught up in something like this because my understanding's my understanding is Carrie is I, I feel like he doesn't really play in in the the gray margin too much when it comes to poker stuff. He's usually like I don't really know how gray market this is, anyways. But <laughs> all the GG players would sign up under Carrie's account. Oh, so they're basically they're just getting a kickback to Carrie, or pl- they would play on his account in, in live events. I'm saying. Oh, like I see. If you went to sign up, it, like there was a bunch, of, an approved list of people who could use Carrie's account to buy in. Oh, okay. So they were using it for funding. They weren't playing yes. on Carrie's account. Oh, that yeah, makes sense. Yes. Okay, that's much more yes, reasonable. Sorry oh, sorry. Okay, just, just, I'm glad we cleared. That. <laughs> so this wasn't that scandalous. It turned out. It does show that Carrie Katz was involved, and I, I probably do believe that he was staking Bryn to some extent. And maybe that's where Bryn was getting his funding. But Carrie Katz is like a billionaire. And I couldn't see him getting involved in any kind of scamming here or any kind of schemes. Mainly because he doesn't need the money. I mean, why would he? Why, why would uh, someone with so much money need to do this? Why would he do this? So uh, that's what Doug was surprised about. And then this was clarified that they probably talked Carrie into putting up a bunch of funds for when people go play abroad so they don't have to worry about getting the money abroad. It's not always easy to transfer money abroad. So there were probably trusted players on GG that would be trusted to buy in via Carrie's funds. Carrie probably uh, wire huge money there that these people can take the funds out of and that he would send them an approved list of players that could buy in using his money, and then they would just take it out of these people's GG accounts. I, I assume that's what he's talking about, which isn't really scandalous at all, 
But it does show that Carrie Katz has some connection here to Bryn, and he's alleging that Carrie Katz, in fact, was, quote, funding Bryn's lifestyle, and maybe what he meant by that was, was backing him and basically giving him the funds to operate. Not that Carrie was involved with any kind of wrongdoing, and in fact, Martin even clarifies that Carrie really wasn't and that he has no issue with him. But it's interesting that Carrie Katz had this uh, peripheral involvement here. Just wanted to play that for you. Now we're going to get to some more ghosting stuff at 2851. Satellites. What do you know about the uh, stories where people would play higher stakes while being ghosted? Um, I know you said that someone would basically kind of like take half your action and ghost you in some of these events. Was that happening at, at a widespread scale across some of the Bryn Kenny stable or what other stories of higher stakes ghosting are, are you aware of? Okay, here's what happened. I torched an FT, a final table once and Bryn messaged Bryn yelled at me, went off on me. And he goes, next time you're deep in a spot, just call Sergi, have someone help you. And I was just like, well, don't want to get dropped. I guess I'll do that next time. Um, By the way, I just want to point out, that's a pretty fucked up situation to put a stake in. Yeah, like I didn't really know what to do. Like I was pretty busto at the time and like not trying to get dropped in Mexico with zero dollars. Like what do you want me to say? Yeah, that's fair. Um, so next time, I'm like 12 left in a 1500 WSOP bracelet event on GG. I message Sergi, hey, I'm deep. He goes, I'm eating dinner right now. I'll be there soon. He comes over. I'm like one of four. Brings his whole laptop RTA situation. Torches it immediately. Real shocker. Guy sucks at poker. Wait, Sergi came in, in real life to where you were? Yeah, he, we... I literally had to move to Mexico during Corona and live with cocksucker Mizikowski. And Sergi had to live in the floor under us and like came over. We had to do yoga every day. All this bullshit. That, that might be the worst thing I've heard all day. Having to do yoga with some I'm cocksuckers? Just, I'm, just, I'm just joking. Oh my God. Okay, so this is an interesting allegation that Bryn made Martin and this David Mizikowski guy that from this point forward... He keeps referring to his cocksucker Mizikowski, and then Doug Polk abbreviates it to CSM, which is kind of funny. But that Martin and CSM had to live directly above this Sergi guy, who was a Spaniard, in Mexico, and that they had to move to Mexico during the coronavirus pandemic when there was no vaccine in 2020. And that any time they made a final table, Sergi had to come upstairs and basically take over. And that was the agreement, that they could play up until the final table, and then at that point, Sergi has to take over. And then Martin was saying Sergi wasn't even that good. He was saying he sucks at poker, which who knows if that's true. Maybe Sergi's good at poker and better than Martin. Who knows? But that was his opinion that Sergi sucked at poker. But regardless, that that Sergi had to take over for him or CSM, David Mizikowski, if either of them made a final table and would physically do so by coming upstairs because they live right above him for that purpose. That is interesting. So let's get to Sergi because he, he responded. He had, he made a statement. Now, first he tweeted out a statement that he typed up this long statement and then I guess shrunk it down to something enough to fit on one screen so the result was that if you were over 20 years old, 
you were probably unable to read it because the print was too tiny. (laughs) So people were telling Sergey that he deserves eight years in prison just for using that font. (laughs) I don't think it was the font. I think he just shrunk it down. But whatever it was, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't read that thing. I'm 50 years old. (laughs) Even when I was like 25, it would have been a struggle to read that thing. But fortunately, it was then reprinted by Haley Hintz and uh, I was able to read a normal-sized version of it. So here's the statement by Sergey, which I will read you. This is uh, Sergey Rykak, Rysik, I don't know, R-E-I-X-A-C-H. I I don't know how how you say that name. He's a Spaniard. Here's what Sergey said. After watching the series of tweets and the interview given by Martin Zamani yesterday, I feel forced to write and comment fully in order to deny certain accusations he threw at me and provide more content for some of his other accusations. First of all, I think it's important to show the current state of the relationship between Martin and me, so attaches a screenshot of some of my texts with him that show the anger and violent threats he made to me. I feel he blames me for everything wrong in his life, and the level of hate he has towards me has reached a point to where I have been receiving death threats from him for the last few months. As you can see, it's true that I helped him at the World Series of Poker online final table. I like helped him. Wait, wait, wait. How do you help someone at a final table? The whole point of being at a poker final table is that you're there alone. Nobody's supposed to help you. So right there, he's admitting that uh, he ghosted him, which, of course, is wrong. As he said in the interview, I was having dinner with my wife and received a text message asking me if I could go there and help. Around that time, I was already coaching him in Mexico, so I went to his place to help him with the final table and used the opportunity to give him some advice on how to play final tables. Things didn't go well, and we busted in the third or fourth hand. You can imagine by the Skype conversation below that this was the first and last time I helped him in a live tournament. And then he shows a Skype where Martin Zamani writes to him, I hope you die. And then says, uh, seven minutes later, if only I was kidding. And then the next day, which appears to be on uh, July 29th, 2021. God, I can't believe how bad you torched my WSOP stack with four left on GG with Jack 10. Even Jonathan Little knew it was a check back. I hate you. So he's trying to say that he made some kind of uh, bad play, Sergey, and it torched the stack. And I guess they're talking about back in 2020. So, like, I guess Martin's sitting there pissed off for whatever reason, probably because he was broke, and just firing angry messages at Sergey, saying, I hope you die. I wish I was kidding. God, I can't believe you torched my stack. And What kind of coach are you? Even Jonathan Little uh, knew this was terrible. I don't know why he's saying that about Jonathan Little, but uh, Jonathan Little wasn't involved here, but he's trying to say that Jonathan Little, like, analyzed the hand and said it was stupid. That's basically what he's trying to say. Then he said, I'm coming for it all, for your entire livelihood, for your hotel, for it all. Let's play heads up on WSDP.com for twenty five fifty or higher. Die faggot. <laughs> Actually, the die faggot came over a month later on September 5th, 2021, according to the screenshots. So what uh, Sergey's trying to show by this is that he only did this once. Now, this doesn't prove that. This just proves it's the one he's really pissed off about. It's very possible that Martin uh, was helped several times by Sergey at the final table, but this is the one he remembers, that he feels that Sergey made an awful play with Jack-10 and that shot off his stack and that that was the big one he could have really won and that Sergey's advice is horrible and he's still sitting here pissed about this a year later. That doesn't mean they never did it. That just means that's the one he's really angry about. 
It's not like he said, the one time you ghosted me, blah, blah. He didn't say anything like that. So that doesn't prove anything. So then he says, the accusations of a ghosting scheme are completely false. I did coach several horses of Bryn Kenny's, uh, same as uh, Brett Stevens, Giraffe Ganger, who's uh, on Twitter, Giraffe Ganger 7. During the interview, he also accused me of assisting his play with the, quote, RTA system device, as if I had some kind of dream machine for MTTs. That's not true. I asked GG Poker several times for my hand histories to prove that my game is far from GTO, meaning Game Theory Optimal, but they didn't let me have my hands. This will connect to the second accusation he threw at me. It is true that I'm banned from GG since 2020, because uh, Sergey is banned, uh, as he mentioned there, for real-time assistance. According to GG, that was due to the illegal preflop charts. I'm not going to say I never used preflop charts or that the charts I used are or should be legal. I just want to remark on something we all know. Almost 100% of professional poker players at some point use some kind of preflop charts. And the line where those preflop charts became illegal, unethical, is not that clear and also moves from one year to another and from one site to another. (laughs) Okay. I will acknowledge that a number of people use these preflop charts. I've never used them, by the way. Not that I play much No Limit Cash. I'm more of a limit player, but uh, it's not the quote, everyone used preflop charts. It is true that preflop charts were going around some years ago and that people were using them. And at one time, PokerStars was even stupid enough to temporarily allow them before outrage occurred and PokerStars reversed the decision. However, this was not super widespread. It was happening, but it wasn't as widespread as he's saying, like uh, like almost 100% of professional poker players. No. But this was years ago. That was then. This is now. Or this was at least 2020. In 2020, it was very well accepted in the poker community that pre-flop charts were basically equivalent to botting and that they should not be allowed. So this is a dumb answer he's giving. I'll tell you some other things that were considered fine a long time ago that aren't fine now. For example, multi-accounting. In the 2000s, especially the early and mid-2000s, it was considered perfectly acceptable to have several accounts that would you would use on uh, poker sites in order to deceive opponents. It was considered acceptable to ghost and to uh, borrow your friend's account. I mean, this was happening all over the place in the mid-2000s until there started being discussion of this and some scandals, which were really egregious, like Bonomo's, where he actually had several accounts running at once in the same tournament. But the multi-accounting I'm referring to is cash game multi-accounting, where you're not playing two accounts at once, but that you are jumping between accounts so that people can't uh, keep track of your play style as well. And these were all new things to get used to in poker, because in live poker, you can't become a different person when you sit down. So everyone recognizes you and knows your play style. But online, you could. So it took some years for the ethics of these things to be discussed and the etiquette in the community to develop. So you can't say, well, people were sharing accounts back in 2005 and everybody was fine with it then. Well, yes, but it's not 2005 anymore. And... There's an etiquette in the community that he was very aware of that by 2020, not only was it considered cheating to use these preflop charts, but also GG Poker had these in their terms of service that you cannot use them. And if you're using them, then you're getting an unfair advantage over other pros who are following the rules. And that's the biggest problem. If there's a free-for-all online poker site that says, use whatever tools you want, 
as long as you don't sit at the same table with yourself or share whole cards with friends, if you want to use all the tools you have access to, then go ahead. Then at least everybody has access to those tools. So go, go, go use them and go get them. But not if everyone is supposed to be operating without them and then use them anyway. That gives you a huge edge. So that's crap to say, oh, well, you know, in previous years, it was okay. No, you're on a site where you're not allowed to and you're using them anyway. So the, yes, that was cheating. You're admitting to cheating there, Sergey. As an example, a few years ago, the support team of one of the biggest sites confirmed that having thousands of static preflop charts was allowed for use in-game. He's referring to PokerStars. Also, I'd like to remark that at the high-stakes level, the use of preflop charts is almost irrelevant and serves as an initial guide in every spot that you must deviate from chip EV solutions due to ICM and future game considerations. (laughs) And I massively do that all the time. Come on. I love it when people cheat and they say, well, actually, it wasn't helping me that much. It, it was almost irrelevant. You know? it's like, yeah, I was cheating technically, but it, it almost gave me no edge. Yeah, bullshit. You wouldn't be doing it if it gave you almost no edge. I hate when people say things like that. Oh, it didn't really matter, though. Of course it mattered. The only reason you did it because it mattered. Finally, there was the accusation that all of the Spaniards colluding and saw playing in the 5Ks, 25Ks, that accusation is completely false. And there's not a single proof or clue that can make anyone think that it happened. It shouldn't be on me, the responsibility of defending against it, but I will do so anyway. First of all, the other Spaniards are not banned and still play on GG, even when I'm sure that I, we, were heavily investigated by GG's support team. Second, I don't expect people to trust my word, but I want to share some of my background. For seven years, I lived with a player named Pablo Tenesis on another high-stakes Spanish pro. In those seven years, he's the only one I ever swapped action with in tournaments, the only time we were ever in a tricky spot was in a scoop four max final table. As soon as we both got to the final table, we warned the rest of the players that we were living together. It'd be best to make a deal. Poker Stars ran an investigation on its own, which was cleared without any problems or doubts. We knew the investigation only after support sent by a mistake, a complete player profile to Pablo, which showed Stars private information that one Connor one was at the final table and can verify we offered the deal. Okay. So I, I don't like that line of defense either. It's, it's like, Hey, here's an example where I acted honestly honestly and ethically, so therefore, I always did. Therefore, I never cheated because, look here, I could have cheated and didn't. It's like a guy saying, hey, um, my wife is accusing me of cheating on her, but, but let me tell you about this one time when I was at a bar and a woman came on to me and I said no. That proves I've never cheated. No, it doesn't. I just showed you didn't cheat with her that night. Maybe you weren't into her. Maybe you just didn't feel like it. Maybe you thought that someone was there that would report back to your wife. Just because on that one instance you turned down a woman you could have cheated with doesn't mean that you aren't cheating or didn't cheat with others. So same thing here. It's very possible that he knew it was well-known among the people that were observing this or playing that he and this Pablo Tenesis guy were uh, living together. And they're like, oh, crap, this is going to be horrible optics unless right now we offer a deal. Otherwise, there's going to be like heavy suspicion that we're colluding. So they try to make it look as pure as possible. So that doesn't mean he's honest. That just means in this one case, they offered a deal. I mean, that's that's such a dumb defense. You can never use the defense, look at this one time I was honest to show I was honest all the time. Does not work in anything. I and the Spanish poker community have also been investigated several times by poker stars regarding our play in the six max turbos and hypers, and we were never banned. Okay, but why were you investigated? I bet I was never investigated by poker stars for collusion. 
I don't know for sure. But I, I have a feeling it never happened. In all my years of poker stars, I don't believe once was I investigated for collusion. So I like he's like constantly talking about all the investigations, but oh, but we never were banned. I've been investigated a lot, but I've never been convicted, guys. I'm an honest guy. Like if you've been investigated a ton, that's not a good look. Maybe you're just really unlucky and you kept being the victim of false accusations, but it's also possible you were investigated and they just couldn't quite find enough to get you. So that's not something to brag about. Then here's my favorite part, arguably, in the whole statement. I did not bum hunt in any aggressive way. (laughs) What? What? I did not bum hunt in any aggressive way. What does that mean? Either you bum hunted or you didn't in any aggressive way. Is there a way to passively bum hunt? Bum hunt means you're sitting with fish and only sitting when a fish is in the game. And if the game doesn't have at least one fish that you recognize, you're not going to sit. So he's saying, I didn't bum hunt in any aggressive way. You can't aggressively bum hunt. Either you do it or you don't. You can say, I never bum hunted. That, yes, sometimes I happen to sit in games with fish, but I would also sit in very tough games. I just would sit down whenever a game is going. Sometimes it was a good game. Sometimes it wasn't. I wasn't bum hunting. You could say that. Or you could say, yes, I was bum hunting, but I was just uh, engaging in game selection. So I I just don't want to play a game that's just me and other pros. It's not worth my time. It's too much risk, too much variance. I'd rather play when I'm greater positive expectation when there's a fish in the game, at least one fish. So yes, that's what I did. Some of you may say it was bum hunting, but that's just game selection. Sorry. And you know, that's fine. I I actually am not anti-bum hunting like a lot of people are, because I think anyone has the right to select the games they want to play. And I think there are some forms of bum hunting which can be harmful to poker if it becomes too obvious. Like if a fish sits out, uh, the whole table shouldn't sit out. It looks very bad. That used to go on all the time in the 2000s, by the way, too. But uh, that's the type of thing that the community frowns upon now, and I understand. And I've had it happen both live and online, where the fish goes to the bathroom or sits out or whatever it is, and everybody just keeps playing on, assuming the fish is going to come back. And you just deal with the fact that it's only you and a few other good players for the time being. Bum hunting, you're either doing it or you're not. There's no such thing as an aggressive way. Again, that's it's like it's really putting something there to make yourself sound better while being afraid to completely lie about it. So it's not that I didn't bum hunt. It just wasn't aggressive bum hunting. <sighs> Hilarious. Then he finishes by saying, in hindsight, I know I made some mistakes and should act differently, but it's more clear that Martin is throwing false accusations against me. No, it's not. <laughs> you didn't clarify anything here, except that you're kind of shady. <laughs> so... That was not a very good defense posted by Sergey. And, you know, this does show that you know, Martin's not just making all this up. Because if he's making all this up, we would have seen a very different denial here. Here this is kind of like, well, okay, so some of this was true, but let me explain. Or uh, let me tell you, I, I bum hunted, but not aggressively. <laughs> like, you know, uh, I, I, I was uh, banned from GG for real-time assistance, but it was just charts, guys. It, it wasn't really... Uh, RTA. It wasn't that. It was just a chart that if you printed it out, it would uh, cover the whole United States. But it was a chart. It was still a chart, right? Like It doesn't matter if it's uh, 5 billion pages. It's still a chart. What the hell are you talking about? Sorky. Okay, so let's get back to this interview. I want to get to the Mark Herm part. And 
Mark Herm really is the Teflon player of poker because there's been allegations against him since the 2000s, and yet none of it sticks. And I'll tell you, when I had him on the show, I didn't even know about these allegations. That's how poorly they stuck. <laughs> even me running Poker Fraud Alert didn't know this. And yet when I Google him, I see allegations going back to like 08 and always about multi-accounting. Like the, this guy is constantly accused of multi-accounting and somehow his reputation stayed okay. This is Mark Herm, a.k.a. Dipthrong. Sean T. finally had enough in January and called it out, which we covered on this show. Here it is again. Deeb claimed at the time that Herm had been multi-accounting for 20 years. He said, since I'm fired up and since many of you know this, I hope all poker sites ban Mark Herm and in all his accounts, he really thinks it's okay after 20 years to continue to steal equity from his peers by multi-accounting. Sad I used to call him a friend. And then Herm was just like very sarcastic back to him and everybody else who was criticizing him. So he just said, you guys need to get better at poker, which is a pretty obnoxious response. Someone says, hey, you know, you're, you're stealing from the community by multi-accounting. Yeah, you just need to get better at poker. What the hell? And then when Kane Callis bashed him, Herm said back to Kane, you're a complete fraud sociopath and a lot of people in the poker world know it. <laughs> And then Sean Deeb said it. his friend circle literally admits it when talked about it. Mark doesn't deny it either. He said, what was done 15 years ago is not the same as someone doing it for 15 years straight while learning what rules and ethics are, which is basically what I just said, that 15 years ago, a lot of people were multi-accounting, that today, multi-accounting is considered very bad. Now, also in January, there was a very explosive allegation against Herm by Sean Deeb. I know he won a World Series of Poker bracelet in the online 3200 or something, but I'm not in his inner circle or play online, but he's clearly brash about it, has no shame admitting to it. His friend circle won't deny it either, and they mostly defend him saying everyone does it. Now, Sean is never clear with his tweets. He's a very poor writer, very good poker player, very terrible writer. But Sean D was trying to say there that Mark Herm won a bracelet under somebody else's account. Can you imagine there's someone with a bracelet out there that allegedly was not won by them? It was actually won by Mark Herm. Mark Herm won a bracelet and cannot even claim it because he did it on somebody else's account, <laughs> according to both Sean Deeb and now also Martin Zamani. Listen to this. Okay. We've already talked about that. Um, you briefly mentioned Mark Herm in your tweets. What was his involvement, or would he just coach people? Or I just saw that I just saw you throw his name in there for a second. So after I left and wasn't being coached or involved with them anymore, my the the horse who I had staked under my stake kept his stake with Brent, and they got coaching from Giraffe and Herm, and Giraffe everything on the up and up, and Mark Herm was like, anytime your final table, I'm ghosting you, unofficially. So, like, that was the only way Mark was willing to do it, is if he was going to ghost all the final tables. Mark won, I think, I know at least one bracelet he won on the other account. I linked it somewhere, the Hendon Mob, the 3200 ring uh, bracelet event. Now, he did link it, and uh, now we see it. When Deeb said this, most people didn't understand what he was referring to, because Deeb is such a bad writer. But Zamani was much more clear about it and actually linked this event. This was the $3,200 No Limit Hold'em eight-handed event, the online event number seven in the 2021 
Online World Series. Took place on November 7th, 2021. It wasn't even that long ago. The winner, the bracelet winner is Jacob Neff. Jacob Neff, the winner of the event. And Zamani, and I guess apparently Sean Deeb as well, are claiming that Neff wasn't the real winner. That when he made the final table, that Herm basically took over. And that Herm was Neff's coach with the agreement that if he makes the final table, that he has to come there and help him. And presumably get some or a lot of the money that is won there. I'm not sure what the deal was, but Zamani and, and Deeb a few months ago were both alleging that this bracelet was actually won by Herm at the final table and that it was just Neff's account that was taken over by Herm, maybe taken over in person. I, I don't know if, what way the ghosting was done. I don't know if, if uh, Herm came over physically. I don't know if they were on the phone. I don't know if they were team viewing. I don't know if uh, it was just through text, like, I have this hand now, what should I do while Herm is watching? There's a lot of ways that ghosting can be done and that the player can be instructed what to do. In fact, the player could be uh, very bad at poker, and as long as you have a good person instructing them exactly what to do and you know their whole cards, then they could play just as well as, as a great player. So Herm is accused of, of taking over at the final table there and actually winning that bracelet, which technically went to Neff, which is interesting if true. But there's been allegations against Herm about multi-accounting dating way back. You can see it if you Google it by different people. It's not the same guy making the allegations over and over or different people repeating old allegations over and over. I mean, you keep hearing this about Mark Herm, which is crazy. And, and yet somehow every time, including maybe this time, he doesn't take a ton of heat from it. Like here, people discussed it. But they're more focusing on Bryn Kenny because he's the bigger name and he was the head of the stable and Mark Herm has kind of been reduced to a side character in this whole thing. I wonder when his day is finally going to come when people just don't want to tolerate this anymore and say, look, there's just too many people all saying the same thing and, and we all hate you. But but somehow Herm has not become a pariah into the community, which is surprising. I don't know how he does it. Let me let uh, this play a little bit more here. He won that. He also runs a mixed game site with Paul G with uh, Volpe Oceans Club. It's called. There's like high stakes regs that are like sharing cards in there too. And I tried to tell Mark Herm about it, and he just deleted my message. And I was just like, "Well, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this?" You told Mark Herm about shared cards. I, I messaged him and I said, "Hey, I think there's some cheating going on in your games." And he just deleted my message and didn't say anything else. And I was just like, "I mean, I, I guess I get it. He's a part of it. He's a cheater too. Sure." How did you find out that there was sharing cards going on in that game? I know the people who are sharing cards in that game. They're Bryn's horses. Is it some of the people we talked about earlier, or is it other people you don't want to disclose? Well, I don't know. All right. If you don't want that's fine. No, no sweat. You don't have to. I mean, I appreciate taking the time just to kind of go through this stuff anyway. Wait, let me stop right here. You may wonder... How does this Martin guy have so much knowledge of all this cheating, but how come he's never admitting to doing it himself? I mean, yeah, he's admitting letting people ghost, but he's claiming he was forced by Bryn to do it. So he's trying to sound like he's almost innocent here. And I, I didn't play this. You know, I'm not playing the entire interview. I'm playing little highlights from it. But uh, near the beginning, he was saying that he was basically broke and had no choice other than to play under Bryn that uh, he claims he was scammed by this Dennis Bleeden who ended up uh, going to prison for embezzlement. And that uh, when 
bleeding was caught, then uh, I guess money was owed to him. He didn't get it. He was flat broke. And then Bryn Kenny, who also knew bleeding, said, hey, how would you like to play for me? And he felt like he had no choice. So the whole theme of this, and you'll hear this when we get into the stuff about the shaman, which is pretty entertaining, that this was all... uh, Basically, I had no choice. I had to do such and such because I had no other way to play other than Bryn backing me. That's, that's been a persistent theme in this from Martin. And uh, while Martin doesn't claim to be completely innocent, it keeps we keep hearing stories, such and such people were colluding, were cheating, were ghosting, all this. And his part in it is always presented as minimal, where he kind of has at worst a passive part, like letting someone take over his, his account or whatever. So how did Martin know? Let's say this whole card sharing was really going on on this uh, high-stakes private poker club that was run by Paul Volpe and Mark Herm. That mixed games were going there at high stakes and there was whole card sharing going on by some players in the game. Which, by the way, it's insane that people play on these uh, private apps that have no kind of verifiable security and there's so many different ways cheating can go on for all this money. I mean, people are so stupid to play on these type of apps. Even if the apps are secure themselves, which is doubtful. The fact that these can run and uh, there's really no security team to investigate collusion or whole card sharing or anything else. And of course, that will go on. So it's not surprising to hear this. But he's claiming that he brought to Mark Herm that he knows for sure that people told him in Bryn's stable that they were sharing whole cards on this high stakes uh, mixed game site that Herm was co-running with Paul Volpe, and that Herm just uh, didn't care. Well, I don't know if that conversation really happened that way, and we've seen no proof of that. Let's focus on Martin. Do you think that he just knew this was happening, but never did it himself? I believe, and we're going to go over Martin's background shortly. You'll see he's not exactly a salt-of-the-earth character. I believe he was very involved in all the cheating himself, too. A lot of this cheating he talks about, I think he was a very willing participant. He was very happy to do it. And guess what we haven't heard yet? Guess what we still don't even know? Not haven't we heard it yet, we're not going to hear it. Why he's doing this? Why is Martin Zamani coming forward about this? Because this guy has a past that shows he's not a very ethical or honest character. So while I think a number of these stories might be true, I'm not saying he's just making all this up. In fact, some of it's been verified. But while I think a lot of this might be true, I don't believe he just had a crisis of conscience where he felt, oh, wow, you know, I've known about all this cheating and I've said nothing. I better come forward and tell Doug Polk and I better tell Twitter too. Like, I don't believe that. And he doesn't even claim that. He doesn't even claim he had some kind of uh, moral breakdown and, and just had to do it. He just says, I I can't tell you why, but there is a reason. Well, I don't know the exact reason, but I know the approximate reason. The approximate reason is he had some kind of falling out with Bryn, and this is the way to get him back. He's pissed off at Bryn for some reason, and he's like, okay, well, I know a lot of his dirty laundry, and I'm going to put it all out there. I'm going to make Bryn look terrible. I'm going to destroy his rep. I'm going to destroy him because I'm super pissed at him. And maybe a lot of these stories are true. Maybe most are true. But it's being done out of spite. I'm just about sure of that. That is why I believe he's doing it. But that doesn't mean that Martin, who was part of everything, that he wasn't doing a lot of really bad things himself. I think he happily went along with this as long as he could make money. And from the character I've seen of him, 
I strongly believe that he was a very happy participant in this whole thing. And he's only coming forward with all this just to fuck over Bryn. And you may say, well, yeah, but it's kind of screwing over himself. Not really, because uh, if he's not being staked by Bryn anymore, which I presume may have been part of the reason that he's coming forward with this, and he's broke, he comes forward with this, he is not the huge name like Bryn is. So Bryn takes far more damage from this than he does. He can come forward and say, yeah, I was part of Bryn's cheating stable, and people will pay attention to the Bryn part a lot more than him, because he's kind of a nobody, and Bryn is a very big name. So I think that Martin uh, either was participating in this uh, mixed game cheating on this app, or he had knowledge of it because he was involved in several other cheating schemes and just knew of this one and then, again, got mad at some other people and tried to go to Herm about it. And then when Herm didn't seem that interested, he was frustrated. He thought he was going to tattle on these people and get them thrown off the site and maybe not get them, you know, have their money confiscated. And then if Herm really was like, okay, well, thanks for telling me bye, and then nothing happens, he was probably frustrated. But this does seem to be kind of a pattern that this Martin guy goes and uh, reports bad behavior of others that he was witness to when he has some kind of falling out with him. So uh, definitely this guy's no hero. He might be telling the truth, and I think I believe a lot of what he's saying, but he's not a hero here. You have to keep in mind he probably was involved in a lot of cheating, more than he's owning up to. So that uh, is something I want to say before we move on to the shaman stuff, which is definitely the most entertaining of this whole saga. So remember, he tweeted about being forced to see a shaman and doing something with a frog. <laughs> so listen to this stuff with, with, with the poison for the frog and the acid in his eyes and the shaman. Listen to this. This is a crazy story. Listen to this shaman stuff because that, that struck me as pretty fucking weird. Can you explain the role of the shaman and or is there a psychic? Are they separate people? Are these the same person? Can you break no, they're that separate down? people. Okay. Um, so it goes something like this. Um, after the, after I'm stuck 40k with Bryn, and he's like, you know, I see. He says like all these nice things about me. He's like, I see some of you in me. Blah blah blah. Um, I'm gonna give you a stake. I'll, you know, I'll do whatever you need. Build you up. Whatever. You know. He's like, first things first, though. You got to get your energy right. You got to go see the shaman. And I'm just like, what? Okay. You know, whatever. You know, I'm literally completely bust though. I'm owed like 90 Bitcoin by someone who's in federal prison. I'm never seeing that. And I'm having to like repay numbers that like I vouched for for him. He's referring to Dennis Bleeden, the 90 Bitcoin that's owed to him. Who knows if that's true, but it is true that Bleeden is in uh, prison. I, I kind of believe that's kind of how he got to know Bryn. So I'm just like, Sure, I guess I'll do this. Go to some lady's house in Vegas. Um, go to her garage, ritual room. Very sketchy room. Very sketchy. I, don't, I, I just don't know how to explain it. It looks like where you would have a ritual. And she talks to me a little. And she goes, she says she's from Africa. She, go, she looks at me. She goes, I'm a warlord. I was the warlord's wife. I'm a killer. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. All these other bad things. She goes, but I tell you these things straight to your face. And I'm like, 
I, I don't know what this means. Like, I, I can't tell, like, if this is a test where, like, I'm supposed to be, like, texting Bryn and telling her that she's crazy, like, trying to find out where my loyalty is or whatever, or, like, this lady's insane and Bryn is just as insane. I have no idea what's going on at this point. Like, I'm stunned. Was it just you and the shaman or were there other people there? Yeah, it was just me and the shaman. She had, like, some, like, her husband upstairs or, like, her daughter upstairs or something. Don't really. No one that I interacted with, really. So what did you do after she's telling you these things? So we talk about stuff and she goes, I think you need to cleanse yourself. We're going to do something called, we're going to do the combo. And I'm like, the who? And she's like, it's called combo. Um, it cleanses you. It's good for you. It's a little violent. You know, like, you know, that's spelled K-A-M-B-O if you want to Google it. Don't feel like you get really sick, but it cleanses you. And she's like, I'm going to go outside for a few minutes and you look it up on your phone. Okay. Did you happen to look it up? What am I Googling? K-A-M-B-O. K-A-M-B-O. Frog medicine. Okay, so I saw some frog stuff in here. And but look like look at the images though. Do, is it going to be bad? It, it's no, it's okay. You look. Okay. You, you oh yeah, basically I see. become like a Dragon Ball Z character. I see. Okay. Yeah. So she takes like an incense and puts it against your skin, so it blisters up. She then cuts off the blister with a knife, so your pores are open, and then she takes the poison from the frog and puts it on you this into makes, the into the cut yes into the cut into your open wound wow this is the first time i've ever met her i have no idea what the hell is going on i literally barely know Bryn at the time and i'm just like excuse me that is insane that's absolutely insane what did you did, did you consider backing out or did of you course like- i backed out what the hell Oh, you didn't do it. Of course not. Okay, sure, I was gonna sure say. Enough, year, and sure enough, a year later, cocksucker Musikowski and Sergi have both done it. Don't seem to be having really good times. The other people, one person who did do it is like Martin. I'm really proud of you for not having done it. I did one dot with her. Not good. You're supposed to do it like three different times with her too. She didn't even mention this that I was gonna have to go through this process three times. And what? it just makes you like violently shit yourself and throw up and like your face swells up like a frog. It's disgusting. Well, props to you for not going through with, you know, forced shaman ritual drug processes. You know, I'm all about the drugs. I'll eat some mushrooms on cam if you want right now, but uh, we're, we're good. Be- let's let, let, let's keep let's keep it non mushrooms for now. We still we still have stuff that we that we, we got to get to. Okay, <laughs> keep it non mushrooms for now. This guy was doing enough on the camera with all the vaping, and he was constantly high. So yeah, they need him to do mushrooms on top of that. But yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. If this story is true, and there must be some truth to this, but he's not going to just make all this up. I mean, that's a pretty outlandish story. That I, I don't think he's just going to make this up out of nowhere. But he's claiming this shaman uh, is. Uh, basically makes an open wound on your body by putting uh, hot incense on you, causing a blister, cutting off the blister, and then there's holes 
on your uh, shoulder. I, I see pictures of it. If you Google K-A-M-B-O and then hit images, you'll see these kind of holes. And then they they drip this frog poison in there. And then that's supposed to cause all these effects. And he said no way and, and wouldn't do it. But he claims that this uh, CSM guy, David uh, Mizikowski, and one other person actually did it and didn't enjoy it very much. And but there's more. Hold on. Okay, so so what happened when you told I assume afterwards you told Bryn it was Bryn's was it Bryn's idea to go to this woman or what Yes, of course. He he texts her, I have to go to her. I'm just like, okay. And she goes, Well, if you're not gonna do the combo, since I didn't take you for such a chicken. She goes, Lean your head back and open your eyes. And I go, What? She goes, I'm gonna drop acid into your eyes. And I'm like, no, you're not. Like, one, I'm terrified of becoming blind or, like, losing a, something like that, like, really terrifies me. So, like, my eyes, you're not putting any. And she's like, it's going to burn pretty badly, and you're not going to be able to see for a while. And I'm just like, absolutely not. And she's like, I didn't take you for such a chicken. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm a big chicken. I was like, are we done here or what? And she's like, yeah, okay, but – yeah." I guess it just goes like we're we're just like done at that point, I guess. So then you leave, I assume, and then what's the conversation like with Bryn following this failed frog poison cleanse? So like I don't really tell him tell him like that she said that she's a warlord or a killer or all these crazy things, you know, because I literally have no idea what's going on still. Like I don't know if I'm being tested or like I, I just don't get it. And he messages me. He goes, you have to do a mushroom trip with the shaman. And I'm just like, okay. Please tell me you have that message, please. I'm I'm sure there's somewhere in there. If you send me nothing else, if you could send me that one message after this. I'm sure there's a lot of talk about mushrooms. That would be the absolute nuts if if we could have that. But anyway, carry on. Because you got to do another ceremony with the shaman. And I'm just like... Uh, okay i guess like sure do some and then i do some insane mushroom trip with her like probably like nine grams of mushrooms or something and it's like a very odd trip to say the least um i don't know but it was fine I guess. Well, you know. Why would you trust her to do that? Because I feel like if you're... Dude, I needed team, a steak. I was busto, owed people money. I was just trying to work. I'm, I'm just being, you know, what was I going to do? I told my friends and like my family or whatever. I was like, this guy's trying to be a cult leader and wants to be like Warlord Brin or whatever, but I'm busto and I need the work and he's willing to put me in 5Ks, 10Ks, 25Ks and like there's some coaching involved. Like it's probably fine. Like, I mean... My life is already kind of in the pits after the dentist situation. What am I going to do? Why do you think Bryn wanted you to have to go through that? Dude, he had never met her before. I think I was just the guinea pig. He said his girlfriend had met her and like they like kind of interacted or did something. But he had never done any type of ceremonies or drugs with her. That's crazy. I would never give someone drugs that I've never tried before, let alone send them to a shaman. Why would he do this? I don't understand. That makes so little sense to me. He just he just wants is this team building exercise? I guess it's part of like him becoming the cult leader. 
And like, I don't know exactly what happened in their sessions in Hawaii or whatever, but like the shaman was out of her mind. Everyone thought she was out of her mind. Like, I guess I don't want to get into like the details because like some of it is private and doesn't want to be shared anyways. But like, it was clear we had hired the wrong shaman. And like Bryn just did it, I don't know, as like a cult, a cult thing. He was like trying to buy property in like Mount Chasta somewhere. So- wait, 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 wait. Hold on. It was clear that they hired the wrong shaman? <laughs> it was clear they hired the wrong shaman. It's not the problem that they forced him to go to a shaman as part of a poker staking program. That's not the problem. It's that they hired the wrong one. They could have had a better shaman. Maybe one that would not have used frog poison or dripped acid in his eyes. If only they could have had a higher quality shaman, it all could have been fine. We hired the wrong shaman, and Bryn would not admit it. <laughs> we could build a bunch of, like, like a compact. Like, he, he really just wants to be the cult leader. I hope this is slander in some way. You hope it is? I, I sure do. Uh, so when you, you said something about Hawaiian sessions... You made a comment about that. I don't think that anyone knows about Hawaiian shaman sessions. So, like, they all went to Hawaii, like, as a group to perform shaman sessions. They all being Bryn, Bryn, Sergi, Cocksucker, Mizikowski, and a few other people who don't need to be named. Okay. So they went for a big group shaman session. Yeah. Things did not go well, to say the least. What, What happened? I don't know. People aren't very open to talking about it, really. Well, I, one thing's for sure. I can just say I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. So are do other? have you talked to other horses of Bryn's about similar experiences with shamans or drugs or the frog cleanse? Is this something yeah, that's I, happened to other people? Yeah. I mean, there may be a pigeon or two, you know, that have been told before that they're not ready to grow unless they do mushrooms, you know? And, like, it just puts you in an awkward spot. Sometimes you just, like, wake up with less money in your account and you're just told to play smaller stakes because you're, you, like, piss them off in some way or whatever, like, and you don't want to do drugs with them or something. And he just smokes, like, infinite DMT. Like, I don't know. It was, I guess it was before I met him, but like at some points he was like some people saying, some people were saying that he was like claiming to be God and he was just on like way too much DMT. So like a little fried. Yeah. So DMT is a, a psychedelic and he's claiming that Bryn smokes quote way too much of it. So now we're going to hear about two accounts playing at the same table that were part of the stake. It's a little short clip here, but I think it's worth listening to. Bring it back back to some of the other things. Uh, you mentioned a story where there were two PLO accounts and Bryn was playing on both at no, one point. Okay, okay I, explain that story. I was playing... So I'm, Bryn didn't allow me to play 5Ks on GG because he thought I was losing in 5Ks on PLO. But he would allow me to play the 10K PLOs on Party Poker as long as the ghost was playing them also or watching them. So, like, there was a specific time where me and the other account were at the same table in a six-max PLO, and he was playing both accounts. The ghoster. 
Yeah. Okay, so the ghoster is also backed by Bryn Kenny. Yes. All right. And then the ghoster is ghosting two accounts simultaneously at the same game or at the same table? Yeah. And okay, like that's very, very fucked up. Yeah, very, like, very I'm not condoning up. what I did either. You can no, no, I... The cheating, Martin, necklace, whatever. Martin, look, look, man. Like, <laughs> obviously, you made some mistakes here, but uh, I, I appreciate you having the courage to, to stand up and come out with the story to, you know, help protect the games. And obviously, you made a mistake, but you got put in some pretty messed up spots. I'm not saying that makes it okay what you did, but at the same time, I, I really think it takes a lot of courage to, to come forward with the story about what happened. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to go through this with us. Thanks. So they say. So I'm move on to the agent discussion. You'll hear a little bit more about the whole situation with Bryn being this uh, agent for the U.S. players. How was he just taking money out of your account? Oh, well, as your agent, he could literally just take all the money from your account at any time. There was, like, multiple instances where people think that, like, the account just got, like, taken from him. The money just got, like, taken from their account. He had the power to... I didn't know that GG ran on, on um, uh, on a agent system. Correct. I was an agent for Bryn. There's hundred. There's lots of people that were agents for Bryn, and lots of people who have problems with it. Where Bryn said, "Hey, sign people up. You'll get X percent of the rake." People would sign people up, up to like hundred, two hundred people, and Bryn would say, "Your players are playing too small. They're not enough. You got to get, you got to get some whales in there. You know, you got to get people dumping." And if you didn't, he would just take your agency. How There's is he? Ex- tons of people who have problems with this. How is he expecting you to be able to bring people in? Right, you're just a random poker oh, player. Oh, I was supposed. Anytime I played live, I had to have my iPad out and be playing GG on my iPad while VPNing it and telling every signing up everyone at the table. So in America, VPNing it. Yeah, like I would, I would be at the casino, like the Hard Rock, and I'd be on my iPad VPNing GG, literally signing people up. Do you think that GG Poker knew this was going on? Yes. I've a- I asked them many times. I said, do you want me to sign up random people on Twitter who message me? He goes, yes. Bryn said that? Yes. Okay, gotcha. But did you ever talk with any people from GG? No. The only time I ever did was when I tried to, when me and Bryn were done doing business, and I emailed GG saying, can I be removed from Bryn's agency? And they say, we only remove people in very extreme circumstances. So you'll have to explain it to us with proof. And I just never responded. Okay, so this is an interesting allegation that not only was Bryn the agent there who had full control of all the accounts. By the way, him removing money is not quite as bad as it sounds because it was probably his money. It's probably the money he's giving them as stakes. But it was a form of control where he'd say, I'm going to trust you with this much money to enter things. And he's like, ah, you know... You weren't cooperative with the shaman, so I, I'm I'm dropping it. And you'll wake up, and there's less money in your account, and he'll tell you why you're being punished. So that that that's the point there. It's not that he was really stealing from people, and some people were confused by that. Anyway, he was also saying that as a sub agent, that Bryn was just sometimes taking away people's agency, so people they would refer, and they're supposed to get a percentage of those people's rake. Uh, they'll just lose it, and Bryn will just take it over. So I guess he had that power, too, that any agents who signed up under him, that Bryn could just at any time yank it away from them and make these players technically under him. So it's almost like a pyramid scheme. So that 
if true, is shady in itself. So we're going to hear now about this psychic. Remember he talked about a, quote, retard psychic who wasn't actually retarded. It was uh, He was saying this as an insult. But let's hear about this weird psychic, also in Las Vegas, who is separate from the shaman. And let's hear about this. Fair. We talked a little bit about the shaman. Can we talk a little, a little bit about the, quote, retard psychic? What's okay. going on with that? There's a psychic. I believe his name is Jeffrey Wands. Hope he comes after me, too. I would love to see a psychic try to... I, it would just be exciting for me. He's got powers, bro. Listen, this guy was the biggest idiot in the world. He was like, you would get on call with him, and you were forced to do this call, first of all. And my, the first thing that happened was I called him, and he goes, you're early. And I was like, what do you... You told me six. He goes, no, I told you seven. And I was like, well, if you're a psychic, you should know I'm going to be here at six. (laughs) He was wrong. He told me six for sure. Like, there's very little things I'm sure about. That's awesome. And then we get back on call and he starts talking to me and he goes, "Um, one of your something about my grandparents, you know, talking about how I'm really close to them and I miss them. I don't even know their names. I don't know their faces. Honestly, couldn't care less. Have no recollection or think about my grandparents in any way. And I was like, no, you're wrong. And he goes, uh, I saw you were in Australia recently. He goes, I think you were in Australia recently. And I'm like, yeah, you know my name. You looked me up. I just cashed the tournament there. He goes, I didn't do that. And I was like, yes, you did. And he, he's like, no, I didn't. I could feel you were in Australia. And I was just like, all right, cool. What, what, now what? And he goes, you're very close-minded. And I was like, I mean, you're not really saying anything, you know? Like, I, the guy's an idiot. Yeah, yeah. It, he was so, just, and then, what, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so Bryn wanted you to go to this guy? Demanded. Did not want. Demanded. Why? Because he's the psychic. He knows all. Did anything interesting or something pertaining to you come up in the course of that conversation where you felt like... He he said, he goes, there's probably a big court case coming up for you one day in your life, but I don't see jail time. And I was like, well, that's an easy thing to look up to. You can see I've been arrested. I'm probably likely to get arrested again for some nonsense. Like, but Actually, what he was arrested for was not nonsense. It was pretty bad. And it was like nine years ago. But we are going to talk about that before we conclude this segment. And that's another reason to not exactly think that highly about this Martin character. But uh, let's go on. Great. You know, like real detective work here. And so the call hangs up. And 30 minutes later, I get a message from Bryn. Hey, the psychic told me I should stay away from you and your bad energy. So I'll have to think about our relationship or something. And I'm just like, okay. And then he messages me like a day later. He goes, I believe there's good in you. I'm going to give you a chance. And I'm just like, cool. This does have a very cult leader-esque vibe to it. 
we were supposed to become vegans, not eat meat. The, I got t- dude, cocksucker Mizikowski would literally tell Bryn every day when I didn't want to eat some crappy vegetables or f- br- like something. I was, he's like, Martin ordered a burger again today. Like, I'm like, yeah, sorry, dude. I'm just trying to eat the only edible thing that's not making me throw up in this whole country. Why was CSM writing you out? Huh? Why was cocksucker M- Mizikowski writing you out? CSM. Dude, he, he, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. He sucks at poker. He sucks at life. Like, this is his only out in life is, like, being Bryn's slave in any capacity. Like, he just makes things up all the time. Like, our friend would, like, have Taco Bell once and immediately get a text from Bryn, heard you're eating Taco Bell. <laughs> like, come on. This can't be real life. Do you have to get another trip to the shaman or the sidekick for that one? Who what kind knows? of punishment? So so basically, you he, he wanted you to be – I guess talking about lifestyle stuff, did Bryn, Bryn was into your diet and your exercise regimen and your, your body as a temple type stuff or what? So what yeah, was that? Yeah, this was all super important to him. Saw an acupuncturist, had to do yoga. When I didn't do yoga, I would get told on. They're like, Martin didn't do yoga today. Bryn's like, play 500s and under today. I guess you're not <laughs> feeling it. I'm like, can you just leave me alone? <laughs> so if you didn't go to yoga, you had to play smaller stakes? Swear. Wow. Imagine. Well, so if this is true, it is pretty crazy that he doesn't follow all this lifestyle stuff that Brynn is demanding. And if someone tattles on him, he gets lowered in stakes. He gets punished. He gets moved down from 5K tournaments to $500 tournaments. <laughs> Who knows if this is true, but it, it's kind of funny. I mean, I can believe it's true. I can also believe some of this is exaggerated, but I don't think it's completely made up. Like, like maybe this conversation of, oh, you didn't do yoga today. I don't think you're feeling it. You're doing 500s now. Like, maybe it wasn't quite like that, and this is being exaggerated. But I don't think this is totally coming out of left field. Was there a punishment for eating meat? Like, if you got if CSM told Bryn that you ate a burger, did you have to play th- 300s that day? Or, or did it depend how Bryn was it, feeling? It was implied. That? You know, mm-hmm. it was implied, like, very early on. You know, like... If I would reg a 5K, he'd be like, why would you reg this 5K? I'm like, you told me if there's two fish to reg it. He goes, yeah, but you're not in a good mindset right now. You haven't been eating good. I'm like, but that wasn't the agreement. And, I mean, one he would say, like, hilarious things, too. Like, for a, <laughs> they used to have, like, a 1K phase that was, like, one mil guaranteed. And then one week it turned to, like, a 525, and he messages me. He goes, make sure to max fire the... He goes, the phase is half price this week. Good for you since you're a good 30 to 40 bullet dumpster in those. And I'm just like, so should I do, should, can I go back to max late regging? And he's like, no, keep firing. And I'm just like, okay. Why would he say that? He's just talking down. Dude, to you he, just, he just loves the power trip. He loves, he loves it all. All his podcasts, he always says the same thing. It, it's just such nonsense of like fake I haven't positivity. Seen, yeah, there's a lot of fake hashtag positivity in the poker world. I can say that. <laughs> it's a little uh, dig it, fail helmet there by Doug. So you get an idea of what Martin's trying to portray that he claims Bryn was controlling every aspect of your life, including what you're eating, and encouraged other people on the stake to tattle on you if you 
ate fast food or something else that was not approved, and then you'd be punished. These are the claims here, which, if true, are kind of disturbing. So let's move to the one hour, nine minute, 38 second mark. We're getting near the end. And uh, if you want to see the whole thing, you can go to Doug Polk's channel. This is about the agent account. He took my agency at some point, you know, because I didn't bring enough whales. So like, he still has my agency with a bunch of players that play. And he goes, you can either send me because there's like the 40K number we still have going. He goes, you can send me 20K and we can keep our deal going and like end the agency or something like this. Or you can just like be dropped. And I was like, I'm out. I'm dropped. No problem. And that was basically the end of our relationship. So this 40K number means that he owed 40K in makeup to... Bryn, and the way it works is that if you are currently in makeup to the person backing you, then unless you have some prior deal about when the person being staked can end it if they're in the red, it's expected that you keep playing on their stake until you get out of makeup or until they drop you. So they can drop you, but you can't really drop them. So he's saying that what Bryn did is say that I'm willing to walk to, to drop uh, 20k off the 40 of, of what you're in makeup and you can keep playing for me but I'm going to get your whole stable and I'm going to be uh, their agent now so you're not going to get that rake from them or uh, you can just uh, relinquish the whole thing to me and we'll just end the whole stake and he claimed at that point that he snap accepted and said, okay, let's just be done completely and take my players goodbye. And then one morning he messaged me at like 4 a.m. And he goes, are you ready to pay any of your number yet? And I just wrote, LOL. And he goes, yeah, I'm sure that's funny. Just keep scamming people. I'm like, no, LOL. You have my agency through the agency. Our number will square away. Like, it's not a, I don't know what, what you, else. What do you, so th- that's true if that's the way it really happened, that if he took Martin's uh, people that he signed up, if he took Martin's agency there and m- put them under himself, then every time these players play, which he claimed he still had active players on GG that he had signed up, Martin, then these people will make rake back that goes to Bryn. And he's saying with these people playing actively – it will build up to 40K in not too long, and that'll pay the figure I owed you. So you took it from me, so now this is going to generate income from you for you, and then that's going to pay off the 40. So if, if that's true, if Bryn just snatched his agency like that with people he signed up when he was in live card rooms, because remember, Bryn told him to sit there on a laptop when in live card rooms, play on GG so everybody can see, and then encourage others at the table to play through a VPN and to sign up under him. So he's claiming these people were taken by Bryn as ones who are now playing under him, and he's saying, okay, well, you've got these people that'll pay off the 40K. Again, who knows if this story is completely true, but that's what he's saying. So moving here to the levels of like the pyramid scheme here that's being alleged. It's the last thing I'm going to play you at the 
33 mark. It's also almost over, but uh, I'm obviously uh, jumping around here to get to the stuff I think is most important. Let's hear that, and then we'll go on and conclude this uh, whole thing with a few more things I want to tell you, and then we'll be done with this topic. Pretty crazy, huh? But just to clarify some final thoughts here on the, the cliff note version of the things that Bryn Kenny, your stories about Bryn Kenny have brought to light today, according to you, that he's had a lot of stakes in the same games and satellites. He's had people ghosting those stakes in the same games, where there could be card removal by the person that's ghosting. Again, he was backing everyone. He was not the ghoster, but he was backing and was aware of this. Yeah, I was on call with his horse once and the horse that was next to me in Mexico and they were at the same table and I had to tell both of them what to do and guarantee them all a seat. Oh, so you were also the ghoster in one of these? Yeah, I was the ghoster. Okay, so you were both the ghosty and the ghoster. Correct. Wow. Bryn has lots of levels to it. Wow. Yeah, this uh so it's like there's like a wide base and it just kind of goes up towards like one person at the top if you will. It's like one of these and it's correct. One, one one of those types of deals. Okay. Yeah, so that's an interesting allegation too that not only was Martin expected to have people who were considered better than him ghost him when he makes final tables, but people playing under Martin that Martin was expected to ghost for them if Martin was the better player. So they actually had a a, a level list of uh, who ghosts who. Because one person can't ghost everybody, so that uh, someone who's considered not as skilled as Martin would then be ghosted by Martin, but then Martin, if he made a final table, would have to have someone above him ghost him, and uh, he's alleging that was the way that they optimally had the best people doing the final tables. It's pretty interesting stuff, huh? But let's talk about Martin. Should we trust him? Should we believe any of this? And what skeletons does he have? He mentioned how he was arrested. Well, it didn't take long for this to come out on 2 plus 2 and then shared to social media by Brian Paris. And in fact, Brian Paris and Martin got in an argument on Twitter over this being shared. Martin claimed that Brian Paris was just trying to cause a distraction here and attack him and that this isn't really relevant. But I, I think it kind of is. This is on April 22nd. There was an account on 2 Plus 2 that went by Fine Apple, and no one really knows who that is. It might even be a duplicate account. Fine Apple said, I made an account just to let you guys know how mind-bogglingly hypocritical Martin Zamani is. He shouldn't be calling anyone a scammer, as he is a social engineering, Skype hacking, armed robber, and extorter before he learned how to play poker. Wow. If you guys didn't know, this is a guy that got arrested when he was 18 in Boca Raton for assaulting people with brass knuckles to steal their stuff on Craigslist deals. He also extorted a bunch of people in the video game markets. He cost me 5K and stole countless thousands more under the online name Ooga Booga. He hacked my Skype back in 2013 and scammed a bunch of my customers, resulting in my site getting DDoS, and I probably lost 30K over the summer from his ways. Here's some links for your information. Absolute scumbag that hurt so many kids. And then he posted some links, including uh, the Palm Beach Post, which had the story about his uh, crime on Craigslist, which I'll read you shortly. 
He said, there's a ton more if you search into it, but it's been 10 years, so most of the people have moved on. But I couldn't believe it when I saw his name winning all this money in poker. I recognize this scumbag as the guy who stole from me and my customers. So Brian Parrish presented this. And so it looks like Martin was running petty scams like this before taking his shot at the big time. So he and uh, Zamani started fighting back and forth at this point. He said to Doug Polk, I have no issue how you've handled any of this. You don't want to shit on your own source, and the allegations are obviously newsworthy. Just put some of his other claims uh, into a different light. And he referred to one of them being that 65K that he voluntarily gave to Bryn Kenny. So, as I said, they went back and forth, Brian Paris and Martin Zamani. But let's talk about Martin Zamani and the Craigslist thing, because that sounds pretty ugly. It did happen a number of years ago, and Zamani was uh, pretty young, but still, it's something that happened. There's a headline from December 19th, 2013, and you see a picture of Zamani there. He looks a lot younger. This is over eight years ago. But it says, a Florida State University student lured by a cheap iPad offer was allegedly beaten and robbed in Boca Raton on Tuesday. Martin Maziar Zamani, 18, and Daniel Ruiz, 19, both of Boca Raton, were arrested that afternoon on several charges, including robbery with a firearm and aggravated battery with a deadly weapon. Two other men suspected of being involved in the crime remain at large, according to a probable cause affidavit. The victim told Boca Raton police that he and a passenger drove to Fairfield Gardens on 18th Avenue after receiving a text message advertising an 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 iPad Air tablet according to the affidavit. As instructed in the later text message, the two men followed a car into the neighborhood to bypass a security gate. They parked at a neighborhood clubhouse. Meeting them was Zamani, who gave his job as, quote, self-employed poker player, according to the police department's arrest report. The victim recognized Zamani from an old high school yearbook. The two men shared a first-period psychology class, the victim told police officers. Wearing a brownish jacket and constantly on his cell phone, Zamani led the men to a nearby apartment where he pretended to knock on the door. Three men then surrounded the victim and his friend. Among the men was Ruiz, according to the affidavit. Zamani allegedly told the investigator he raised a set of brass knuckles in his hand and asked the victim, do you want to do this? Someone then snatched the victim's car keys from his hand. Another person put the victim in a headlock and someone else took the victim's wallet from his back pocket. The four men searched the victim's Blue 2005 Armada SUV. They took nothing. The victim and his friend ran. Tossing the wallet and the keys into some bushes, the men caught the victim and punched him. His friend watched from a short distance, according to the affidavit. Then they drove off in a silver and black BMW. Officers found the victim shoeless with bruises on his nose, mouth, and left side of his neck, according to the affidavit. Zamani was driving Ruiz in the BMW when they were pulled over in the parking lot at Boca Center, 5050 Town Center Circle, about two and a half miles from the alleged robbery. An officer found no more than 20 grams of marijuana inside the car and in Ruiz's left inner shirt pocket. The victim identified the two men as the the attackers, that is Zamani and this Ruiz guy. Zamani and Ruiz were charged with robbery with a firearm, aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, burglary of an unoccupied conveyance unarmed, and having no more than 20 grams of marijuana. They're holding bail of $104,000 each. They were booked Wednesday just after 1.40 p.m. So there's no indication about the ultimate disposition of this case, but uh, Zamani did acknowledge that was him, and he actually had an excuse for it when he was fighting back and forth 
with Brian Paris because Brian Paris was saying he's a scumbag and he can't be trusted. And Zamani was getting pissed about this. So he claimed that this was actually someone that his friend knew personally. It wasn't just a random Craigslist scam that they were getting him back for previously scamming. So Zamani's claiming that they were re-scamming the scammer. So Zamani actually wrote a Skype message to Brian Paris, which Zamani himself posted. And he wrote, I think mentioning my arrest is pretty LOL, considering I was never convicted of anything. My friend got scammed by our old soccer teammate. I texted him to set it up and get it back. Not to mention, I've told the story of me being arrested many times to many people, but I can see how me being arrested when I'm 18 for getting into a fight with a 10-year friend who stole from us is the same. So, I don't know if any of this is true. It, it is true that apparently these two knew each other, Zamani and this victim. They knew each other at least a little bit from having first-period psychology together in high school. But they didn't say any of that in the article. It just that they knew each other from class. This is kind of old classmates. Not that they were 10-year-long friends. I think that would have been mentioned in the article. It's not clear, as I said, whether this really was ever prosecuted. Uh, it's also possible that uh, when he says never convicted, maybe he means it was downfiled to a lesser charge. A lot of ways things could have happened there to where he wasn't convicted of this particular crime. But he does admit that this occurred in some way. He's not saying there's a different Martin Zamani or that the whole thing absolutely never happened. So between that and the allegations from this Fineapple person about the Skype hacking and everything else, I have a feeling that Zamani is not a very good character. I have to imagine that this is a guy who his entire life, at least his entire adult life, has been jumping from one scheme to another and that he was happy to be part of the scheme of Bryn Kenny until something went wrong and he decided to go forward and tattle on him. And I'm not saying that he shouldn't have tattled on him because if Bryn Kenny was really doing all this, then it is good that the poker world found out. And sometimes the only way you can hear these stories is by hearing it from co-conspirators who were on a lower level in the whole scheme than the ringleader. That's how, in fact, many convictions are obtained where someone who did commit crimes and was an accomplice is willing to come forward and tell their story and testify and give evidence. Uh, it would be ideal if you get all this evidence from someone who's done nothing wrong, who just happens to have all the evidence, but usually the ones who have all the knowledge and have all the information and have all the proof are ones who were involved themselves. So I'm not saying Zamani shouldn't have come forward or we shouldn't listen to him. Just you should keep that in mind and not treat him necessarily as a hero, especially because even he admitted, I didn't play that part of the interview, but even he admitted near the end that there's a reason he's coming forward, but he's not stating it. And he's going to leave it at that. Not many people in the story really come off that well, huh? <laughs> now, a lot of people were very nervous about playing online poker after this whole thing broke. Think of everything that was said here. There's all this collusion, all this multi-accounting. There's the story of Mark Hearn winning a bracelet 
under somebody else's account. There is this whole thing about how people had to play for what's best for the stable, not what's best for them. And people were being stuffed into tournaments to make guarantees while playing under Bryn, and that people were being told not to bust in satellites or not to bust others in satellites uh, until enough people have registered. And that you had Lauren Roberts, who lost $2 million and was bum-hunted by Bryn's friends, allegedly. So there's all these different stories, and that's not even to mention all the cult-related stuff with the frog poison and all that. So you have all that going on. Then you had the Ali Imsravik situation and the Jake Schindler situation, and all you're hearing is cheat, 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 collude, 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 soft play, soft play, soft play, multi-account, 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 ghosting, 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 real-time assistance, real-time assistance, real-time assistance. You're hearing story after story after story of all this stuff. How could anyone play online hearing all this was going on? Well, Patrick Leonard, he offered his take on this. And I'll tell you what I think of that after I read his take. He said, for those who are smaller mid-stakes players worried about real-time assistance, I understand the fear you will have after the last four or five days. But people at high stakes use real-time assistance to go from a 1% ROI to a 3% ROI. Pros at low and mid-stakes have closer to a 15 to 25% ROI, where the price, meaning reductions of tables that can play at once, would not be worth it. Being precise and correct at high stakes is crucial to being successful. At small stakes and medium stakes, almost your entire win rate comes from exploitation. At high stakes, you usually face GTO sizings, where at RTA, you can have a solution. At small stakes and medium stakes, you usually face non-solver sizings. At high stakes, you usually face. Now, you may say, what does it mean here? Well, he's trying to say that at small and medium stakes, there's enough bad players there to where just being good at poker is enough. And that you don't need this stuff because it doesn't give you that much more of an edge. More what you're doing is understanding why people are not playing well and then exploiting that. And that doesn't require any kind of tools. Whereas at high stakes, with everyone playing so well, the only way you're going to win is using these tools that make it optimal. He says, single raised heads up pots because preflop is played a lot more aggressively. These are the easiest spots to solve. At small stakes and middle stakes, there are way more multi-way pots and limp pots, which are not solved, or real-time assistance won't help. At so- small stakes and middle stakes, there's a lot of uh, PSKOS, I'm not even sure what that means, which changes everything, and real-time assistance is not able to help impact decision. Remember, the real-time assistance is essentially just trying to make your decision more precise. You have no reason to trust me, no reason to trust poker sites, no reason to trust anybody, really. If I was you, I would listen to everything and not deposit or play either. But before making such a decision, try and educate yourself a little further about what these tools are, are and if they really can impact you at all. I'm 100% confident to still promote my family, friends, and people I meet at networking events to online poker. It's a fantastic game that is currently still safe in non-elite areas. By the way, he is an ambassador for party poker, so... He does have a reason to tweet this out. This is a total neutral opinion. So this is what I have to say about it, because I do have a total neutral opinion. I mostly agree with him. The typical mid-stakes pro doesn't have to worry as much about real-time assistance for the reasons he stated. Not that there's going to be a cost about having to multi-table less. It's just because it's a pain in the ass, and it's an extra burden, and you probably won't want to bother with it if you're already crushing the games. However... What he didn't say, and that's because he's trying to promote party poker, middle and lower stakes are full of bots and colluders on certain sites. 
especially ACR from what I'm hearing. And these bots tend to not play in the high stakes games. They tend to run these in the lower and middle stakes games. That's where the problem is. And bots are very similar to RTA. Bots are just the ones pressing the buttons and RTA is giving people advice of what buttons to press. So the bots are a little bit worse because RTA still allows for human error. But still, uh, these bots are very present in a lot of these small and middle stakes games and you're not going to beat them. Also, the bots are known to collude with each other and share hull cards and can do so much more efficiently than humans. Additionally, as we discussed tonight, ghosting in tournaments, while not as widespread as you might think, and not as widespread as you might have heard from Martin Zamani, is still somewhat of a problem, and that also affects the low and middle stakes player online who may take a shot at a tournament, and all of a sudden someone who's kind of a mediocre player that lucked into the final table is playing like an expert because all of a sudden he is an expert because someone has taken over for them. So that's another problem. So you can't say there's no problem for small stakes and medium stakes players. There's a lot of problems. There's not the same problems as there are at high stakes, but this is an issue. And sites need to aggressively enforce it. And that goes back to what I was saying about ACR, that there needs to be a security team that really, really clamps down on bots, that takes all reports seriously, and that attempts to detect them themselves and aggressively closes the accounts. And also, I think that they should just say there's zero tolerance. So if we say there's no RTA, there's no RTA. And if we catch you with RTA or a chart or any bullshit like that, not only are we going to ban you, we're going to take your money and distribute it back to everybody else. And we're making it real clear, send out several emails, making it real clear you can't use this. And if people still do it even once, goodbye. That should be the policy. Zero tolerance for cheating. And that should be it. So the sites need to do better. The sites need to more aggressively deal with this and not just sweep it under the rug or say, hey, these are high-raking accounts, these bots, so maybe we don't hate them that much. So I only partially agree with him. Like, he's kind of right about the RTA probably not affecting you a bit in lower stakes, but there's other problems that are similar. All right, now, finally, before I move on, you're probably wondering if it's safe to play on GG. Now, if you're a person who lives in the U.S., then you can't play on GG. But if you're outside the U.S., whether you're a non-American or an American living abroad, should you say, you know what, GG is crooked, I'm staying away from them? Or is it still safe to play there? What is their role in this whole thing, in my opinion? Well, in my opinion, I think that they did not cooperate in any of this. I don't think that they were in cahoots with Bryn Kenny to cheat if Brent Kenny did cheat. I do think they were in cahoots to have him be an agent for people from the U.S. and they looked the other way because it helped them grow. But I don't think that they were knowingly a party to any cheating, nor do I think they were knowingly a party to any cheating by Ali Imserovic and Jake Schindler. I think GG, when they catch this, they throw people off. Not as aggressively as they should, but but they are doing it. They have done it. In fact, several of the people we discussed tonight were thrown off of GG. Jake, Ali, Sergi. So they are taking action, just not as much as they should be. They technically were breaking the law by allowing these VPNers and not attempting to catch it and in fact seemingly encouraging these agents to bring people on there 
who were doing this. Otherwise, there's no need for the agents. There's no reason for the agents to be a cashier unless they really don't want to be a cashier for certain customers. And again, this seems to have stopped a while back because Gigi became huge and they probably decided they don't need it anymore. This is probably part of their growth strategy where they need action in the games and they were willing to have these agents sneak Americans on there as long as they can engage in plausible deniability. So that's not great, but at the same time, it's not like they are engaging in cooperation with people who are cheating. However, I will say that with GG, there's kind of a general shadiness I've felt from them for a while now. And they've treated some players and pro players very poorly. Ironically, one of the pro players who was thrown off of there said he was able to get back on through Bryn Kenny's influence. I remember that at the time. I forgot who it was. And he said it as a good thing, like Bryn Kenny helped him. But that showed you what kind of influence he had. But I, I've seen it where people are, are thrown off for, quote, bum hunting. And not just aggressive bum hunting, but just thrown off because uh, they don't sit all the time in tough games. And I, I've seen a lot of behavior from GG that I just don't like too much. And the fact that they allowed all this VPNing and let these shady agents run the whole thing. Because you may say, well, it's a victimless crime. Who cares if Americans want to play? Let them VPN in, and GG's risking their own license, but why should we care? Well, we should care because then it puts people like Bryn Kenny in charge of your money. And do you really want that? Is that something they should be doing? A, a site that is trying to have legitimacy, like GG was, and still is, they should not just have agents in charge. Agents are, are people who should be in charge of these crappy little backdoor apps that people play on when there's no other choice. Agents should not be ones who are depositing and cashing out for players at large sites like GG. That's unbelievable. I mean, I know it probably happened, but it's unbelievable that it did. And a lot of people can get screwed there. Sounds like some people did get screwed there. You know, when UB was running before the super user scandal... I said the entire time, there's something about the site that rubs me the wrong way. And I'd have people defending it. Oh, we love the software. It's so quick. It's great. And the games are good. And blah, 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 blah. Just so much praise for UB from people. And I said, I know, but there's just something I don't trust about them. I couldn't put my finger on it, but there's something I didn't trust about them. And that turned out to be right. I kind of feel that way about GG. I even said that about Full Tilt at one point. Something I don't trust about them. Not as much as UB, but... I kind of started to lose trust in Full Tilt. I said, there's something weird going on there too. Now, I'm not going to say I suspected they were stealing all the money on deposit. I will not say that. I never suspected that. But I just kind of felt like something was a little bit wrong there. I felt like something was a little bit wrong in UB. And look what happened. And I kind of feel that way about GG. Even though it's big, even though they've grown a lot bigger than they were two years ago when all this story took place, I just kind of feel like something's wrong over there. What is Daniel Negreanu saying about this? Remember, he is the main face of GG Poker? Uh, not much. He actually was in the chat during this Doug Polk interview with Martin Zamani and commented a little bit and was laughing about the frog poison. But when people are asking Negreanu for comment, he said that his only comment is frog poison. <laughs> so Negreanu's been kind of making a joke about it, but, you know, he, this is the position the ground who puts himself when he represents a site and then the site doesn't act right. So it's kind of the same thing when that supernova elite happened, that he was in an awkward position that 
He either had to betray who was paying his salary or kind of screw over the poker community that trusted and liked him. So in this case, GG hasn't directly done anything wrong. They're not directly involved in all this cheating. And in fact, they did throw some people off who were cheating. But, uh, you know, all this agent stuff is very shady looking. And of course, he's not commenting on it because he can't bash his employers. And I understand that. I mean, the perfect world, he'd say, yeah, screw it. I'm going to just come out and say Gigi shouldn't have been doing this. And he could criticize them to his heart's content. But, you know, they're paying him a lot of money to be the face of the site. He's not going to do that. But I'm not going to be too hard on him here because, again, Gigi Poker's wrongdoing is not so great in this one. It, it What's being accused here is mainly at individuals. And Gigi Poker just kind of acted strange. Uh, of course, there's also the agency that was taken from people. That's another problem that people can just either take each other's agency or GG can take someone's agency. So that whole agent thing was real shady and no other big site has that type of history. So moving on, I have an update for you regarding All-American Dave. Remember him? Remember All-American Dave who had a food truck for most of the 2010s at the Rio, and he sold you expensive, albeit healthy food that was very popular with a lot of people. And he was a beloved figure at the World Series. And then he said the World Series is not letting him sell anything or park anywhere at the 2022 World Series at Bally's in Paris. And then he said that he's closing permanently because he was unable to change their minds and then he said that anyone who still has balances with him for food that they have prepaid will not be getting the money back. And we covered this extensively on other episodes of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And the poker world was very mixed in their opinions of All-American Dave and his predicament. Unlike these cheating scandals they talked about where most people are of the same mind. With All-American Dave, it was very polarized. And it seemed like almost everybody fell into one of two camps. Either All-American Dave is a scammer and a scumbag, or All-American Dave is a great guy who was victimized by circumstance. First COVID, and then the change of venue where the unions shut Dave out of continuing to do business. So... I understood why people had sympathy for him, and I did at first too, but I definitely did not like the plan to not pay people back, and he wasn't even saying, I can't pay people back for the moment. He's just saying, you're not getting the money back. It's just done. And I kept encouraging him privately to at least pledge that if he gets back on his feet and can pay people, that he will. Not just, I'm sorry, I'm walking away. I don't want this monkey in my back anymore. So finally, he put out a statement along those lines, which is good. We'll see if it actually happens. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually do it. The biggest criticism he was receiving was that people purchased meal plans in 2021 that they knew had a good chance of being in excess of what they could use that year, but he told them that they could also use it in 2022, that it will carry over to 2022. So people bought these meal plans believing that they could use it in 2022, and now they can't, because not only isn't he operating, but he's not refunding them. 
And he then also revealed that in 2021, he made a lot less money because he could not park on site. For whatever reason, they changed the rule on him in 2021, even though it was still at the Rio. And he had to park off site and then deliver. So instead of saying, hey, I'm struggling some here, I'm not sure if I'll be able to continue in 2022, or hey, I'm not 100% sure they're going to let me even come back at all next year because they keep changing the rules on me, so watch out. Here he happily took these subscriptions people bought to meals, and then when there was money left over for a lot of people, including some that claimed they had $1,000 or more, it was just tough luck on them. They don't get their money back. So honestly, this money should have been held separately. This should not have been rolled into the business and people should not lose it, even if legally he can get away with it. This should not have been rolled into the business where if he goes out of business or can't continue being in business, that just tough luck, these people lose their money. This should have been something like he's really holding a balance for them and will pay them back and that it's untouchable money, at least until he's sure he can operate for that year. Then at that point, he could spend it. But up till then, he should not be spending it. And some people question, like, where'd the money go? Because what has he spent it on in 2022? It's not like he's been operating. He operates apparently only during the World Series. So what has he done in 2022? Where have the expenses been? And people never got clarity on that. So it's not even clear where all that excess money went. My guess is he kind of just spent it. I, it seemed like he lived an expensive lifestyle. Uh, people saw he was going to Fiji just days before announcing that the whole thing's shutting down. And people are like, well, why don't you use that to pay people back instead of going on vacation and he claimed that he had a rental place in fiji which he was paying 500 a month for which sounds very low but like why does he have a rental place in fiji all the way through the first few months of 2022 if he was struggling so much why didn't he give that up a long time ago there's a lot of questions we never really got answered and he left social media claiming that it was too toxic that happened between last show and this show but Why did it get so toxic? Well, one of the reasons it might have gotten toxic was because of something I put out there. I put out evidence that All-American Dave got a fairly large PPP loan from the government in 2020 related to COVID. These PPP loans were forgivable loans that small businesses could take in order to survive when the government shut down everything in 2020. Now, it is true, there was no World Series in 2020, so Dave couldn't operate. But these are forgivable loans, meaning that if you can't pay them back, then you don't have to. Well, how much of a PPP loan did he get? He got a $243,000 PPP loan, according to the links I found on a government website. So, on SBA.com, it says that a $243,169 loan was made to Swanning Limited in Las Vegas, and it says Mobile Food Services. Interestingly enough, it's listed as female-owned, so I'm guessing he got some kind of perk for that, so it's probably in his wife's name, but it's listed as female-owned, at least in some way unless Dave identifies as female. He doesn't look like a female, but uh, it's somehow female-owned. He got two loans from PPP. One was 196 k 
in the first round, and the second was 47K in the second round. It actually says uh, date approved 2-22-21, so it looks like he got these in 21, not even in 20. And I don't know if he paid these back, but he definitely got a PPP loan. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, Swanning Limited. I mean, how do you know that's All-American Dave? Now, his last name is Swanson, and that's similar, but maybe it's a coincidence. No. On a government website called Blepay, B-L-E-P-A-Y dot ClarkCountyNV dot gov, so it's a Clark County website, there is the business license information, and it says business All-American Dave's Las Vegas, Nevada food caterer licensed as of May 11th, 2013. And it says, business owner, Swanning Limited. So there's a connection right there. That Swanning Limited owns All-American Dave's in Las Vegas. And All-American Dave's got a $243,000 PPP loan. All-American Dave left Twitter. He said, I cannot and will not continue to endure this toxic environment in regards to my failed food truck business. We'll be checking out of Twitter for a while. Contact via the text line or email, and he gave his email address for questions and concerns. Thank you to all of you who showed love. That was on uh, April 15th. He did leave Twitter. He just got tired of the criticism and the trolling. But you have to understand why people are mad. I mean, it's not like people are just insulting him to have fun. People are insulting him because their money is gone, and it shouldn't be. So really, I see the point of the people who are raising a big issue here. He got 243000 in PPP loans. He only operates for seven weeks a year, apparently. The expenses don't really seem that high, at least when he's not operating. So how could he have gone broke in that time? What happened in that time between 2020 and 2022? Even if he could only work one World Series, and even if he had to operate off-site, he got the 243 k loan, and he had all that money left over from what people spent in 2021, buying these packages. If I had to guess, he was operating with the belief that he was going to make a lot of money forever. Kind of like how a tournament player who hits a big tournament score gets this expectation of, oh, wow, well, I just won back-to-back tournaments for uh, six figures. Well, I'm a great player. I'm just going to keep winning these. So, I can expect to win a lot of money every year. I'm going to upgrade my lifestyle. And all of a sudden they go in a slump and they don't win anything for a while. Or they get a few min caches. And then they're not winning in cash games. And all of a sudden they're broke. So you can't adjust up your lifestyle unless you're sure that you have a very stable income. And I think Dave believed he had a stable income and lived an expensive lifestyle and and got this uh, Fiji property and probably uh, lived very well. And then COVID happened, and instead of adjusting it down at that point and say, whoa, 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 this might change everything, this may be the end of my food truck at the World Series, which it ultimately was, instead of saying that, it looks like he probably lived a similar lifestyle and didn't dial it down enough, and then just ran through all the money, and that was that. So I'm not making excuses, but that's what it looks like to me. I don't think this was any kind of premeditated attempt to scam or steal. I think that this was just a guy who couldn't dial down his spending when circumstances started to change until it was too late. I mean, why why does he even have that Fiji place until 
April 2022. How'd that happen if he's struggling so badly? Why wasn't that given up a long time ago? And you may say, how could that even happen? Like, how could this even be possible that he wouldn't dial down his lifestyle as his money is dwindling down, down, down? And it's because some people live in denial. Some people hate downgrading. Some people, when they get a taste of the good life, they don't want to go back to what they were before, before they found their success. And they lie to themselves and say, hey, it'll all end up okay. That's never been me. I'm someone who is all too cognizant of what is really happening. And if I were struggling in this way, I would definitely dial everything down. But some people have a hard time doing that. Some people, they feel like it's accepting defeat. They feel like it's depressing. Whatever it might be to have to go from having a lot of nice things to living like a normal person again. Some people will run themselves into the ground before they can change. And sometimes people will believe that if they were doing well before, it's, it's got to return at some point. I mean, how many poker players feel that way? People who last were crushing it in 2012 and think, oh, if, if I could just get in some more events, I'll just finally get luckier again. I've just had this 10-year downswing of, of poor results because I just keep taking bad beats. But look, look how well I did 10 years ago. I, I, I'm telling you, if you just give me a chance, it'll be just like it was back then. And they don't bother to look at what it may have changed. Maybe their style doesn't work well these days. Maybe they ran way above expectation for a while. Maybe it's a combo of a bunch of things. You've always got to constantly assess where you are in poker and in business. And I think Dave didn't do that. I think this would happen to him. I don't have a view into his finances, so I can't say that for sure. But that's what I would guess. Anyway. Just wanted to give you that quick update here. I'm not going to harp much on All-American Dave. We have a lot of other stuff to talk about, but want to give you that conclusion. I have a feeling we're not going to hear much more about him. I have a feeling that people probably won't get much from him. And I think it's just going to become a story from the early 2020s that people tell one day. Here's a story that hasn't been told much, but I want to tell it. It's a sad story. It's a depressing story. But it shows how quickly life can change or even end at any time from a threat you didn't know was ever there. There was a late 2000s short stacker whose name was Lorne Yelle. Y-E-L-L-E. Lorne was spelled L-O-R-I-N. And I call him a short stacker because that's what he was. He realized in the late 2000s that his best talent was short stacking, which is the act of buying into no limit hold'em tables with the smallest stack allowed, and then playing optimally with that short stack, which usually involves getting all your money in preflop at the right time. Now you may say, oh, it's only preflop poker, it's gotta be easy. No, not as easy as you think. There's some skill to short stacking to where you have to understand when you're getting it in good and when you're not. So I will admit that short stacking is easier than playing all the streets, a lot harder to deep stack than short stack. But short stacking is a skill, and some people are better at short stacking than others. Lauren Yele became a poker pro in 2005. He was in his mid-20s then. But a few years later, he realized short stacking was where he had done the best, and he kind of had a natural feel for it. So he became a short stacker. 
and he did fairly well short stacking on poker stars, which was not against the rules. Some experienced pro players look down on short stackers, claim that they're taking advantage of the way online poker is structured, because what short stackers would do is they would buy in as short as possible, and then as soon as they double up, they would get up and leave the table and go to a different table, where live you can't do that. You can't just keep getting up and going to table after table after table. But online you can just keep leaving and jumping tables, especially on an active site like PokerStars. So that's what he was doing. And as I said, not against the rules. You were, you were perfectly allowed to do that then. Some people asked him, hey, since you're winning this way, can you show me how to do it? So he realized there was somewhat of a market to sell that information. And in 2010, he developed a $300 course called Short Stack Hero, where he revealed his tactics. The course was a moderate success, didn't make huge money, but some people bought it. And those who bought it said that they did learn something from it and were able to become better short stackers. He maintained a blog for a long time, and he actually wrote about short stacking on the blog and addressed the critics. He said, let's start by setting the record straight. I'm not an angle shooter. I'm an opportunist. That is, I probe the system to look for exploits and vulnerabilities within the rules for personal gain. The final outcome may offend many players' concepts of how the game should be played and their aesthetic sensibilities, but I have learned firsthand how making it too easy to practice can create a hostile gaming environment, yet efforts to completely thwart the practice will lead to predatory play and ultimately the collapse of a delicate poker ecosystem, both in No Limit Hold'em and Omaha. So basically what he's saying here is, while a lot of people are criticizing short stacking and some are calling to make it against the rules, that this will be a very bad thing to ban short stacking because a lot of fish like to do it. And if you say you can't do this, then you're going to take away something that a lot of fish like to do, and that is buy in for the minimum, take a shot. And he's claiming the whole poker ecosystem will collapse if these fish can't do it anymore, which he might be right about. Now, he was not a major tournament pro, in case you wonder, did he win a bracelet? Did he win any major tournaments? No. He only had $18,000 worth of tournament caches, despite going back many years. I don't think he played tournaments very much. Ironically, despite being a short stacker, his first tournament cash ever was at a deep stack event. (laughs) Now, we're talking about quite some time ago. He sold his course in 2010. His first cash was in 2011 at a deep stack event. Was he still playing poker today? Yes. He was not a pro player anymore, but his last catch was two years ago, looking like it was right before the COVID shutdowns, February February 21st, 2020, at the Encore Boston. But again, he doesn't have that many caches overall. He has only one World Series cache, the 1K No Limit Hold'em event near the end of the series. He was 55th place for... $5,300, $5,300, which was his biggest cash. He got a fifth place at, at Encore in January 2020 for $4,000. So why am I talking about all this? Why does this matter? Well, unfortunately, Lauren Yele took the ultimate bad beat. Not in poker, but in life. He ended up witnessing a domestic violence murder at a gas station, and the murderer killed him next. He 
He was in New Albany, Indiana, which I think is where he lived or near where he lived. And he was at a Circle K getting gas. It was on April 4th at 10 a.m. A man named Chirac Douglas, a criminal who was about to go back to court over a matter which he knew would probably send him to prison. He knew they had the goods on him. I'm not sure what he did, but he was really, really dreading going back to prison. His court date was coming up. He was in a foul mood. He knew he was screwed. He knew he did it. He knew that court was not going to go well for him. So he was also at that gas station with his wife, his wife, Brandy Douglas. And Brandy had already uh, called her mom a little bit earlier, like 20 minutes earlier, when she was alone for a little bit, and uh, told her mom that Chirac, her husband, was acting crazy, and that he was in such a terrible mood about this upcoming court date that was going to send him back to prison, that he's just acting nuts, and she's kind of scared. So, about 20 minutes after that, they were at this gas station in a car together. Yele was inside the Circle K there. He was getting gas, but he went into the Circle K. I'm not sure to buy something or pay or whatever, but he was in the Circle K. And at the same time, Chirac and his wife, Brandy, were arguing in the car. And somehow Chirac got really pissed off during the argument, whipped out a gun, and riddled Brandy Douglas's body with ten bullets, killing her. <laughs> Right after the final shot, who happened to walk out of the Circle K but Lauren Yelly? I'm not sure if he heard the shots. I'm not sure if he actually saw anything. But he walked out right when Chirac Douglas was finished shooting his wife dead ten times. And he looked up and sees Yelly walking out of there. And he decided he needed to eliminate the witness. So Douglas then pointed the gun at Yelly. Probably didn't even know it was being pointed at him. Hello, Trader Ruski. Welcome to this depressing story. I mean, what a thing to wake up to. I'm not sure what was uh, worse, this one or any Duke last week. Yeah. Well, he just shot Yelly walking out of the Circle K. Probably Yelly didn't even know that this was coming or that anything had happened. I don't know if that could seem like he just got shot and just went down because there was a surveillance video of this. I haven't seen the footage, but it kind of seems like he just went down, just gets hit with a bullet. Well, that didn't kill him. So at this point, obviously, uh, Yelly realized that someone had shot him and was trying to get away. And then the shooter, Chirac Douglas, ran after him to make sure to finish the job. Probably the best thing to do then would be to uh, play dead, but hard to think rationally when that happens. You just got shot out of nowhere in a gas station. So I'm not sure where Yelly got shot, but he was actually able to sort of run away. He was injured, though, so Douglas chased him and caught up to him very fast. And Yelly tried to throw something at him. I'm not sure what, but Douglas shot him a second time, and that was that. However, it wasn't over for Douglas yet. He then... Uh, Decided not to take the same car. Decided he needed a different car to get away. So he ran down the street to a nearby restaurant and kidnapped the female owner. It was a, it was a couple, like an older Asian couple who owned the restaurant. He uh, kidnapped the female owner, 
and said that uh, he needs her car, and he forced her to go out to the car with him. So she, you know, he made her get the keys and go out to the car with him. I'm not sure why he took her too, but she had to go out with him. Then he grabbed the keys, jumped in the car, and just sped away, so he slammed into her. So he wasn't trying to run her over, but he wasn't trying not to run her over. So he just, once he got the keys, he just pushed her out of the way, jumped in the car and floored it and slammed into her and ran her over and broke several bones. She She's going to survive, but she got seriously injured there. By then, the police were on the way, and they found Douglas in that stolen car. He saw the police with their guns out telling him to stop, and uh, he drove right for them trying to run them over. So they fired into the car, hit him, but unfortunately did not kill him. So he got injured, crashed the car, they arrested him, and now he is uh, being charged with murder. He appeared in court in a wheelchair because of his injuries, but he is—he survived. It's not going to kill him. So a very sad story. And keep in mind, all Lauren Yelly was doing was getting gas at the Circle K. That's all he was doing. He was killed just for being there when a guy killed his wife. And apparently this guy thought that Yelly witnessed it. Ironically, this whole thing happened because... Douglas was so worried about going back to prison. Well, now he's guaranteed at the minimum he's going to be uh, in prison for life, I have to guess. I don't think he's going to get out of this one. I don't think he's going to get a short sentence either. Like, I don't think he's going to be out in 20 years. I think he's now guaranteed at minimum a life sentence and uh, very possibly uh, the death penalty if such a thing uh, exists in Indiana. I don't know if it does or not, but uh, definitely would be justified here. And in fact, some people don't support the death penalty. Some people uh, think it's cruel. Or it's barbaric. Like, this case here is a perfect example of why I'm glad it's there. And again, I don't know if it's in Indiana, so maybe it's not there. But I'm glad it's still in some places in the U.S. Because this guy doesn't deserve to keep living. I mean, look, look at all the awful stuff this guy did. Shot his wife ten times. Killer. Killed a totally innocent bystander and actually chased him down to make sure he was killed. And then uh, not only stole someone's car to get away, but ran them over. He couldn't even just steal their car and not run them over. He has to also run them over and then tries to run over cops. This guy doesn't deserve to live. And there's no question, like, there's all the surveillance footage. This is not a situation where they identified the wrong guy or possibly, I mean, 100% he did it. So when people like this are put to death, that is a good thing. I don't anyone deserves to live. I mean, this guy's not... I think this guy is in his 30s, so he could live many years in prison, which is not ideal. Obviously, he was uh, not wanting to go there because that's what was putting him in such an awful mood. But still, you know, you get used to it. And I've always heard, oh, you know, the being in prison for life is worse than death. But you know who doesn't really feel that way are people who are actually facing the possible death penalty. Very rarely does someone say, yeah, put me to death because I'd rather that than life in prison. The few times that someone actually elects to not fight the death penalty, it's because they actually feel guilty about the crime and just feel they deserve it. And it's not common, but when, the, when there are criminals who try not to fight the death penalty, it's for that reason. It's, I, I've definitely never heard one even say, you know, just put me to death because I don't want to live the rest of my life in prison. 
So once you're actually faced with that, it's a different story. What? That's a terrible situation here, though. Feel very bad for Lauren Yelley and his family. He just went to get gas, thought everything was fine, everything's normal. His life's just over. In his early forties, and he was liked in the community from those who interacted with him. Besides the criticism of his short stacking, uh, people thought he was a nice guy. The course he sold, people liked that. You know, it basically delivered what was promised. If you wanted to learn short stacking and were willing to pay three hundred dollars to learn it, then I guess the course was good enough to where people felt that they were happy they bought it. So it's really too bad. I didn't know the guy, but this story really hasn't gone around much in poker. And I thought I'd put it on the show. So rest in peace, Lorinella. Very unfortunate what happened to you, and this really could have happened to anybody. Just really, really, really bad luck. Wrong place, wrong time. All right, taking a look at our text messages. We got some of these a while ago. I just didn't read them. I read them, but I didn't read them aloud. So read them aloud now. A lot of people want hats. And the 773 said it has to be fitted hats. I don't know about that, but... uh, 720 said I'd wear a hat. Another person texted that they'd like a hat, so maybe I will have some made. Trader Risky, I know you were involved in the whole process. Is that uh, person you know still doing this? Um, yeah, I can I can hook it up if you want uh, hats and whatever. Yeah, I, I think I might actually... The, the ones like the last one really want. I think I might actually text you about that after we're done with this here so we can uh, get this going. I may, It may be time. There's I, I thought about it when I took my last break and I go, you know what? Like The last time we did this was nine years ago. There's a lot of people that found the show in that time that weren't around in 2013. So I think some people would want it that are not ones who had an opportunity to get them before or ones who just before kind of snoozed on it and didn't get one. Because I I just gave them away till we ran out. The way I distributed it before was I mailed some. In fact, I mailed most of them, but then I also kept some back that I carried around the World Series. And if anyone saw me around the World Series and wanted one, then they could ask me and I gave them. So eventually they were all given away, except for a few I kept for myself. From the 609, if you have some time at the end of the show, I wanted to hear your thoughts on Elon Musk's offer for Twitter being accepted today. Appreciate you. I kind of meant for that to be a topic, and I'll see if I have the energy to do this at the very end. I do have some opinions on that, but we won't do it right now. Move on, and we'll talk about another murder charge, but a very different one, and this one is also against a poker player, not a murder where the poker player was the victim. This one, the player is charged with murder. I'm talking about Wade Woeful, W-O-E-F-E-L. He's from Minnesota. I didn't really know him, but... He is now accused of murder, but not in the traditional way that you would think someone would be accused of murder. He's charged with third-degree murder because in Minnesota, third-degree murder occurs when someone is killed without direct intent or premeditation. So what happened here? They definitely didn't have any premeditation or intent. This was a drug overdose. There was a guy named Brian Marconini, who I don't think is a poker player, or was a poker player. And 
Marconini was a drug addict, and he was found unresponsive in a bathroom by his girlfriend, who called 911, and by the time the paramedics got there, Marconini was dead at the age of 44. An autopsy was done, and Marconini was found with several drugs in his system, including meth, fentanyl, and amphetamine. And then they talked to his girlfriend, obviously, said, do you know who sold these to him? And she said, yes, a guy named Wade Wolfel. So Wade Wolfel, it's actually W-O-E-L-F-E-L. I gave the wrong spelling before, I'm missing that first L. But they already knew Wade Wolfel from before as a drug addict himself who was supporting his own habit by selling drugs. So it didn't take long for them to piece together information. Everybody has cameras everywhere nowadays. I'm talking about businesses and homes and all that. So it's not that hard when something occurs for authorities to track down a video of it. So they found a surveillance video of Marconini and Wolfel meeting and completing a drug deal. And they also were able to get a hold of the text messages between the two of them where the agreement to make this uh, drug sale was made. However, they still set up a sting in order to uh, do a fake drug buy from Wolfel, who fell for it and was arrested. And now he's actually charged with murder for the death of Marconini, third-degree murder, because they're basically blaming the drug dealer when someone dies of an overdose of illegal drugs. When he was arrested, Wade Wolfel had drugs on him, a digital scale, and drug paraphernalia. And he also got in trouble six years ago when a package with 100 pills of ecstasy was mailed to him and somehow Homeland Security figured it out and intercepted it, opened it up, found what was in there, and arrested him. They also found that he was in the process of ordering cocaine and prescription medication online and was charged with six felonies related to drug possession. I don't know how that ended up. He does have 600K worth of tournament caches on Handed Mob, but he has not cashed in six years. The last time was at the Canterbury, which is a it's best known poker room in Minnesota for a $340 No Limit Hold'em event. He got third. And he did get second place at a WSOP circuit event in 2012 for 120k. He never did better than that, never won any bracelets. And he's currently at the Minnesota Correctional Facility right now being charged with also violating conditions of release from that drug conviction from 2016. And then uh, he's going to be formally charged with the uh, or he's, anyhow he's just charged with the third degree murder now, I don't think third-degree murder should be the charge in this situation. I have no problem with drug dealers being charged with something extra when someone actually dies from the drugs that they sell people. But I don't think it should be considered murder. I think it should be, at worst, manslaughter. And I'm usually one who's pretty tough on crime in the way I want to see things charged. But I think murder is overcharging here. I know it's third-degree. Now, what's the worst he could get here? Well, from the third-degree murder, he could get up to 25 years in prison. 
and a $40,000 fine. So he's not going to go to prison for life. Willful, how old is he? Not sure. I think he's like early 40s. So even if he went to prison for 25 years, he'd probably be alive when he got out. But I I don't think he's going to get 25 years because of the circumstances here. He kind of just looks like a drug addict who sold to another drug addict and did it to support his habit. And then the second drug addict died. So this really, I, I, you know, you got to look, each person has some level of personal responsibility. And if this Marconini guy chose to buy illegal drugs and do a lot of them, he was risking his life. And he unfortunately died from that. But there's only so much you should go after the one who sold the drugs to him beyond uh, a drug dealing charge. And, you know, something above that's fine, but murder, I, I don't think, should be the charge. How, how do you feel, Trader Risky? I mean, I agree with that. The only thing is, like, with fentanyl, you know, if he didn't know it was fentanyl, was selling him something else, or, right, or if the guy knew it was fentanyl and the person buying it thought it was something else, then I could see a murder charge. Yeah, I wonder about that. That's a good point, that maybe it could have been something like that, but it's hard to believe. Like, why Why would he even cover that up? Like, why wouldn't he just sell what the guy wanted if that's what he was doing? It's just, I mean, maybe, but I, I agree that if it wasn't that, then it shouldn't be a murder charge. If it is something with some deception where someone takes something they don't think they're taking and then they die from it, then there should be more responsibility to the one who sold it. But if it's just a matter of selling it, just making it available, then murder's too far. I, do, I don't think it should be a straight-up drug-dealing charge. I think it should be above that, but it, it shouldn't be as high as murder. You know, it, it's just one of many poker players who fell victim to drugs. I'm talking about Woeful. I don't think the other guy played. But there's been a lot of talented poker players whose poker careers have been derailed by drugs. And even one of the founders of this community that got a lot of us together in the first place, Dustin Neverwin Wolf had a lot of problems with drugs over the years. And, you know, I, I saw this personally. And he was uh, the really good player at one point. He, he really did have a future as a winning poker player who could make a lot of money in poker, but he just needed to get a hold of his personal habits and quit the drugs and also have some better bankroll management. See, he was kind of his own worst enemy, as a, a lot of poker players have been over the years. And there's been a number of poker players lost to drugs over time. And it's too bad. Some of it, it, it comes from the personality that some people have that allows them to be very good at poker. Kind of a risk-taking, live-on-the-edge sort of personality, which can make them unpredictable at the tables. But then they, they feel like they want action, they feel like they want excitement, and they're not happy to just grind and make consistent money. They, they have to have more, or they feel bored, or unsatisfied. So, that unfortunately happens, and then they get addicted, and then everything goes in the toilet, as what happened here to Wade Wolfel, who probably was a decent player, and now is in a big mess. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number if you want to text me or call me. 
going to something much, much lighter, a more humorous subject than murder or manslaughter or drug addiction. The National Indian Gaming Association, which has been around since 1985, and it's exactly what it sounds. It's an association of Indian gaming operations. When I say Indian, I mean Native American. And this organization has been around now for almost 40 years. Let's think about the acronym. National Indian Gaming Association. (laughs) You think that's the best acronym to have? I'm surprised that it took 37 years for this to be something that came up. But it's finally come up. There's, there's finally some criticism of that acronym. And they're doing something about it. Really, nigga? Yeah. N-I-G-A. It's not intended to be that word, but that's the way it reads. In fact, I found a logo. And it's of an Indian dream catcher. And next to it, it says in big letters, N-I-G-A. And then under it, it says National Indian Gaming Association. How do you have that acronym? How do you write that acronym out on a logo and not realize this? Even in 1985, that it should have been like really obvious that should not be your acronym. So somehow this survived for 37 years, and then a decision was made that they're going to drop the N, the national, from its title, and it's now going to be the Indian Gaming Association, IGA. <laughs> It was established as a non-profit organization, and the board of directors had to approve this name change, and this was actually approved in 2021, but there were a number of legal matters related to changing the name, so finally, just this week, they have finally done away with it. They finally got rid of that N. That N took a year to get rid of, but it's gone. (laughs) Ernie Stevens Jr., said this has been in the works for a long time. In the old days, people put together this amazing organization and will live with it with a lot of energy. The acronym was just not comfortable in the world we live in. I think it wasn't comfortable 37 years ago. That is nuts that they would not have done this before now or or that they would have done this in the first place. Stephen said, people may misinterpret or even mispronounce our old acronym. Well, how do you pronounce it? I mean... I read it exactly the way they don't want you to read it. We view it as a housekeeping item we wanted to clear up. We have never mispronounced our old acronym, but we wanted to clear it up. Okay, so what is the pronunciation, though? Niger. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. Niger? They just kicked off a uh, trade show and convention at the Anaheim Convention Center, and they actually get... 5,000 tribal casino administrators and staff at this convention. It's based out of Washington, D.C., and they have over 250 tribes as members. And the tribal convention, I I guess it just ended. But (laughs) how do they make that mistake? Oh, people are mispronouncing it. No, you just came up with a stupid acronym. (laughs) I mean, there are some things that have changed over the years that are considered offensive now that were not even 10 years ago, but this is not one of them. This is something that I have to think people would have laughed at 
1985 going, what? That's really your acronym? That is not one that should have taken getting to 2022 to get rid of. I wonder what was the final straw that like what what made them hap- what made them in 2021 say, you know what? It's been 36 years. Now's the time to drop that in. Now's the time to get rid of that acronym. We think some people might have been offended. We think there might be some confusion. We just learned it now. We have these logos all over the internet with it printed right there. And it should be obvious to everybody, but somehow we're just realizing it now. Now we're going to do something. Very odd. All right. Well, let's go to another laughable story. This has to do with Helmuth. Now, Helmuth is very well known for berating opponents. Helmuth is known for talking trash to opponents, criticizing their play, and being very rude and nasty to them, even recreational players. And he says, hey, this is just me. This is just part of my personality at the table. Deal with it. And he expects everyone to kind of just work around that, just to deal with it, just to not get too angry about it. That's just Phil being Phil. And what I've seen personally, and I've told you guys many times on the show, I will talk trash back to him. But what I've seen personally is most people are afraid to do it, even other pros. Most people kind of just take it. Now, the rec players especially tend to take it because they're just really intimidated that this major, major figure in poker is talking this way to them. So they kind of just sit there silent. I've watched it happen. But I always wondered, what will happen if Phil Helmuth just goes up against someone who's just not going to take this crap and gives it right back to him like really, really hard? Can Phil take it? I've given it back to him, but not nearly as hard as this guy did that I'm going to tell you about right now. Didn't he get bitch slapped one time too, Jeff? Uh, sort of. Uh, yeah, this was by Sam Grizzle, though, another pro. And, yeah, that's uh, right. That's and right. They, they actually went outside to have a fight. <laughs> Sam Grizzle was like knocked him out with one punch. So on Poker Go, there was a heads-up poker tournament that Helmuth participated in. And it was a $25,000 buy-in. And I don't even know this guy who was up against him. I don't know if he's a rec player or just uh, someone who's more than a rec player that I don't really know. But this guy's name is Eric Person, P-E-R-S-S-O-N. And he was really giving it hard to Helmuth right away. And they were just sniping at each other back and forth a lot. And it was getting worse and worse. So really, this was starting right from the beginning. Now, PokerGo posted this exchange. They posted not just a short version of the exchange, but they posted the entire heads-up showdown round number one on YouTube. The problem is it's not just Helmuth because it's there's 32 people that entered, so you get to watch all 32 playing. So there were 16 matches going at once, and this is showing all of them, just jumping between all the matches. If you go to the 144 and 42nd mark, one minute, one hour, 44 minutes, 40 seconds, around there, that's when it really ramps up, and I'm going to play this to you, and uh, then about 12 minutes later, and I, I won't play the entire 12 minutes here, but I'll, I'll play you some of it, and then we will jump to the point where Helmuth just completely melts down and demands something gets done, which is hilarious, because this is someone who just constantly gives crap to everybody he plays with and 
really is nasty to a lot of people at the table, and now he wants protection from someone who's doing it to him. Here is kind of the point where it's really starting to escalate. Stop at 30 of your chips because you were wrong again. You're going broke today. What do you, think I, had, today, what do you think I had when I bet 72,000, big shot? I think you had me beat. But it doesn't really matter. That's you, why. So what they're showing right now, I paused it, you can't see this, but what I'm showing you right now is after he won a hand, he dropped his cards, I'm talking about person, and puts up the double middle finger to Helmuth. The double middle finger right for the camera. <laughs> and that really pissed off Helmuth. The double middle finger. In fact, Helmuth even tweeted out, rough day for me, my opponent gave me the double bird and was out of line with his verbal attacks, but then I engaged. I should have been the better man, taken the abuse and found a way to win our match. So here well, it goes on. Get in drawing dead against me right there. Oh, Phil, you're going broke. So this guy was not only talking trash, he just kept telling Phil that he sucked, that he's a has-been, that uh, he's going broke. It wasn't even like he was talking trash about Phil's personality. He was just going on telling Phil he sucks at poker, which is funny considering how well Phil has done recently, but this guy was just relentless. I feel as though that moment there may have been the one that crossed the line. That's really a good draw. They're talking about the middle finger. Yeah, that was, that was just wrong extremely disrespectful. Yeah. So you're in way over your skis. It won't be long now. You're in way over your skis right now. I'm going to raise you with a full house, and you're going to move in with a pair. You're it's going to be embarrassing, except you're an you. amateur. That's I, what you got to do. I will say this, though. For you. You're in way over your skis right now, kid. Boundless condescension. Yeah. I, Phil has given boundless condescension and disrespect to people over the years. Now he hasn't done it in person. Four in a row, I just fold, fold, fold. So it's easy. You're just going to whittle me down. I've never thought of that. I'll tell you one thing, if you'll listen. Are you going to listen? You don't want to listen. All right, I won't say it. Anytime you think you're running a great player over. Where's the great player, Phil? <laughs> oh, shit. You wouldn't last a week in our game we fucking play. You wouldn't last a week. <laughs> Where's the great player? You wouldn't last a week in the game we fucking play. It's so funny that there's this guy who's kind of like a nobody just telling Phil over and over that he sucks. I beat everybody in the world for Bullshit. five Bullshit. You years. haven't been there one day at the Blodgy. What the fuck are you talking about? You can lie to everybody. You can't lie to me because we're what there. What are you talking about? We play You play a little game? 10, 20, 40 game 10, 20? Is that what we play? I don't know what you play. What are you shit, talking man. about? You're so full of Ten shit. Sixteen total. Phil, by the way, we... we I think you one a, time came and played a mixed game. One time. You don't think I can beat the fucking Bellagio game? Then put your money where your mouth is. Happily. Okay, I bet you a million dollars I can win over. What? Just name the number of sessions. Your person. You want to talk money, put the million up. I put a million up. You want to play heads up for a million? Ten thousand. Is that what you want to do? Cool. I play you all day long. Did you hear what I said? You said some random thing about a random number of sessions. It really wasn't all that defined. Fifteen Person has Phil tilting. This is what he raised playing that well anymore. Like well, I don't even Let's know what Phil's doing. So this hand here, they're talking about Helmethes has King Deuce of Hearts, and for some reason called a flop bet when Person bet with pocket fives and a Jack Nine Four board, and Phil has no draw. So they're the commentators are saying that he's even tilting Phil somewhat, and not, Phil's not even playing his best game because of it. To do it again. I wouldn't raise you here, Phil. I have the best hand. I need you to bluff <laughs> off the river. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he's playing Phil like a fiddle right now. It's fucking really strong. 
King High. Like I said, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Phil did call down with King High, no draw, except the river they both checked, and the person ended up winning on a Jack 4 9, Jack 4 board with pocket fives. So I guess this is effective. I guess Helmuth wasn't used to this. Why would I raise you there? You're so stupid. You think you think your little ten twenty forty game with the Bellagio means something? I don't play ten twenty forty, Phil. Whatever you play, you're so ridiculous. You're going broke, Phil. You got about a thirty of chips right now. Put your money where your mouth is. I bet you a million. I go beat your little Bellagio game. So he's winning right now about three hundred thousand to one hundred thousand. So he he does have a good chip lead on Helmuth. And of course, this is a heads up freeze out, so there's no rebuying or anything. Interesting side bet that's being proposed where both are talking over each other. This person guy is saying that he'll play a million dollars heads up with Phil. And Phil is saying he wants a million dollar bet that he can beat whatever game this guy is playing at the Bellagio over a certain number of sessions. It is interesting that Phil may not want to actually play this guy heads up for a million. Over, over well, what period of time? Up. Over mean, what just, period of time? I'm happy to play with you know, for a million dollars. Look at me. I'm happy to play you for a million dollars. I'll take your money. You and I will play. You and I will you're play. You're a fish. Oh, you, and I, you and I will Phil, play. You're so far over your fucking head right now, you have no idea. You're in the wrong game. You're going to do some idiot I'm going to bust move. you right here. You're going to do gonna some bust idiot you right move. Here. You're going to whine about it, and you're going to go broke. I check. You know what person is? He's like... And Amog, he's like every person that Phil's berated over, over his career combined into one person to take revenge on him right now on, on TV. That's kind of funny. Uh, by the way, you might be able to tell from his voice, this person is not a young guy. Of course, nor is Phil. I think Phil's 57. But this guy's around Phil's age. So this is not a young guy who's uh, berating him. I, I can't tell his exact age in this broadcast, but this is not, it's not like a young punk is berating Phil. They're kind of near each other's age. <laughs> and he's doing a good job. I, lo- I love I mean, this He's starting guy. to really control this match. For those guys... Yeah, it's it's satisfying for a lot of people to watch because <laughs> Phil has berated so many people over the years and now he's getting it. He's rattled by it. 10-20 games. The truth is... He's vindication incarnate. Yeah, no <laughs> oh, you're fucking obnoxious, aren't you? He is you obnoxious. Put your fucking money where your mouth is. I already said I would, Phil. Okay, so I'll play 40 sessions over in your fucking game and all I gotta do is win, right? No, not all you gotta win is the game. you gotta win more than me. What does that have to do with you and me? Are you some? You're some kind of crazy maniac. Oh my god! <laughs> well, you might be tempted to think that about Eric Person, but this is a man who actually holds. You and I will play. We will play a bunch of heads up. We'll get each other's number. Five degrees. You can come over and we'll play at the Ario or the Bellagio, or you can come to my house. We can play. <laughs> Intern for former U.S. Senator yeah, Richard no, Bryan from today. Nevada. And in these things almost over against women and children unit of the DA's office. And as I mentioned earlier, went to Georgetown Law. Before getting Wow, this guy might be a lawyer, it sounds like. Being involved in the gaming industry, so. Oh, check, check. Well, he may not be in a three-piece suit. This is a man who check. has professional yeah, I what you do if you don't hit that deuce on that hand. Now, this is an interesting one. He actually made a, a good fold there. Person had nine deuce of hearts. And Phil had threes, and the board was 8-5 deuce. So both of them had a piece of this, but Phil was, of course, ahead. And when Phil bet the flop, then the person actually let it go. Good fold. He didn't try to peel or, or call him down to keep him honest. He just let it go. 
pretty far behind. He'd have to catch a two or a nine at some point to win this one. Anyway, I'm going to fast forward now up to uh, 150, close to 156, one hour 56, when this whole thing really falls apart. He's overdoing it to the point that I think it's it's like with the intention of being give you this. really blatant. Oh, so this is interesting. We, we joined a hand in progress here where a person actually has quads with pocket kings. And Helmuth has ace nine on an eight king, nine king, six board. And they're saying the person is overdoing it a little bit here with uh, the Hollywooding. I'm going to race. <laughs> I mean, come on. How is anyone at this struggled and then raises you? Raise all in. There we go. Fuck. I mean, cooler after cooler as you hem and haw and let me know you have a king. It's so sick. Is that what I have? Cooler after cooler. So, so Phil commented on that that the when Phil uh, raised him, then he put in another raise person after acting like he was frustrated. So Phil kind of saw through that and said, oh, you know, "You're hemming and hawing about your hand, and then you're putting another raise. So obviously you have a king." He didn't realize he had two kings in his hand to be quads, but Phil only had a nine there, so it even, even one king easily beats him. So th- this is where it really starts to fall apart, though. Thank God for all the amateur hemming and hawing. Yeah. Thank wow, God. another cooler. <laughs> you would have busted some people with all that acting. <laughs> you threw the time extension in early. <laughs> it's actually humorous if I wasn't getting so unlucky every fucking hand. Eight to call. You're almost dead, Phil. You're almost broke. Gonna have to take a stand in a second. I think anything like Queen Eight or higher, you should think about shoving. I <laughs> think he's giving Phil advice on when to shove in all in as a short stack here. Man, otherwise you're you gonna go can out. Can you just like shut little, the fuck up? Like a little bitch. Can, Paul, can I get? I mean, like, can I get some protection? <laughs> like in a, in a normal tournament, uh, they, the obnoxious guy would be. They give him a Listen penalty. To Phil, he, no, he, call Phil must know to, what happens to the Paul, obnoxious I'm asking guy. For, I'm asking for some protection. I like that comment. Phil must know what happens to the obnoxious guy. That's exactly it. Nothing happens to Phil when he berates people. He always gets away with it because he, there's tremendous favoritism at the World Series. Section. All right. Come over, Paul. I, I'm asked you to come up. So, so here the, the floor man actually takes Phil's side and, and shouts over to Eric Person. You're, it's starting to get a little out of line. So Person says, okay. And then Phil's like, no, no, no. I want you to come over here, Paul. So he wants this floor man to come over and either do more or really give it to Person for this. Will you please come up? This guy's been completely out of line for like an hour. I'm really getting sick of it. In any other tournament on the planet, I don't have to put up with this bullshit. They just kick the guy out or give him a penalty. He needs to be warned for a penalty because I've had enough of this bullshit. I just, I mean, it's just so obnoxious. I don't even want to be here playing this fucking event with with a fucking guy like this. It's ridiculous. Bring me a fucking great player or someone like a great businessman who's a nice guy. Not this bullshit. He needs to have a warning. The Florence, yeah, okay, fine. I'll give him a warning. Yeah, yeah. Should have a warning. And by the way, it's more than fair. fair. Oh, you want to try to get me a warning? Uh, uh, (laughs) Listen to him. Uh, You got your warning. Play your hand. 
So he actually got a warning, Eric Person, over this. I mean, it's a lot of the talking has been back and forth. Uh, ever. I'll be frank. My opinion, having this watched work? this, is the biggest Paul. thing that's out of line was the double middle fingers. Agreed. Beyond that, up, Paul? they've both been jousting. Both been talking. A lot of the engagement from Person happened because Helmuth was saying things to And By the way, I'm looking at the other tables going. There's other tables going in the same room. I'm looking at the other tables going. Everybody is like whisper quiet. (laughs) 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 This is the only table where people are just going off. That's so funny. It's the only table where this is happening. But I agree with the announcers there. It, It kind of looks like just a back and forth. Now, yes, person seems to be enjoying it, but it's not like Phil has been super polite to him. It's just getting attacked. So they really should give the warning both ways if they want this to stop. Anyway, person ended up winning. And Phil then later said that he should have been the better man and taken the abuse and found a way to win. As a postscript to this, Phil ended up blocking somebody on Twitter. Now, was it Eric Person? No. Was it a friend of Eric Person's? No. Was it a longtime troll of his? No. He blocked longtime friend Daniel Negranu. Yes, Phil Helmuth blocked Daniel Negranu when Negranu came out and basically said Phil got a taste of his own medicine, which he was correct about. So Negranu was not on Phil's side in this whole thing. And then he showed the screen of the block message when he looked at Phil's profile. I don't know if this block is going to stay, but he actually blocked Negranu. It says, Phil Helmuth blocked you. You are blocked from following Phil Helmuth and viewing Phil Helmuth's tweets. And Negranu put out, and this is the same day this whole thing happened, April 21st. He put out, embarrassing Phil, even for you. For decades, you have ruthlessly berated people at the table, and now one guy, person, gives you a taste of your own medicine, and you cry like a child. No one in poker history is more deserving of behavior penalties than you. That's kind of right. And then, prior to that tweet and what made Helmuth block him was when Negreanu wrote, What I just witnessed was hard to put into words. Helmuth asking the floor to give the other guy a penalty for berating him while simultaneously calling him a motherfucking asshole. (laughs) <laughs> but then the guy got a warning not a penalty but the guy got a warning that just shows you even there at poker go and you could see phil kind of slipped in this little veiled threat that he's not coming back to something like this if they don't do this for him he said i don't even want to be here he was saying he said, match me up with a nice businessman or some great pro not a guy like this so he was basically saying i, I don't like that i got matched up with someone who is being a jerk to me. And I'm not going to play these type of things if this happens and if you guys don't do anything about it. So he's basically giving them the message. If you want me to be participating in your little Poker Go events, then you better get a hold of these people who are trying to get under my skin. Because if I'm not having fun here, I'm just not going to come. And you're not going to get the ratings. That's what he was trying to say to him. Which is kind of crappy, because everybody should be treated the same in these things. And they're not. Even at the World Series, they're not. So that's why 
Phil wanted this guy, Paul, the floor man, to come over there and to give the warning and to give the penalty and all that. He he wanted a big show that this guy is really getting a warning. And he wants the guy to understand, if I'm not having a good time here, I ain't coming back. That's asking for favoritism. It really is. It's saying that I know you guys want me here for ratings, so if you do, you better give me different treatment than someone like Eric Person, who is not a known player. And I really don't like that side of poker. I really do not like that. I've really wished for a long time that just everybody was treated the same for the most part. And there wasn't all this favoritism for certain name pros. They can do certain things the rest of us can't. So you can go find this if you want to watch it. The video is called $25,000 PGT Heads Up Showdown, Round 32. It's a long video. It's like 2 hours, 37 minutes. But you can just fast forward through the other people and get to the helmets and purse and stuff interspersed throughout it. Or you can just start watching it 1 hour, 44 minutes, 40 seconds. That's when it kind of starts getting really good. All right, so I want to give you an update to the weird saga involving Resorts World and CEO Scott Sabella and accused scammer Brandon Sattler. We've covered this a number of times this year, but there's a new development with it. And the whole thing's just so bizarre. And then there's even this side saga to it where Robin Hood 702, a.k.a. Robert Cipriani, has uh, been arrested for other things over the Resorts World involving another scammer he was trying to take uh, video of and then started videoing him. And then I think the courts have not been treating Cipriani fairly. But this is a different matter at Resorts World, which has they're intertwined a little bit because Cipriani has been citing this a lot as criticism of Sabella. But other than that, it's a separate story. If you remember, this Brandon Sattler ran a company called Satcom. And Satcom was supposed to be installing video monitors in casinos. And he got a lot of people to invest in Satcom. And then he just embezzled the money. And he lied about these contracts, apparently, that he claimed he had with casinos around Las Vegas when it turned out he probably didn't. Uh, Believe it or not, this has not gone to criminal court. There hasn't been an arrest, to my knowledge, which is weird because you would expect that there would be. This really looks like fraud to me, but somehow it's only been a civil case of the investors against Brandon Sattler. I mentioned before that there was this weird situation where the plaintiff's attorney, the plaintiffs who were suing Sattler, kept trying to subpoena Scott Sabella, the CEO of Resorts World, for a deposition regarding Sattler's gambling at Resorts World, because that's where some of the money that was allegedly embezzled was gambled. And what was weird about this was that Sabella, being the CEO, would typically not be someone who would have knowledge of a kind of middle-to-high-stakes gambler on property. Usually the CEO does not even take a look at that. 
They don't look at who gambles from day to day. They'll get to know the very, very huge whales, but beyond that, the CEO is not going to really know who gambles there and who doesn't. So when they do subpoena casino employees to verify that certain people were gambling with embezzled money, they will bring in ones that were directly interacting with the accused embezzler, such as the pit boss or a casino host, something like that. And we talked about that before. But in this case, they didn't want a pit boss or a casino host. They wanted CEO Scott Sabella, which, if Sabella had no connection to Sattler, could honestly say, I had no idea. I don't know this guy. I don't keep track of every single gambler here. Ask one of my employees. I'm sorry. I don't know anything about this. And he could truthfully say that if he had nothing to do with Brandon Sattler in any way. But there was some reason why the attorneys believed that Scott Sabella had some kind of relationship with Brandon Sattler, and that's why they felt it was useful to bring in Scott Sabella as a, to be uh, subpoenaed for this, deposi- for this deposition. And Sabella was trying to fight this through his attorneys at Resorts World. But anyway, um, on April 5th, Sattler did a deposition. And again, this was about the civil case. This is not a criminal case. But on April 5th, Sattler let the allegations fly. And keep in mind, this is from Sattler. The subpoenas for Sabella for the deposition were coming from the other side's attorney, from the plaintiff's attorney. Here, Sattler, who's the accused, during the deposition, he had a lot to say about Scott Sabella. So he says that he has known Scott Sabella of Resorts World for, quote, 20 plus years. And then Resorts World came back with the claims made in this deposition are maliciously false and unfounded. All information relative to Mr. Sabella's acquaintance with this individual as a customer was provided to the Gaming Control Board. So uh, they are denying this, but he made other allegations beyond just knowing them for 20 years. Uh, He claims prior to November 30th, 2014... I'd say he's a friend. Now, what happened in November 2014? Uh, I guess Sabella was the CEO of the uh, MGM Grand at the time. And uh, he got kicked out of the MGM Grand on November 30th, 2014. I don't know if he was a CEO. He was He was an executive of that casino. I guess he wouldn't be CEO because it's uh, MGM Grand was, was an MGM property. But in November 2014, he was kicked out. And he said, prior to that, November 30th, 2014, I'd say he was a friend. Yes, we've partied. Yes, we've done drugs together. Yes, we probably had sex with multiple women at the same time. We did a lot of different things together. But after that point, I'd say we're just acquaintances. (laughs) So he's claiming that prior to November 2014, they were doing drugs together, having sex with multiple women at the same time together. Wow. Now... These are claims by an alleged scammer, so keep that in mind. This could all be BS. But he really believes that he had some kind of real relationship with Scott Sabella dating back then that extended all the way to the present, and that uh, within the last seven-plus years, it's been, uh, they've been more acquaintances since then. Sattler said he was banned from Resorts World in January 2022, only after the litigation about this uh, fraud surfaced in the press, but he claimed he had 
a contract to manage the installation of video cameras and TVs and, quote, computer stuff inside of the Resorts World restaurant Tacos El Cabron. And he said that he interacted with Sabella during this work and that Sabella had told him that Resorts World was a 50% owner in Tacos El Cabron. Now, why does it matter how much Resorts World owns of Tacos El Cabron? Well, it's a whole different matter. Sattler said that Tacos El Cabron was owned by Resorts World and a combination of Jamie Behar, or sorry, Jaime Behar, David Strage, John Paul, and three others. However, David Strage is a convicted money launderer, convicted of both money laundering and illegal bookmaking. So he is a felon. He was known on the street as Fat Dave, and he was a well-known gambler and bail bondsman with a history of organized crime association in Philadelphia. So basically, uh, David Strage, uh, not only is he a convicted felon, but he's known to be a mobster. And the Nevada Gaming Commission, the Gaming Control Board, is very, very careful not to allow that into Las Vegas at this point. In fact, all gaming commissions basically frown on that. They really look into the background of anyone who's going to have any association with any casinos, and if there seems to be any past felonious behavior or mob association, then they don't allow it. So this would have been a big blunder by Resorts World if they co-own a restaurant in Resorts World with a mobster who is a convicted felon. So Sattler was saying that David Strage is one of the owners there and that Resorts World owns half of it. Uh, on a wiretap at one point, this doesn't have to do directly with Resorts World, he was once overheard on this wiretap saying, between you and me, the best way to launder money, you do it through these local casinos in California. That's how if someone owes me 100000 and they want to wire it to me, I wire it to the Palomar, leave it in my player's bank, and they give me chips. So that was caught on tape at one point on a wiretap with Strage. So they, they definitely should not be in business with Strage there if they care about their license at Resorts World. And now this is being investigated because of Sattler's allegation. So the Gaming Control Board is taking interest and they are looking into these claims. They're looking into, number one, was Sattler's relationship with Sabella different than what Sabella has claimed? Is Sabella lying about that? And second, does David Strage really own part of Tacos El Cabron at Resorts World? And if the answer is yes, then there could be some trouble. Now, as far as Sattler's gambling at Resorts World, he went uh, a bunch of times to Resorts World between uh, June and September of 2021. And at that point, uh, Sattler was uh, ordered to uh, be paying to pay his debts. And he made cash deposits of $220,000 while he was uh, being pursued by creditors and f sanctioned by federal court. And then between June 24th and uh, October 28th, he made another seven visits and actually won in that time, about uh, 50K. 
But Nevada Gaming is really looking into this one on both ends. And I wonder what's going to happen if it's found that Sattler's telling the truth, or at least part of the truth. So this uh, investigation was reported by the Nevada Independent on April 21st, and apparently the Nevada Gaming Control Board is very, very concerned with both of these items. An outside spokesman, a spokeswoman for Resorts World said that the Gaming Control Board was contacted when these deposition claims were made. She said, in the instance of Tacos El Cabron, Resorts World Las Vegas conducted a thorough background and due diligence checks as we do with all of our tenants and nothing untoward was found. However, if we, along with gaming regulators, determine that there's a hidden interest of any kind that was not previously disclosed, we will act immediately to ensure full compliance with all gaming authorities. Hmm. That's a bit of an odd statement. You'd think if they just had no knowledge, period, that David Strage was an owner, they'd just say that. Why not just say the individual with a felony record alleged to be an owner of Tacos El Cabron was never presented to us as an owner, and we had no knowledge of him having ownership unless it is some sort of secret ownership we were unaware of. So, something along those lines. that we, we were never told that he was involved and that any involvement was snuck behind our back. But they're not saying that. They're just saying we did a background check and nothing untoward was found. Almost like they're going to claim later that they did check David Strauss, but somehow they just missed it. That's kind of a weird statement in what it's not saying. If you really thought Strauss was not an owner, why not just say that? We, we never thought he was an owner. We were never led to believe he was an owner. If he is, it was snuck by us. Why not just say that? Also, Resorts World is denying that Sattler ever worked on the property. They are claiming that Sattler is just making this up. He claims he had a contract to install video monitors at Tacos El Cabron and was to be paid $40,000 for it. Resorts World says that that contract never existed and he never worked there. I would think that would be kind of easy to prove either way. Now, keep in mind, this entire lawsuit is about Sattler lying about having contracts all over Las Vegas and getting these investors and then just embezzling the money. That's what they're alleging. So do I think it's possible Resorts World is telling the truth that Sattler never worked there? Yeah. But it is also possible that Sattler did have some kind of relationship with Sabella and was able to get this contract for Tacos El Cabron and then lied about the rest of everybody. So maybe he really did have a 40K contract for Tacos El Cabron and then uh, spun the story up to be a super massive contract to install these uh, monitors everywhere and got people to invest in the company. It could have been that. I'm just guessing here, though. Regarding what Sabella said about his relationship or lack thereof with Sattler. At a March 5th hearing into uh, licensing for Sabella himself and also other executives from Parent Genting, uh, Gaming Control Board member Brittany Watkins asked Scott Sabella about the subpoena that he had received for that deposition that he'd been trying to fight. She didn't actually name Sattler. She just asked about this subpoena, which was uh, later withdrawn, by the way. So Sabella never did give that that uh, deposition. And what Sabella said in response, and this is what gaming is looking at, 
if he lied in this response at this hearing on March 5th. He said, I guess there's a person, referring to Sattler, that they're investigating on a fraud. Well, he threw my name out there that I know this person. I met the person twice. He's been a customer for 20 years. I don't know him from Adam. He's done no work at Resorts World. So what they're going to really look at here is, uh, well, I guess they'll also look if he's done re- work at Resorts World, but it is possible he hasn't done work at Resorts World. But even if he hasn't, he says, I don't know him from Adam. I've met him twice. If that can be shown it's not true, if Sattler can prove that he's had a lot of contact with Sabella, even if most of it was more than seven years ago, then that would be a lie, and Sabella could be in trouble. The whole thing's very weird. A lot of weird things at Resorts World. Like, just stuff happening there I can't quite explain. Like what about that Cipriani guy who grabs the cell phone of this uh, other scammer who's recording him constantly gambling there, grabs it and runs it to security or, or to the cashier to give it to security, and then somehow finds himself being charged with larceny. And the DA goes forward with it. When it was very clear, all he did is grab the phone and try to run it over to the cashier to give to security to show he's being recorded. Like how, how does someone get criminally charged for that? Especially since the video backs up his story, and especially since it does seem that someone was recording him for a month and a half. The guy he grabbed it from, uh, Robert Alexander, really was recording him for a month and a half, and he got tired of it. The whole thing's so weird. What is going on over there? It's bad enough that they're struggling and not doing the business they thought they would. Resorts World really is a lesson that location is everything. You can't just throw up a casino somewhere and expect it to succeed if it's not where everybody wants to be in the first place. If you put Resorts World Center Strip, I bet it does great. But where it is, it's just somewhere that's not easy to walk to. People don't really want to be there. It's too far north. The area is not the best. It's across the street from a Denny's and McDonald's. It, it just doesn't have a high-end look to it. When I say look, I mean as far as the, the area. It's not something people are going to walk over to from Center Strip. It takes effort to get there. Not major effort, but effort. That was a big mistake. But I'll admit, I didn't see it coming. I thought Resorts World was going to do the opposite. I thought it was going to kind of make that area more popular. I thought it was going to revitalize that area of the Strip and that eventually would fill in there and everything would be great. But I didn't think the area would be that tough for them to do well. But that was my mistake because I just thought of it the wrong way. But the difference is I was just a commentator on a poker and gambling radio show. But if I were the one in charge of this project, I would definitely be doing some strong market research to figure out if people really want to come, if people would really want to walk over there, if people would go there just for it, knowing there's nowhere else nearby they'd want to go. And I'd want to do that research before investing the billions that were invested in building this. What a fail. How did they end up in business with a mobster? Though I guess Caesars made that same mistake. Some of you may not remember this, but the Cromwell... Caesars accidentally got in business with a mobster, with a Russian mobster, that is. So the company that was hired to turn what was once the Barbary Coast and then became Bill's Gambling Hall into the Cromwell 
was partially owned by a Russian mobster. And Caesars, when they discovered this or whatever, when it came out, Caesars admitted, yes, that's true, and disassociated with him. But by then, that ruined their ability to compete with Wynn to get the only license in the Boston area. And that's why Encore Boston is a Wynn property and why Caesars didn't have a chance anymore. Caesars had to withdraw because they knew that they would have failed to get the license for that alone, for having just recently done business with a mobster. Even though it was pretty clear it was unintentional. Just Caesars incompetence. They don't bother to look into the ownership of the company that's renovating the Cromwell. Oops. It's like half owned by a mobster. Whoops. Didn't think of that. (laughs) You got to be careful with things like that in the casino industry because there's a lot of attempt to keep that out of gaming now by gaming control boards. That all got pushed out of gaming in the 90s and they don't want it to come back. They were kind of trying to push it out before the 90s but weren't successful. But uh, the corporate takeover of Vegas in the 90s kind of started that. And that's why there's not a mob influence in Vegas anymore. And uh, Trader Ruski, uh, you're a little older than me, so you probably took some solo trips to Vegas that I didn't get to take at the time because I wasn't old enough. But I went in the 80s with my parents, and I definitely noticed the mob influence around. Did you ever kind of notice that when you went in the 80s? Um... No, I don't know if I would have really recognized it. Really? I definitely saw it as like a a 17-year-old, 16-year-old. I remember seeing it and noticing it and mentioning it to my dad. Right, but what would you have seen, though? Just some some guy that looks sketchy? I mean... Yeah, just like the, the I, I just noticed around like the, like even running the craps tables and 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 the doorman at the show, they all had kind of like a um like a mobster feel to them. It kind of looked like that uh, everybody there was uh, shall I say like answering to somebody. The whole thing had kind of a sketchy vibe to it in the, the like a mobster sort of way. I, I didn't walk up to anybody and say, "Hey, are you in the mob?" But uh, like that, that was the feel I got from a lot of things I saw in Vegas that I, I don't get that feel anymore at all and haven't in a long time in, when I'm in Vegas. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say – I mean, I guess it's just seeing it now and seeing it then. But just seeing it then, I don't know that I – I just thought it was Vegas. I didn't go to Vegas until I was 21. Oh, okay. So it was around the same time then when we went. Uh, Probably. So it was towards the end of that. So I, in, uh, as I said, I noticed this kind of like late 80s. Before that, I was kind of too young to really notice it at all. But once I was old enough to take notice, even though I couldn't gamble, even though I did gamble a little bit with uh, video poker and hope nobody would see my face. But other than that, I didn't gamble in my teens. I I noticed it, and I eventually noticed the absence of it when I got a little bit older and was going to Vegas myself. And I go, the mob's not here anymore. And then I started hearing about the corporate takeover of Vegas. Go, oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. We will keep following this one, the whole saga of Resorts World, the Robin Hood 702 thing, the Brandon Sattler thing, Scott Sabella, the, the whole gang there. We're going we're gonna to follow them, keep up on the story, which is really not being covered very much, except it is being pretty aggressively covered in the Nevada Independent. So I will give them props for really trying to get the full story here and just not giving a shit who they piss off because they're, they're located right there in Vegas, but... 
they are going to keep pressing. So good job to them. So I want to talk about the coronavirus. We haven't in a long time talked about COVID-19. I kind of got burnt out on the subject. And to be honest, it was kind of more of the same for quite some time. So I figured, you know, I'm not going to burden everybody with a COVID segment every week. But something pretty significant happened. I'm sure you've heard of it by now. And that would be the removal of the requirement to wear masks on planes or other mass transportation. Now, it can still be locally required, but it's not federally required. So before it was the law, no matter what the airline felt about it, that if you're on an airplane, you have to wear a mask. And that has been the law for about two years. And that is no longer the law because a Florida judge struck it down. And she struck it down on the basis that the CDC did not go through the proper procedures and did not do the proper studies to justify making this the law. And therefore, she voided the mask mandate for airplanes or other modes of public transportation. Now, this doesn't ban the requirement to wear masks if done at the local level, but there is no local level for air travel because you're in the air. So the air travel is where this made the most impact. So Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel wrote in a 59-page ruling that the CDC exceeded its authority and failed to properly follow rulemaking procedures. And when this occurred, people actually were allowed to whip off their masks mid-flight. It was actually communicated to the pilots of flights in the air to tell passengers that this is no longer required. The airline could still require it, but uh, the airlines chose not to, so it was announced, and there are videos of people cheering and throwing off their masks, that masks are not required in, in airplanes. Now, you may say that sounds very dangerous. You know, you're, you're in this small space, and there's obviously no windows open, so wouldn't this be a terrible place to take off the mask? Well, not really, because... Airplanes have HEPA filters, which do a very good job for filtering out COVID. And they try to circulate the air a lot through those filters. So the truth is that even though airplanes seem like a place that COVID would be transmitted a lot, it really isn't. Because uh, unless someone is very close to you, that you're directly getting the air they're breathing, uh, the filters tend to get most of the virus out. And that's why you haven't heard of a lot of people catching it on airplanes. Like, How many times have you heard that on an airplane that half the people on the plane got COVID? You haven't. I mean, that just isn't happening. And uh, even with Omicron being so much more contagious, it's still not happening. Now, this judge is a younger judge. She is only uh, 34 or 35. I know she was only 33 when she was appointed by Trump in September 2020 and confirmed by a 49 to 41 Senate vote. And she graduated law school only 10 years ago. But she made a pretty major ruling here. And some people have been criticizing her for this, and some say she lacks the experience to make such a major decision. Uh, I'm not going to get into all that. I don't don't really care about the legal aspect of this and her credentials. 
what I care more about is whether this should have been done or not. And keep in mind, this is not banning wearing masks. So if you want to put on a mask, you can. And that's always going to be the case. You can wear a mask if you feel like on the flight, if you feel uncomfortable. So the question is, should you have to wear a mask? Well, let's think about what type of masks were required. Was it an N95? No. Was it a surgical mask? No. It was any mask. So you could have on a cloth mask and you would have been in compliance with the law prior to this change in the law. And even the CDC has admitted that cloth masks are not very useful against Omicron. And that if you really want something useful against Omicron, you've got to wear a surgical mask or better. So the fact that cloth masks were still okay, that means it was mostly theater. It means it was mostly to feel like you're being safe, but it's really not helping much. And you also have to start looking at the cost of inconvenience and the cost of requirement. When I say cost, I don't mean monetary cost. I mean just you're forcing someone to do something. You're, you're telling someone you have to do such and such. And when you tell someone that they have to do something like wear a mask, you have to wear a mask while sitting on this plane for hours, which can be unpleasant, you have to have very good reason for it. It's not, you can't require things just because they're absolutely optimal. You should only require things when they're very necessary. So if wearing a mask on the plane is not going to make a significant difference in COVID transmission, then it really should not be required. And furthermore, of course, vaccines have been available for quite some time, for over a year now. And Omicron is 10% as deadly as Delta was. So that's a huge difference. And a lot of people have had Omicron already because it was so contagious and presumably those people can't get it again. Now that long-term might change where people can get the next variant that's not an Omicron variant, but maybe it'll stay an Omicron variant for a long time and natural immunity will keep it to where people will only get it once. Who knows? We're learning new things every day about COVID. But I think we're to the point here, more than two years into this, that we've got to just live with COVID. And, And fortunately, what COVID has morphed into is a much less deadly version than the original one and and the Delta mutation. It has since morphed into a 10% as deadly version. And even though it's a lot more contagious, that's something a lot easier to live with, especially since it was mainly killing people who were old in the first place. Now, yes, people who were around my age were getting killed as well, not as high of a rate, but there were some middle-aged people. There's definitely a real risk for middle-aged people. But that's why the vaccines are there. And you can get them if you want. And if you don't want, then you can take the chance. That wouldn't be my recommendation, but you can, and then you have to live with the result of that. But I think we, we have to just go from the belief like we can eliminate COVID, which we really can't, to how do we live with COVID? And that doesn't mean we live our lives with the absolute optimal way to keep transmission at the very, very, very lowest. You have to look at what inconvenience are you forcing on people? How uncomfortable are you making people to get a very small gain? It's a a cost-benefit analysis, really. And it shouldn't matter what feels safe. It may feel safer to see everyone on the plane wearing a mask, even if they're cloth masks, but if the cloth masks are not doing much good, then why are we making them wear? Why? So you may say, well, okay, the direction should have been the other way. should have required surgical masks. But again the better performing the mask, the more uncomfortable it is. At some point, you just have to say, this is just a disease 
we have to live with the risk of being there. And hopefully it will eventually mutate itself into being a cold, which it might. There's a theory that the colds that we experience today were once deadly like COVID was. But it was so long ago, nobody was uh, around or even close to being around to document that or understand it. Basically, with medicine, it was very immature, super immature. Like, yeah, who knows how long ago, but probably hundreds of years ago or more. And the colds we know today may have been like COVID that eventually mutated into just cold coronaviruses. Because a lot of the colds you get are coronaviruses. That cold I just had may have been a coronavirus. It was not COVID, but it may have been a coronavirus. So maybe this one will eventually go that direction, but maybe it'll take a very long time, though. Maybe it'll go through a lot of different mutations as COVID before eventually becoming a coronavirus. Maybe this won't happen for 50 years. I, I don't know the speed that this would happen. I don't think anyone else does. But that might be its ultimate destination, or maybe it'll get there fast. Maybe in a few years, it'll just be a cold. But even if it stays where it is now, it it's kind of seems stable. That's why we haven't done really segments about this, is that Omicron was really the last big development. And that happened in December. So in December, it was rapidly beating Delta and taking over for Delta, and Delta was disappearing because Omicron was competing with it and easily winning the battle because it was way more contagious. And then they learned that Omicron was substantially less deadly. And even those that didn't die, the symptoms were more mild. Now, sometimes you can get unlucky and get a version of Omicron, which is fairly bad. But overall, it was much more mild than Delta and much less deadly than Delta, but much more contagious. And that's kind of where we were the entire 2022. And here we are almost a third done with 2022. And we really haven't had any new developments. Oh, yeah, there's this BA2 variant and other variants, but these are variants of Omicron. So it's still Omicron. It's just different variants of Omicron, which may be more contagious. But bottom line is, from everything they can see, it's still just Omicron. So that may be what we're just kind of stuck with for a while. That may be the thing we have to live with, is the Omicron version of COVID. And then we have to get life back to normal, while at the same time just being aware it's there, and hopefully educating the most vulnerable people that it's very, very important for them to get vaccinated. And that's where I feel a major failure has occurred, is kind of equating everybody that it hasn't been pressed hard enough how much more dangerous it is for old people than young people. And we're talking about orders of magnitude more dangerous. So instead of being afraid of the young people not taking it seriously enough, just be honest and say, look, none of you really want this, but truth is, if you're young and you get it, and you're really, really unlucky, you're going to live and it'll be fine. Uh, the people who are elderly, you got to really watch out. So... If you're going to be anti-vax and young, you know, fine. But uh, if you're old and anti-vax, you've been real stupid. That that should be the message. Because that's mainly who's dying of it, elderly people. But you also have to look at, and this is a little bit morbid, but you have to look at this honestly of how, many, how much time is it cutting off the typical person's life who dies from COVID? So in 2020, it was definitely cutting off a lot of years. I mean, I, I personally knew people in their 50s who were nowhere near death. I, I don't know their... I didn't know them really well. They were kind of like acquaintances of mine. So I, I don't know if they had some 
health problems that they didn't tell anyone about. But these were guys in their 50 who died of COVID who probably would have lived uh, quite some time longer had they not gotten COVID. These people could have lived another 20, 30 years and they're gone. But if you have someone who's 90 years old and has some major health problems where it's unlikely that they're going to live another four months and then they die of COVID, well, that's not good. But there's a huge difference between someone like that dying and someone who's 50 dying. Because one, you're, you're cutting off decades of life and the other one is, is going to be gone very soon anyway. So if a lot of the Omicron deaths, if most of the Omicron deaths are people who are getting very close to dying anyway, with or without COVID, then it becomes much less of a big deal to society. Not in saying that you shouldn't value old people, just that in just strict terms of how much life it's cutting off for people. So we just have to live with it. And we also have to learn that things have been understood about COVID that weren't known before and not just do things because they look good. So stop obsessing over all the sanitizing and uh, all of that. And I, I hate when businesses hide behind COVID and say, oh, we don't do this anymore because of COVID. Like good example, the water at Caesars properties in Vegas, they used to give you free water bottles. At least if you were diamond or higher, you could just keep getting water bottle after water bottle. They give it to you for free. COVID happened. They reopened. Sorry, no water bottles. It's COVID. Well, guess what? Still no water bottles. That's crappy. Why? What could possibly be the reason why, from what we know? It doesn't transfer on surfaces. surfaces. It's, not a, it's not a surface disease. You don't get it from surfaces like you do with colds. So them handing me a bottle of water, the only danger as far as get, getting a virus is like a cold or a flu. COVID, no. That's not going to transfer COVID to me. So why did they stop? Well, because they're cheap. They want to save money and they can hide behind COVID. But the way this BS can stop is if it is communicated properly to the public what really is a danger. And we can't go by what we were believing about it in uh, January 2020, February 2020. We have to go by what we believe about it in April of 2022. And not go by what feels dangerous, but what actually is dangerous. So surfaces are not dangerous. You can leave a surface as unsanitized as you want. You could have someone who has COVID sneeze or cough on a surface, and then you can touch that surface, and you can touch your mouth, and you're, you're not going to get COVID, because that's not the way it's going. That's not the way it transmits. It's not like a cold. It may eventually be a cold. It's not a cold now. So we've got to get that out. We've got to stop doing all this contactless crap. I, I hate how you can't use cash in some places now, again, because of COVID. No, that's not how it's transmitting. So th that's where a lot of these mistakes are. You hear about follow the science. Okay, let's do it. Let's follow the science. Let's go by what we really know about the disease and then craft policy around that. And along those lines, wearing cloth masks on airplanes, having that be a requirement. If you want to, go ahead. But have that be a requirement is dumb. And I'm glad they got rid of that. And we really just have to get to the let's all just do what we feel we're comfortable with. And will some people die of COVID each year? Yes. In a bad flu year, 80,000 people die in the U.S. 80,000. And you never heard about it. Except like a little item on the news. Oh, this has been a bad flu season. 80,000 people died this year. And you go, oh, wow, well, that kind of sucks. But yeah, weren't most of them are like old and sick? Well, yeah. And, and for some reason, there wasn't even like the panic about the flu with kids dying. Because there were kids dying of the flu. It was mostly old people, but kids were dying of the flu. 
And we kind of just accepted that because that's just what we've known since we've been born, that some kids are unlucky and will die of the flu. And it was generally known that if you're uh, an adult, but not an older adult, then you're not going to die of the flu unless you get really, really unlucky. So it was mainly getting old people and some kids. But for some reason, COVID was just, because COVID was killing more people than the flu, it just caused a tremendous panic among all the age groups when it wasn't totally justified. Now, I know there's more than just death. I know there's the long COVID. I know there's a lot we don't know about COVID, and it's possible it can harm you long term in ways the flu does not. So I'm not completely discounting the value in avoiding COVID. In fact, I personally still try to avoid COVID somewhat, but I don't let it rule my life like I did two years ago. And the big difference is the vaccine. Even though my vaccine is probably worn off a lot as far as preventing symptomatic COVID, because it's been six and a half months, uh, it still should be protecting me a good deal from major COVID. And I'm still tossing around if I should get the fourth shot. Now, Trader Ruski and I are both eligible for it, both being over 50 now. Trader Ruski's been over 50 longer than I have been, but I am over 50 presently, so I can get it. Uh, Trader Ruski, are you planning on getting it, or did you get it, the, uh, the fourth shot? I did get the fourth shot. And, yeah, pretty much just like the third shot. Couple, like It was like a day later, I was tired, nothing major. Well, I'm jealous. I, I wish that was my situation. Uh, I'm, I mean, this will be a decision I make pretty soon because it's April 26th now. And I said before that if I'm going to get it, it's going to be about a month before the World Series starts. And here we are. So uh, like, like next week would probably be when I would do it. In fact, if uh, I'm unable to do radio, <laughs> you know why? I, I could even get it in like the next few days. I mean, it's, it's nothing magical about next week. I just want it kind of like around a month before I play my first event. And I have to admit that the biggest form of hesitation is the bad experience I had from the second and third shot. That I just do not look forward to making myself sick for three days. It just lasts longer on me. And I now don't really have optimism the fourth will be any better because the third was so similar to the second. And in fact, it was a little bit worse. So now I'm kind of thinking, well, is this going to be worse than the third? But even if it's the same as the third, it's going to suck. So I don't like the idea of doing this twice a year and knowingly making myself sick like this. If it was one day, it would be easier. It's the fact that it lasts three days, which really blows. And the fact that this fourth shot has questionable efficacy and may even be a negative because of the T-cell exhaustion, which may or may not be occurring, it doesn't make it an easy decision. Whereas the third shot, that was a super easy decision. I never had any doubt that I wanted the third shot, and I got it as soon as I could. So very different situation with the fourth shot and the third for me because I knew the third shot was very effective and very good. So yeah, I knew there was a decent chance I'd have a crappy reaction from it, and I did, but I thought, okay, this is something important, and also I'm going to two World Series, the... uh or maybe hopefully two World Series, the Dodgers World Series and the World Series of Poker. Dodgers didn't end up making the World Series, but I did go to the Dodgers playoff games. And at least most of that's outdoors. But I, I was happy to have it, and I was even happier to have it at the uh, World Series main event where 
Delta was in the room, and I didn't get it. But I don't know. I'd feel kind of stupid, though, if I'm at the World Series of Poker and, like, in the middle of an event, I get Omicron, and I think, crap, why didn't I get the vaccine? Like, if I get the fourth shot, and then I get it anyway, well, all right, I did all I could. But if I get the fourth, I don't get the fourth shot, and then I catch COVID while I'm there, and, like, I can't go to day two of an event or something, I really, really hate myself for not having done it. But then again, I'll hate myself for having done it if it turns out this T-cell exhaustion thing is real. And this actually increases my chance of having a bad case of COVID. And it is something people have to consider. This has not been proven in any way. This is just a theory. There's never been a vaccine you take this often. But there is a belief that if your body keeps seeing the same thing over and over, that it will start to normalize that virus being there and will not fight it as aggressively. And also, the second problem is that uh, given that there's mutations of COVID and it becomes a, a different virus somewhat, if your body has learned to fight one version of it, the one that uh, was originally put in, the, the original vaccine that was supposed to be similar to the original COVID, if there's enough of a difference between the original COVID and Omicron, which there is, then your body could be learning to fight the wrong COVID. So th- these are two concerns with, with just repeatedly getting these shots that we may not know is a problem until some time passes. So it's not even just if you get the fourth shot, you can say, okay, great. Even if it's not doing as much for me as the third shot did, it's going to help me somewhat, so great. I'll just deal with whatever discomfort I get from the shot itself and the side effects, but then I've got some additional protection. No, there's a possible downside too. So there's not an easy decision for someone who is uh, not elderly. But at the same time, I've never had symptomatic COVID, even with it being in my house, even with it being in the same room with me at the World Series, I still haven't had it. And I'd like to keep up that streak. I wondered when I played poker, when I last went to Vegas, if I would catch COVID because my vaccine is wearing off. And I did catch a virus, but it was not COVID. It was a cold. It shows you what can happen. Though I think it happened on the surfaces there. So that's where the cold has a big advantage to spread that COVID doesn't. All right, let's move on and talk about Twitter at request of a listener and also because I wanted to talk about it anyway. I, went, I meant to put it on the agenda and, and I forgot, but this will be a bonus topic. So I'm sure you heard by now that Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter for fifty four twenty a share has been accepted. At first, uh, Twitter's board was fighting this, but uh, I think along the lines of fiduciary responsibility, which all board members have to engage in, basically they always have to act in the best interest of the company making a profit when it's a publicly traded company, as it is. Otherwise, they could be breaking the law. I, I think they decided that they have to do this. So they did. They've accepted the offer. It, it hasn't officially gone through the sale, but... It's being treated as if it has, and it, it probably will. It probably is going to become reality, and Elon Musk will be the owner of Twitter. So what does this mean? 
Now, I see a lot of people who are on the political left are talking about deactivating their Twitter account like now. Not like later on if Elon Musk messes it up or abuses it. I'm talking about like right now, which I don't understand. Uh, Twitter definitely has some problems. It's got problems on two ends, really opposite ends of the spectrum. On one hand, Twitter is full of bullying, doxing, threats, including violent threats, and they don't police it very well. I've seen tons of instances where people are abused on Twitter, but because they're not famous or influential, they report it and they get back the dreaded, I'm sorry, we have not uh, found a violation in these tweets. We cannot take action. Or someone just gets a mild warning for threatening to kill you or posting uh, personal info. But then I've seen on the other end where they get overly aggressive with either banning or suspending people or suppressing stories or points of view or both. The most egregious version was the Hunter Biden laptop story in October of 2020. But there's lesser versions of this happening all the time. In fact, one actually happened to me. Now, fortunately, I saw it coming, so I used an alternate account that was actually in my name, but it was a second account I had. So I wasn't pretending not to be me, but it wasn't my main account because I was a little worried I might get suspended, and I was. And I was worried only because I know the way Twitter is. Some of you may remember this uh, whole Gamergate controversy in 2014, and it sprung from claims of certain women who were in the gaming community that male gamers don't treat them well, especially women who are either developers or uh, ones who work in some way in the gaming industry. They claim that a lot of these neckbeard types who are gamers uh, just don't accept women and treat them very poorly. And several women came forward with their stories, and then conveniently they ended up with GoFundMe accounts, and uh, they were making a lot of money from their claims. And when it was looked into, it turned out that every single one of these women who came forward with the stories and set up the GoFundMe's and all that, every single one of them was lying. Every single one. Now, I'm not saying no women have been harassed in gaming. There have definitely been women harassed and mistreated in gaming. But it would have been nice if they brought forth real victims rather than opportunistic scammers. But... That's who was championed. And unfortunately, once these people put out their stories, these scammers, then a certain contingent decided that they needed to back these stories. They needed to elevate these women to heroic status. Because otherwise, if they admit these are scammers, then it ruins the whole message they were afraid. So we had a lot of people who were elevating these scammers into modern heroes. And those who called them into question were considered right-wing trolls. In fact, someone who actually was a right-wing troll, Milo Yiannopoulos, he came into prominence because he was really making his name off of poking all the holes in this Gamergate scandal. So, for all the problems Milo had, and he eventually fell out of favor because he was actually defending... uh, gay relationships between a uh, an adult and a teenager. He was gay himself, but he was actually saying that's not that bad, and that was the end of his prominence. 
and rightfully so. And I, yeah, the guy was pretty much just a troll. And he, he rose to prominence, though, because he was accurately calling out the ridiculousness of Gamergate. Now, why am I bringing this all up? Well, one of the scammers in Gamergate was named Brianna Wu. And Brianna Wu was not even the type of female in gaming that you'd picture. Because while the other prominent females in Gamergate were females who were born female, Brianna Wu was trans. And Brianna Wu was not complaining about being mistreated about being trans. In fact, Brianna Wu would not even talk about being trans. Brianna Wu would never bring that up and would uh, avoid discussing it. Brianna Wu, who, by the way, didn't really look female. She was like six foot two and uh, had kind of a manly looking face. So it wasn't even that hard to figure out that this was someone who's trans. Was insisting that she was being mistreated in the gaming world and threatened and everything else because she is a female game developer. And that didn't make a lot of sense because these male neckbeards, these right-wing male neckbeards that supposedly were threatening her, these would not be the type of people that would consider Brianna Wu to be a woman in the first place. These people would say, nope, you're a dude. So regardless of how you feel about trans people, I'm talking about the people that Brianna claimed were harassing her would not be the ones saying, oh yeah, you're a female in gaming. Yeah, you were born a guy, but we consider you a female and we resent that. There's no way they would think that way. Now, it would be possible transphobic attacks could occur, but that's not what Brianna was claiming. Brianna was claiming it was attacks for being a female, even though the only critics that Brianna had that were vocal were ones that knew the whole story. And not only that, Brianna had a long history of either scammy or just bizarre or offensive behavior. Brianna was actually fired from their school newspaper in college, and this is when they lived as a male named John. Brianna was actually fired for leaving racist and homophobic notes to people, calling them, quote, uh, ragheads and, quote, faggots. So this was not a stable person, this Brianna Wu. Well, Brianna Wu ran for Congress in Massachusetts after becoming a darling of a lot of the left of being one of the faces of Gamergate. And I knew Brianna Wu was a fraud. And so under a second account, after Brianna Wu had been interviewed in a long piece that didn't mention in one place that Brianna Wu was trans, which was weird because to my knowledge and at that point, there had not been a single congressional candidate ever in the U.S. who was trans. So I would think that'd be a big story, right? The the first trans person after actually running for Congress? That wasn't mentioned once. There was no indication at all in the article that Brianna Wu was trans. I go, that's so weird to have this long article about a congressional candidate, not a private person. This is not delving into the life of some private citizen who just wants to be left alone. This is a public figure by choice who threw themselves into Gamergate and is running for Congress who was covering up that they were trans. Really weird. And clearly making up all these different stories. In fact, uh, David Pacman, who is a left-wing YouTube host, he had Brianna Wu on there. And to his credit, he was really asking some tough questions. And Brianna Wu was was furious and and yelling that this is a wish hunt and acting crazy. So props to David Pacman for doing that. But, uh, you know, I just knew this was a liar and a scammer. And as I've always said, scamming has no ideology. Scammers do not scam for political purposes. Scammers are selfish and they just want money. So when someone's lying or scamming to get fame or fortune, that's the only thing they're after. They're not after 
scoring some kind of political points or for some kind of pet political cause. So there was no harassment of Brianna Wu for being a female in gaming. It was made up. It was all a lie. And there's this big, long article kissing Brianna Wu's ass and how brave she is, blah, 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 blah. doesn't mention once there's a trans person running for Congress, the first one ever. And I go, come on. So I went on a second account. Again, not an anonymous account. It was my name, which was a second account. And I asked, why is it not being mentioned in this long article that Brianna Wu is trans and that it doesn't make sense that someone who's trans that is known to these supposed right-wing trolls that they are trans, that she would be attacked for being female because the type of people she claims are attacking her would not consider her female. So that would not be the reason for the attack. And Brianna even you know, has never said anything about being trans. So this whole thing is odd. How come this article didn't cover it? And how come the article is not curious at all why right-wing trolls would be attacking a trans person for, quote, being female in gaming? So I said this in a respectful way. In fact, I said it in a much more gentle way than I'm saying right here. I was very gentle. I said nothing that was transphobic. I said nothing that indicated that I thought Brianna Wu was a man or anything like that. I, I said nothing along those lines. I was very respectful, just basically raising these points. That one, why didn't you mention Brianna Wu's trans, since this is pretty historic? And, and, and second, uh, it, it wouldn't make sense that Brianna Wu would have been harassed by these trolls for being female, because they wouldn't have considered Brianna Wu female. And can you address these? I was banned. I was banned from Twitter for that. For transphobia. This is a congressional candidate! I couldn't ask these questions. I cannot ask these very legit questions about a congressional candidate. Twitter decided that was transphobic and banned me. Fortunately, I just abandoned the account because it was a second account that I didn't need. I could have appealed it, but it was like some long process to appeal it I didn't want to bother with for an alt account. But that's the type of shit that needs to end. You should be able to ask these questions to a congressional candidate. Even someone who's not a congressional candidate that has thrown themselves into some kind of controversy or story. There's a lot of trouble on Twitter with ideological censorship. And I don't want to see that on the left or the right. There's fears from some on the left that what Elon Musk is going to do is swing it the other way, that he's going to start censoring unflattering stories about the right that the left posts, or that he'll censor unflattering stories about him or his companies. I don't want to see that either. And I'll tell you, if I do see that, and I'll promise you this right now here, that if I see that, I will criticize it. And I'll speak out against it. Because I do not want to see the left censors. Uh, censored. I want to see the left being able to speak to their heart's content. And I want to see criticism of Elon Musk and his company be freely stated on Twitter, even if he's the owner. I am not someone who's going to be a hypocrite and complains about censorship of right-wing speech while being okay when the left is suppressed. I just want it to be an open platform for all ideologies, even offensive ones. That's unfortunately a side effect of free speech. There are two major side effects to free speech that one must tolerate if you're a believer in free speech. Number one is misinformation. And number two is offensive content. Because people will say things that offend you. 
if there's free speech and people will lie and try to spread misinformation. And there's no such thing as free speech if you try to suppress either of them because there is no absolute arbiter of what is offensive and what is misinformation. And if you try, you end up with things like the Hunter Biden laptop, which was completely true and may have made an impact on the election, but was censored as misinformation. So you can't do it. You just can't do it. You, you just have to let it go. And then you can try to challenge anything that you think is untrue. You can respond and say, no, 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 this is false for these reasons. But to just censor it is wrong. Or to censor things because it's offensive is wrong. However, it's not quite so simple. Because let's say Elon Musk keeps to what he's promising and makes it a platform where they're not censoring these types of views. Well, that's good. But then where do they draw the line? What if there's just accounts there that are made to be spewing outright racism or outright homophobia? Should Twitter take action at that point if they, the account only exists to spew actual hate? I don't mean debate about policy related to these matters. I mean actual hate, just an account made to just constantly denigrate black people or gays. Like, What if those accounts start spewing on there? Should they be allowed? And there's not a simple answer to that. You could quickly say no, okay, but then what if it's an account that is not directly spewing hate, but is uh, saying something like, well, I don't believe that a trans woman is female. I think it's still a dude in a dress. Is that hate or is that just an opinion? So it's a fine line to have to walk and it's going to be very tough. If someone asked me to outline what I feel should or should not be accepted there, I would have a hard time. And I'd also have a hard time saying, oh, just everything, because no, everything shouldn't be accepted. Like, they shouldn't allow physical threats of violence. They should not allow uh, personal info to be posted. And people should be able to have debate and insult each other in part of the debates. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are a slippery slope. If you don't allow one thing, then you have to not allow another thing. And uh, getting that correct is tough. But but Twitter did a very poor job. You could say, well, Twitter tried, they just didn't get everything perfect. No, 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 no. If they're banning me for transphobia, for the questions I asked, they're not even trying. That should have been super obvious to let stand. What I'm asking is of a congressional candidate in a respectful way. The Hunter Biden laptop story, 100% you don't ban that. It's posted by the freaking New York Post. It's not posted by some right-wing troll. So when they're making blunders like that, one had a major national impact. The thing with me was really no impact, but it was obnoxious. But when they're making big blunders like that, they're not even trying. So I think whatever Elon Musk does will be better. But you know what? If if he ends up not keeping to what he said and he starts censoring left-wing content or censoring unflattering things about himself or his companies, then yeah, I'll have a lot to say that's not very positive. There's also talk that he might try to charge for Twitter or might start requiring people to verify so it can be seen who they really are, and that'll cut down on some of the bad behavior. I don't love that idea. I'd have to see the plan for it. One thing we've talked about before on this show, in fact, Cal Watt and I had a long discussion out here about this, and that is with these free platforms, these free social media platforms, if you are not paying for it, 
then you are probably the product. And that can be bad. That's when abuses of personal information can take place. As we saw on Facebook, happened a whole lot. So don't say, oh, well, you know, Twitter has to remain free. Because if it doesn't, that's a disaster. No, because if it remains free, it has to make money in some way. So maybe it's not terrible if it charges. But then again, you know, maybe we want it to just be open to everybody who wants to use it, even if they can't really afford it or don't have an easy way to pay for it. Not everybody has a credit card or even a debit card. So it is nice that people could have accounts. It's also nice that people can have multiple accounts on there, like I do. I have Todd Wittellis. I have Dandruff Poker, where I post uh, updates when I play tournaments. I have Poker Fraud Alert, of course. I have Vegas Casino Talk, which is for my other forum. So, you know, I have four accounts for different purposes. They're all for different purposes. If I had to pay some monthly fee for each of them, that would kind of suck. And I may abandon uh, the ones I don't use as much, like Dandruff Poker and Vegas Casino Talk. I would definitely keep my own and Poker Fraud Alert, but I don't know. Maybe I'd drop the other dude and be kind of annoyed. Say, damn it, Elon. But he, he's thrown around the idea of maybe charging for Twitter, so I'm, I'm not just pulling this out of my ass. But even if you don't like the idea of him buying it, at least wait and see. And that's what I told the people on Facebook who were talking about deactivating. If you want to deactivate, fine, but why do it now? Maybe he'll do a great job. Why not wait? You can deactivate later. If you think he does a crappy job, and if you think he turns Twitter into garbage, then leave. But at least give him a chance. And if you are deactivating, he makes some kind of statement. What is that statement? Is the statement, we should suppress right-wing thought? Is the statement that true stories about the son of a presidential candidate a week before the election should not be available for the people to read? Like, what are you worried is going to happen to where you're so sure you have to deactivate? And if you are worried about some things like he's going to suppress negative information about himself, well, wait till that happens. And if he does, you want to leave, I support it. So that's how I feel about this. Overall, I think it's a positive. I'll have to wait and see. I don't want to give him too much credit until I see the way he actually runs Twitter. But I've seen so many mistakes by Twitter there's so much of an assault on free speech over there that I think putting someone else in charge will probably result in something better. By the way, Jack, Jack Dorsey, who originally started Twitter, has already been souring on the way Twitter is being currently run. In fact, he even apologized recently. This is before Elon bought it, but during the time Elon was attempting to buy it. Jack was actually expressing that he had some regrets about what Twitter became and that it became something he didn't intend and he apologizes. And what he meant was a lot of the censorship and ideological suppression that was taking place there. That even though Jack is on the left, that he wasn't really a believer in that sort of thing and it kind of just happened. And now he's not even an owner of Twitter anymore, doesn't have any more control and he kind of regrets that he didn't put a stop to this when he could have. So that's an interesting take from the actual founder who is on the political left. Trader Risky, uh, how do you feel about Elon buying Twitter? I really uh, haven't given it much thought. 
Okay, that's fair. I mean, you know, I mean, I just feel I don't know. He's probably doing it for a reason, and I I would hope he's gonna. And Jack Jack Dorsey seems to be pretty happy with it. So, well, right, he's and, happy, unhappy, right, and that's that's. Why I think Jack being happy. I don't even think that's an act. I I think Jack is kind of like he, I think he kind of felt like the current Twitter board is out of control. <laughs> he, he may think that uh, Elon will bring it closer back to what he was originally intending, and. You know, I, I just let it, give him a chance. Even if you don't like Elon Musk or are afraid what he's going to do with it, just give him a chance. And yes, he's a businessman. Yes, he's going to try to make money from it. And I, I think the greatest possible threat to Twitter is not even ideological. I think the greatest threat is actually financial, that Elon will not like what it's generating money-wise and that he's going to do something that's going to really piss everybody off, like regarding making a monthly subscription out of it. Who knows? But uh, something like that that'll really get a lot of people riled up, even people who are on the political right, who right now are hailing him as a hero. So I'm not ready to hail him as a hero yet, but I- I'm happy to see that purchase, and uh, I hope it improves, because it is kind of like a public square these days, and we need that to be something where there is an open exchange of ideas, and that's something that has been lost a lot in recent times. So that some people believe we shouldn't have an open exchange of ideas because what if we, what if some bad ideas are out there? What if people are convinced of bad ideas and they cause harm? But that's that's not how you have a free country. Yeah, you, you have to have a discussion of all the ideas, and you have to explain why certain ideas are bad. And then part of having a democracy is to where the good ideas are the ones that get through. And if the bad ones do, then you have consequences, and then it's corrected. And you, if you try to just suppress what you feel are dangerous or bad ideas, then it never results in something good. And it's a huge mistake, and this was learned long before any of us were born. And that's also something to know, that the world didn't begin when we were born. And there were certain important lessons learned many years before any of us were here. And we, we don't want to repeat those same mistakes. And it's easy to repeat things which you weren't a personal witness to occurring the first time. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox here. Trader Ruski, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I, what time did you start, Josh? I started at 9.30, but uh, I did take a few breaks. One of them was a Benjamin break because he needed help getting back to sleep. And... Uh, I took a second break just because I was talking by myself and my throat started to hurt. So I took some breaks. So in the archives, it won't appear to be as long as it would seem. Right now it is uh, 5.40 a.m. So you would think, oh, wow, an eight-hour show. But it's not It's not going to be eight hours in the archives because I cut out all the breaks. And wow. Yeah, because I got up to pee around two. And you were talking about that. Uh, what was the big uh, scandal this week? Oh, the Bryn Kenny that, thing, uh, yeah. Bryn, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we had a super long segment on that, almost three hours. So Yeah, I was going to say, because I was going to think that must have been the first part. So anyway, looking forward to listening. Okay, well, thank you, Trade Ruski, for joining us. And uh, what, what time did you wake Did you wake up for good at two or just go to the bathroom? No, I just just went to the bathroom and then went right back to sleep. Okay. And I got up around 3.30. I think I jumped on around 3.30, 3.45. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was just wondering if you were up before that or what the – story was there but yeah, you, you just wake up so early are, are you ever gonna go back to a schedule I, where you're not waking up at like 3 30 I'm, I'm on my 5 15 calls now oh okay just, the five, uh, the five fifteen things, calls. i'm able to do it up behind the scenes or everybody else is gabbing yeah well you know the 
515 call is an example of East Coast bias that we must all deal with in the West. True. They, they expect us to bend to them. But dare you say that they take a phone call at 4 p.m. Pacific? What? At 7 p.m. our time. That's our evening. We're not giving up our evening. You get up at 5 in the morning tomorrow. That's what they say. That is the East Coast bias. That's why this is a West Coast bias show. and always will be. Okay, thank you, Trader Risky. We will talk to you hopefully next week, and hopefully I will be back on my computer, but I, I'm not holding my breath. It may not be back next week. Well, and if you take it, draft, just take drink a ton of water before and after. That seems to really get rid of any, any issues you'll have. What are you talking about with my, just, my computer? When you t- if no, if you take the uh, four, if you take the fourth dose. Oh, oh yeah. You know what? That you know? is not a bad idea. I've heard something about the water. You know, maybe yes, I'll try that helps. this time because it, it is just so weird. I, I have kind of an atypical response too because I have this where, like, for twelve hours I'm fine, and then I go, oh, maybe this time it'll be different. Nope. Then then I get really tired, and then about three and a half hours later, I wake up with a high fever. So. Yeah, I wonder if the water could help. I, I will try to drink a lot of water. Yeah, water's been good. I've done it every time and definitely uh, haven't really had a strong reaction at all. So. And one thing I am going to do differently this time is I am going to take pain relievers after the shot if I get a headache because I, I just was very stubborn and would not take a pain reliever because I was afraid it could interfere with the shot working. But it's just been so crappy because I get these like indirect headaches from it. Indirect meaning that I it's not directly causing the headache, but my just endless time in bed causes a headache. So I, if I could get rid of the headache at least, or maybe get rid of some of the body pains, I get a lot of body aches and pains from this damn shot. I think if I could bring those down to a reasonable level, this would be more tolerable. I also have things like the fatigue, and maybe that'll even bring down the fever. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I... I I'm willing at this point to take it, especially because this shot is less important than the third shot. So I'm willing to give myself a little more comfort this time where I just... Other two shots, second and third, I just dealt with it. I would not take any pain reliever until all the symptoms were gone. But I'm not going to be as hard line this time. But I'll definitely consider the water thing. That that might actually work. Okay, thank you, Trader Ruski, and uh, maybe I'll see you in, in a, a month or so, a month and a half or so in Vegas. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think uh, Vintage One and I will be there. Are you, are you talking about the general series or the seniors event? I have no idea. Okay. Whatever falls on the time, we can be there. So yeah. The seniors event is kind of a pain in the ass time in the series, too. I'm like, When I saw the date of that, I was like, oh, no. Like I, I don't really want to be there on that date, but I also want to play the seniors event. It's a tough decision. But I know, I know you've been there for a few years. I This will be my first one. Okay, well, talk to you later. Have a great day, our brother. Good night, or good morning. All right, thank you for joining me. I, I hope I gave you some clarity on the Bryn Kenny and Ali Imstravik situation, especially the Bryn Kenny situation. It, isn't it complicated? Like, isn't it, like, full of so many different angles and characters? So I know that a lot of you uh, were having kind of a hard time digesting the whole thing from everything on Twitter. So I hope I clarified it. One thing that I've been given credit for over the years, even before I ever had a show like this, was being able to explain topics to people in an understandable way, even topics that are kind of complicated. 
I even got that compliment in college when I did like presentations for things. And that's because I, I can make myself think like someone who isn't that familiar with the topic and present it to them that way instead of talking like someone who knows a lot about the topic and just assumes everybody else does. So that's why I'll stop and say, oh, in case you're wondering this or in case you don't know this. And I, I try to present these things in a clear fashion so it's easy listening for you. Because I, I know you don't want to do a lot of work listening to the show. The whole point to have the show on is to kind of relax and just listen and not have to really, really concentrate. I know some of you listen at work while you're grinding poker, while you're driving. So I want it to be easy to listen to, not something that is an exercise to understand everything. So hopefully I accomplished that. Go ahead and give me your reaction, 775-372-8355, to anything on the show, especially that long Brent Kenny segment. And if you feel that I didn't explain it well enough, you can tell me, and if you think I clarified for you, please let me know that too. Sorry it was so long, but that's the way it goes sometimes. All right, I'll try to be back sometime next week, hopefully on my computer. I guess this one worked out, though. Shalom!